Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to us all. I'm so grateful that you're here to join me in this divine service work as we begin. Take a nice deep breath, set the rest of the world aside for this moment, and enter into the sacred portal of your heart. Going into your heart, we call forth the full emergence and integration for each one of us with our soul, our higher self, our monad, our muddy I am presence. Feel your multidimensional divine presence integrate further into every fiber and cell of your being. As we invite in every aspect of ourselves multidimensionally, and we see ourselves in our mighty pillar of light, that beautiful ascension column that exists all the time that we need to put our focus and awareness on and see it grounded directly from source into the crystalline heart of Mother Gaia. A beautiful multicolored energy comes in bringing you the frequencies that you desire and require at this time for your own personal ascension and for the ascension of the planet. All of these exquisite frequencies will be shared with everyone as we affirm. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And as you feel the strength of your connection to source into the higher realms and to Mother Earth, feel your connection as well to every man, woman, and child. Allow your heart to open and expand. And we call forth everyone to join us in experiencing that. Each part, each soul, each being, in expansion, expansion of their heart energy, their love energy, their high heart. And then we connect all to the cosmic heart of all that is. It is in this unity consciousness that we call forth the highest ascension frequencies, individually and collectively, for both personal and planetary and cosmic ascension. Take a nice deep breath as we welcome it for one and all 
all soul extensions, both planetary and galactic. We welcome all of our ancestors, our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pod. We welcome at this time all for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome as well all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divic kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healing Teams. We welcome the assistance of the healing teams from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify all that we receive in divine order individually and collectively. Ten billion times and billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. As we once again recommit to this work of ascension, as we recommit to our roles, of being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask to receive it through every cell, every chakra and meridian, every layer of our auric field multidimensionally, as well as on a conscious, subconscious, and superconscious level in divine order for our being. We ask to do this with the greatest of ease and grace, to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor 
integrate and embody these frequencies, the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. And do so with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. As we work with all of the rays here today, we specifically call in the violet ray and violet flame. And all the mighty beings that work with the violet ray. As we ask for the earth to be flooded with this violet fire. The maximum that we can receive. In the name of the great I am. I call forth for the light of a thousand suns. From the great central sun. Angels of the violet fire. Beloved Saint Germain. Beloved Archangel Zadkiel and Holy Amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of our Mother, Father, God, I am that I am. Saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless waves of violet fire. We call this forth for everyone and everything in our circle of support as well. I call forth for the action of the violet transmuting flame and the action of the will of our Mother, Father, God to manifest on earth now and forever, an ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and love of our Mother, Father, God's holy purposes, to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of this earth and all of her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame. In the name of God, Goddess, flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection. May peace, harmony, and love be spread throughout the earth. May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that it is done now according to God, Goddess's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. We call forth for that aspect of the violet flame and violet ray that is divine justice. We see divine justice across the planet as we say. O thou mighty infinite I am presence, thou supreme justice of the universe, by the power of the unfed flame, the three times three, 
and the cosmic light. Let thy judgment descend into the physical octave of earth and compel divine justice to be released this instant into every activity, be it business, be it financial, be it governmental activity, be it the activities of war and violence. We call forth your cosmic divine justice to be released through all of these activities, through every nation, and be forever sustained. Let divine justice and divine judgment descend on all destructive forces from this very moment and annihilate them their cause, if that record remembrance and memory from the earth and humankind forever. Thou who art supreme justice, the supreme owner of all that is, the supreme giver of all that is, the supreme perfection of all that is, and the supreme doer of all that is good. Descend into the brain and body of every human being on earth this moment and all who come here in the future. Take possession of that which is already yours and once again compel everything in humankind and all of its outer activity to come into divine order through divine love and be eternally sustained. We thank thee thou dost always answer our every call. So be it and so it is. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of ascended masters and great cosmic beings, come forth in your full cosmic power and authority of the unfed flame, the three times three, the cosmic light, and the blue lightning of divine love. Blast this instant by the power of the blue ray, all legal procedure from existence within the United States of America and in every nation throughout the world. That is not the eternal divine law of right and justice of the mighty I Am Presence and the Ascended Masters for every human being on earth forever. Annihilate all that does not guarantee and give divine justice to every human being on earth forever. Blast the cause, core, effect, record, remembrance, and memory of all that binds humanity by any wrong legal activity and replace it by the ascended master's eternal divine justice to all forever. Replace all legal procedure throughout the world with the ascended master's eternal divine law of the mighty I am presence that gives divine justice to every human being on the earth forever. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call instantly forever. So be it, it is. And we give for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. Take a nice breath.
mighty Ionians, great whole mighty light, mighty lords came from great cosmic beings and great cosmic light. <clears throat> Sweep your consuming through the consciousness of all things, all of the and its atmosphere everywhere. Annihilate and suggestion and hypnotic patience of the earth. Give each individual his complete and eternal freedom. See that each person feels only the victory of his presence. Insulate every human being within the magic electronic tube of Ascended Master light substance, which cuts each person free forever from all qualities but the perfection of his mighty I Am Presence and the Ascended Masters. Lift blessed, beloved humanity into the full conscious acceptance of the I Am Presence and hold every human being within the victory of the light of God Goddess that never, never fails. Annihilate everything that dares to interfere with the expansion of the light of any human being on the earth. Blast all such causes and effects from existence forever. Seize the attention of the mind, body, being, and world of every human being on the earth Seize the vision, light, and hearing of every human being and anchor it wholly on his or her own I am presence. The very source of his own life. Cut all humankind free from the magnetic pull of the earth, the things of earth and all human creation that everyone may unmistakably feel his or her own freedom and dominion and keep it forever sustained. We say to blessed humanity everywhere, awake, awake, awake. To this full conscious ascended master knowledge of your own I am presence, be 100% loyal to yourself, the ascended master perfection of the light, Reach up and take your scepter of dominion. Produce perfection and hold it forever. The victory of the ages is at hand. The victory of the light is at hand. The light of God, Goddess, that never fails and is eternally sustained. Blessed, beloved humanity, our love and our light of the mighty I Am Presence is great enough to lift you into the light once again, and so shall you be free. We thank the mighty I Am Presence that does always answer our every call instantly, infinitely, and eternally, and so it is. <clears throat> Take a nice deep breath. Keep working with that violet flame. Keep placing it as we continue our cleansing process. 
and we ask for the release of the cause, core and effect of all hatred, violence, and war on this planet. Mighty I Am Presence, mighty host of Ascended Masters, mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light. Come forth in your most dynamic cosmic action of the violet consuming flame. Blast all destructive qualities and action from all war materials throughout the world forever. Annihilate now their effect in all humanity, in all nations of the earth, of the planet, in this atmosphere for all eternity. Seize all stored up energy in those channels this very hour. Charge it with Master Saint Germain's and the other Ascended Masters' consciousness of the I Am and blaze it through every human being, the earth and its atmosphere, to create and maintain Ascended Master protection and perfection to all forever. Mighty I Am Presence charge this our decree with the light and love as of a thousand suns, and in the full activity of the great cosmic light, send it forth to do its perfect work forever. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of Ascended Masters, mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, and great cosmic light. Come forth in your most dynamic, almighty power of the unfed flame. Withdraw and withhold forever all energy, all money, all power, all greed, all supply, and all influence from every discordant activity in America, any of the three Americas, and every nation throughout the world. Annihilate their cause and effect from all humankind and the earth. Replace all such activities with the Ascended Master's light substance. And mighty miracles of perfection instantly manifest everywhere, eternally sustained and ever-expanding. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call instantly. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Know that as we are working with the violet flame, we are always working with the cosmic blue flame of divine love, divine will, divine power, and divine perfection. We continue to work with all of the rays As we focus on the white ray of purity, calling forth the highest energies for ascension, individually and collectively. Breathe and receive 
see it around you. Always important to work with the violet ray before we work with the white ray of purity. So we call for this now as we say this prayer for personal ascension. In the name of my beloved God, Goddess Presence, I am. I ask to receive the initiations needed to qualify for ascension. I call forth for a great cosmic shaft of cosmic purity flame to remove now from my mind, from my thoughts, my feelings, my body, and all subtle bodies multidimensionally, every vibration of human creation that is impure in substance and less than my divine perfection in God Goddess. May the flame of purity transmute from my world all remaining negative energies. May the love of Christ expand in me through the power of the ascension flame. May the resurrection flame, the mother of pearl, awaken the memories of my divine blueprint so that I can be free forever from all discord I have ever created. I affirm that I am purity in action. I am God's purity established within my mind, body, and soul. Let me also invoke purity for every part of life on earth. I invoke purity in divine order for my family, my friends, and for the whole family of God, all kingdoms, and the earth. And so it is, beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. See that white flame of purity entering around the planet, entering around all life, bringing that divine perfection once again. As we call this forth to flood the planet continuously from this moment forward, as we say, in the name of the victorious presence of God, Goddess I am, I call to the masters of light from the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood and sisterhood. Beloved Goddess of Purity, Serapis Bay, the Brotherhood of the Ascension Flame at Luxor and Telos, Beloved Queen of Light, and Beloved Angels of the Radiant Ascension Flame, Flood every particle of life on earth with oceans and oceans and oceans of both the violet fire and the ascension flame. Purify, illumine, and raise the consciousness now of all life and all kingdoms evolving here. Let thy flame blaze, illumine, and expand like the light of a thousand suns. Purify, purify, purify our minds, our memories, and feeling world from all blockages and negativity. Purify, purify, purify our bodies with 
from all diseases and weaknesses. Flood our world with the snow-white radiance of the ascension flame purity. Saturate and purify until we become crystal clear, transforming all we contact with the radiant light of the ascension flame. Blaze the radiant ascension flame through us. Join me in saying that. Blaze the radiant ascension flame through us. Blaze the radiance ascension flame through us. Flood and saturate the earth with oceans of violet flame. Flood the earth with the radiance of the ascension fire. Cut us free to be with thee in the realms of eternal freedom and infinite perfection now and forever. So be it and so it is. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we call in both the emerald green ray and the golden ray, especially that solar aspect of deity, golden color that is eternal peace and infinite abundance and all of the frequencies that consist in building our abundance individually and collectively at this time. So relax and receive. Let these energies fill you and surround you. We call them in for ourselves. We call them in for every man, woman, and child. And we affirm, I am the open door, which no one can shut, into the great treasure house of my beloved I am presence, and the ascended master's unlimited supply of every good thing and perfect gift, now made manifest in my life. I acknowledge my great I am presence as the door of everything, always waiting to shower me with unlimited supply as I consciously align my consciousness with the law of attraction and divine abundance. I now request all of the blessings that would fulfill all of my needs to be made manifest in my world at this time according to the divine plan for my life. I give that all my needs are constantly met. And so it is. Beloved, I am. We're going to say this one three times. I am the open door which no one can shut into the great treasure house of my beloved I am presence and ascended master's unlimited supply of every good and perfect gift now made manifest in my life. I acknowledge my great I am presence 
as the door of everything, always waiting to shower me with unlimited supply. As I align my consciousness with the law of attraction and divine abundance, I now request the infinite blessings that would fulfill all my needs to be made manifest in my world at this time according to the divine plan for my life. I give thanks that all my needs are constantly met. And so it is, beloved, I am. I am the open door, which no one can shut into the great treasure house of my beloved I am presence and ascended master's unlimited supply of every good and perfect gift now made manifest in my life. I acknowledge my great I am presence as the door of everything, always waiting to shower me with unlimited supply as I align my consciousness with the law of attraction and divine abundance. I now request the infinite blessings that provide for all of my needs to be made manifest in my world at this time according to the divine plan for my life. I give thanks that all my needs are constantly met. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. See those that same energies working with you, working with all humanity, working with the planet, as we say. Beloved, I am presence. Beloved Helios and Vesto. From the sun. Beloved Saint Germain. Beloved goddess of supply, fortuna. Beloved lords of manifestation. Charge into my force field and world now. The action of the golden flame of precipitated sunlight energy from the great central sun. Release into my hands and world today the full cosmic abundance of every good and perfect gift from my own I am presence that are mine to receive. As a child of God, goddess on this planet, I claim this release of abundance as my birthright in God. Cut me free now and forever from every lack and economic limitation by the power of the golden light of manifestation and by the light of God, goddess, that never fails. By thy holy grace, let this request be manifested in my life now according to God, goddess's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. 
And as we call for divine abundance and eternal peace for every man, woman, and child, we close with the sacred prayer for the earth and all upon her. See, peace, love, harmony spreading across the planet. See heaven on earth manifesting as we say this prayer. I hold within my heart of hearts an earth of absolute peace, unlimited abundance, and divinity. See that beautiful golden light that incorporates all three of those gifts. In this world of perfection, all beings are safe from dis-ease or harm. The sovereignty of each baby, child, teenager, woman, man, and elder is honored. All people, animals, and trees are safe from violence or abuse. Humanity's basic requirements of air, water, food, shelter, and clothing are generously met. Sharing naturally occurs. Each baby, each little girl and boy is deeply desired, loved, and cherished by both parents and a supportive spiritual community. No one is left alone, abandoned, or rejected. Love is continuously expressed between all people. We pray for each other because there is no separation or illusion. We are all one, an indivisible, peaceful family. Nothing to the contrary, exists or has power. All humanity is awakened right now. The people have shifted in consciousness from mind to heart, sharing love and generosity with each other. Nations are uplifted. Society is at peace. Society is whole, creating perfect holograms, which express the new paradigm of heaven on earth. As one people, we are the great heart of love. As one heart, we all reflect and enshrine the heart of the Divine Mother, Father God, the heart of our Supreme Mother. This heart enfolds all life, encompassing the whole planet, with comprehensive divine love. Inside this infinite and eternal love, all is. These truths we hold to be immaculate. So be it. So be it. So be it. All is well. All is well. All is well. And I would just like to take a moment to thank 
our beloved friend, Mary Mama Christ, for this prayer. With that, I'm asking you to help hold the vision of heaven on earth this week, regardless of what appears to be on the screen of life. And I hope you've enjoyed our divine service work today. And I ask that you join us each and every Sunday and Monday for further divine service work for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tara and Rama come in for a brief update. And then we work, do our Ascension work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. We are doing that work of bringing heaven to earth, and I ask you to join us. This work is so essential at this time. And we are the ones that we've been waiting here for to create it. This is a telephone conference call, so please take down the phone number. The main number is area code 425. 436-6262. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 7441-POUND. There are additional phone numbers. There are international lines to call. There's a way to get on by the computer and even an app, so please contact me. I will share that additional information. But please plan on joining us every Sunday and Monday for this divine service work, for we are that anchor of heaven to earth, We are the bridge to the new golden age, and we are the open door that no one can shut. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here today. With that, I'd like to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service. I'd like to thank Rainbird for her divine service as well. And with that, I pass the talking stick with that violet ray, the blue ray, the emerald, the green the pink of the divine love, again, every single frequency, fulfilling all of our needs, all of our desires. And with great thanks and gratitude, I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Much love. Live heaven. Have a great week. Infinite blessings to all. Okay, I got the talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your divine service. So grateful to do this each week this way. <clears throat> so I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listening supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And 
Each week we need $300 for the radio, and each month we need rent for Tara and Rama and all the other expenses that they have that occur. This is our way of, of uh, you know, paying back, paying it forward, showing our love and respect for all that they bring to us. And, and for all of us at providing this platform where we can gather each week. So uh, let's start with BBS Radio. This week we need $370. We were a little short for last week. A little bit of catch-up to do there. And uh, here's how we make a donation to the radio. Go into your heart space, see what's yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2 or scroll down and you'll find the menu for Radio Station 2. That's what you're looking for. And you're looking for those listings on the menu for our shows on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And they are at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday. These are Pacific times. Uh, it's a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon. That'll take you to our account where you can make a donation in any amount. And the Friday show at the 6 o'clock hour as well is the hard news on Friday nights, the car and Rama. You click on that icon, takes you to our account. And then the one for today, the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins at the 1.30 hour. With Tara and Rama, yeah, you click on that one there. Anyone works, and so thank you for taking that action. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for all the ways you show up in your life. Lots of gratitude. And let's see, we're uh, then assisting Tara and Rama. So this is Rent Week, and we have that to do. <laughs> and that's 11.50. And... Um, there's $400 in bills that are due, and uh, Rama needs, um, well, Tara and Rama need $300 for living expenses, and they actually have nothing in their pockets right now, so they need that real quick, and, and, and what else is going on is that Rama went to E.T. the mechanic today, and he needs a part that's a cheap part and, and, and deep in, so a high labor. So that part is probably 20 bucks, and the labor is 200 So we're needing 220 to fix a, a hose for the um, radiator. And uh, that needs to happen as soon as possible. Days are getting warmer, <laughs> that, and, and it's important to have the, everything working properly. So Rama does not get stranded on the road. So lots of gratitude for those of you who can help out and make this happen in a good, quick way for the car. And lots of gratitude for those of you who can help put some food in their pocket for gas and food for at least tomorrow and next day. And as these things come through, let's, let's make sure they don't have to be hungry or thirsty and, and, and they have all the household goods that they need, too. So they got that. Running out of toilet paper to say it <laughs> bluntly. <laughs> Let's make it happen that we can help them catch up to life at this point. And uh, here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on the menu grid, that list drops down. It's near the bottom, the donate link to Rama's PayPal account. Click on that. You get to Rama's PayPal account, and there you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. 
So thank you for your generosity and, and your promptness and, and, and making it happen. Lots of gratitude. And now if you have your own PayPal account, account, you can access the friends and family option by using Rama's uh, email there at PayPal. And it is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999-49 at hotmail.com. And that's how that works. So either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your prompt and, and generous contributions. And so here's what you do once you've made a contribution. You want to email Rama and let him know you sent something. That email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. Okay. And then as you are wanting to send something um, through the mail or directly through a wire, that, that physical address for Rama is Rob D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box, 280-280 in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, the zip code 87567. And again, that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information for making that contribution and uh, lots of gratitude for all that you do to support Tara and Rama. And so lots of gratitude for all that Tara, Tara and Rama do for all of us. So <laughs> thanks all around. And then also we have the Fremart address I want to give you if you want to join Fremart and access these good products and abundance programs and environmental products as well. That that address is www. No, in it. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T A R R A M. And then if you're interested in what I'm calling the People's Bank that has humanitarian investment, um, that address for New Gen Coin, which is tied in with Fremart. John Austin is is Fremark, and John Austin's also colluded with New Gen people for together for it. So they're tied in. They're sisters. It is https colon forward slash forward slash www dot newgencoin n u g e n c o i n dot com forward slash t a r r a m. So there you have it, all the information. And before I pass the talking stick, I want to say thank you to all of of us as we um, are are put put Marshall in the circle of support. He's reporting that he feels like he's turned the corner and he feels our energy and is very grateful. So I want to just relay that message. Um, with that, I'm passing this talking stick, and you know that it's got the, the the violet ray and the blue rays and all the um, pink and green and yellow, all all the rays, all the gems, 
and all kinds of fairies and feathers on this talking stick. So here it comes, complete with men and hoodies and hobbits and gnomes and big people. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Oh, and I want to say 13 thank yous and honey in the heart for all that did you did. Did you talk do. about Marshall? Oh, yeah, I did talk I'm about sorry. Marshall. And I, I did, I am saying thank you to everybody for all your contributions. And now you can have the talking stick. <laughs> thank you. Sorry, everyone. Greetings. Greetings. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Yes, and we just want to say, uh, Marshall said, he felt everybody's prayers and good uh, wishes, his quick and happy and healthy recovery. And he just said it's just beginning now so that sometime this afternoon he'll be taking like a little smoothie as his first food again. And uh, Fremart, he's got so many wonderful Fremart products. And he said this is gonna be the golden, the golden goose, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, the, uh, Fremart mineral products are absolutely, there is now a comparison to the manner in which they've been created and the precision of and the concentration of, uh, in the appropriate amounts of healing, uh, minerals that can rebuild the form, the human form, uh, that we are just, uh, uh, we are, uh, the caretakers of. So, uh, so we're going to give some hard news and I'm going to pass that talking stick to Lord Ron. Here comes Ron. Okay. Um, I got a text message from the King of Swords and he said, yes, talk about, uh, I gotta get the car fixed and, uh, it's a big deal. Cause, um, let's say I caught it before things really happened and I had to call Geico on the road. And I'm. You didn't have to do that, but I you didn't caught have it. to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. We really need help with that. And the King of Swords is just saying the empires are coming down all around us and what we are watching and experiencing is the most intense of times. That's an understatement and a half. <laughs> and it is about the transfiguration of the sun, which is exacerbating all the situations on the planet. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because we are getting more light than we have ever received in these bodies, temples, and that's the mission to radiate more light in the most Unlikely of places, and uh, I talked to E.T., he said that um, he is hearing messages from his vets, he uses Telegram, I don't, <laughs> He's had, he's got Telegram on his iPhone, mm-hmm. 
and his veteran friends who were in the first Gulf War are saying that triangular-shaped ships, there are squadrons of those flying over Ukraine. Wow. And our media on planet Earth's not talking about it, yet it is being talked about. And it is about the fact that the Andromedans interfere. The, they have the triangular-shaped craft that make no noise. They're silent. And the dark side has been playing around with back-engineered craft that look exactly like that. Oh. And some of them, you know, make noise. Some of them don't make noise. But when you look at them, you may or may not get a sense of hope. Because some of the triangular-shaped craft the dark side has created are stealth bombers that we used on Iraq called shock and awe. And that's not a good thing. Yet, you know, blaze of violet fire, yes. Yes, and the thing that's really the positive thing is, is that Russia... Putin is a contactee of the Andromedans, so he's going into Ukraine only to get rid of the bombs and all of the military hardware that the United States is shipping in there to to harm the people. It is such a convoluted story because our media is compromised with the deep state. Yeah, and the thing is that with that... Uh, uh, work that the Russians are doing. He's also uh, brought the Andromedans to help the uh, Ukrainian people. So it's completely the opposite. The empire is already... Uh, where is it, Rama? It is in shambles. And they are <laughs> yes. trying to keep this going with the fallen matrix and the holograms and the clones, the parade of life forms on the screen. It's um, kind of ridiculous and kind of tragic. And at the same time, I, I just sense that a lot of these people are doing what they're doing and they're trained so well to not, Tell the truth, because it's about mind control. Also today, I I heard on Living on the Edge with Zuby Wilson, they were talking about Miss, how do you pronounce her name, Judge Jackson? Yeah, Judge Brown Jackson. Uh, her first name begins with a T. I have to look. To Johnny. To Johnny, that sounds close. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I mangled it. What they were saying on Living on the Edge is that this whole drama the Republicans played when they were doing the hearings, um, it is so blatant, the racism, that this is why we're kind of in the situations we're in right now with Russia, with Ukraine, 
with the other countries uh, that um, the civilizations are people of color. And like the Hopi prophecy speaks about the rainbow warrior prophecy, that the rainbow nation is here. All the colors of the rainbow. And that includes 144,000 rays of living love, living light. And it's what makes up the universe. And when you get to the place with consciousness that you see every living being in that realm, there is no war. And that's where we got to get to. And it's happening. You could say that the, the, the planetary logos, solar logos, Helios and Vesta all the way up, these planetary guardians of the galaxy, I could say, along with Metatron, Michael, Maitreya, and Mother, and the others are making sure this happens. And like the king said, we are watching a parade of clones and holograms, and it was just like, um, Andrea Mitchell was on this morning, and you can see that the light's on, but there's no one home. That's a hologram. It is, and, you know, computer-generated graphics, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it, it is... It is a trip, and this is why we are being asked to step into the higher realms and use the force, because you can sense with the force, with your feelings, with your divine emotions, what's real, what's not real. Um, Yeah. In other words, they don't get to... Do another cover-up. They're attempting, but they don't get to. Right? No. And the climate disruption that's going on, it's unusual in the sense that different areas of the planet are experiencing this disruption as Antarctica is heating up. So much so, and the ice shelves that we and other countries have bases on, it is tenuous at best to stay there because it is about the great shifting of what's going on. It is about the magnetic field. Expanding and contracting as the sun sends out the solar flares and the ascension symptoms are just insane. And place the violet fire right past the talking stick. Yes, good vibrations are ever increasing as the dark side is trying to be meaner. And it's not working. No, it's not. Everybody's got their number. Don't worry, be happy. No more child trafficking, everybody. (laughs) And 
the galactic beings are. Yeah, I could say that, you know, Lindsey Graham put his nose out there this week. Whether folks know it or not, Lindsey Graham, along with John McCain, along with Chuck Grassley, so many other Republicans are up to their crown chakras in the stories they are blaming for celebrities and other dignitaries in Hollywood, and they have been playing with the pedophilia and the child trafficking. Donald Trump is a major child trafficker, along with all the other mm-hmm. pantheon of life forms that may or may not be real at this point. Mm-hmm. I passed the talking stick. To you. To me? Hello. <laughs> okay, well, let's just real quick, and then we'll have Micah come on here. Okay. Um, uh, there's a couple of things. You know, Biden gave a big old speech today in Warsaw. And he stuck his nose out really fat, far, and he was saying, for God's sakes, this man, Mr. Putin, he cannot be allowed to remain in power. Who says? You don't have anything to say about And then he had to backtrack that statement. Yeah, because his handlers said, you get it back out there. and Yeah. That's not acceptable. You're letting our little tails hang out in the wind. Tall tails. And then, um, yeah, and he called Putin a, a butcher. And I, you know, I just. Yeah, 9-11. When you point a finger at someone, all the other fingers are pointing back at you, so it's a four-to-one situation, calling yourself that name. And uh, I'm just saying the sacred uh, moment that we are in is that people have wakened up beyond the place where they can be dumbed down again. Yes. It's not going to work. So that we continue to blaze the violet fire with that, right? Yes. Okay, and um, let's see what else. Oh, Biden was touting, you know, that it's a sacred obligation of the West to defend NATO territory as shelling in Ukraine continues. And then he threatened, you know, Putin. If you dare one inch of NATO territory, if you do anything, you know, do not enter one inch of NATO territory (laughs) or you get to feel uh, NATO's collective force. So what you're seeing and hearing is that they want a confrontation. They want... uh, to play with nuclear weapons. This U.S. empire wants a confrontation, and in a metaphorical sense, I'll take it to the next level, they want a date with Ashtar. Ashtar will give them that moment to have a conversation, and then we are going to have to deal with how we talk to each other about the force and how we can interact with each other, whether we're blue or green or yellow or pink 
I passed a talking stick. And I just want to reiterate that the work uh, that Cheryl Croce is doing, um, uh, Mother Segment said it's the most important work any one of us could do to make sure that we stay on the path to the light for the whole world. Yes. That is mother's words. And this was before Cheryl started to do this work, which has been going on for 12, going on 13th year now. And so I just wanted to reiterate the number. And it's that Sunday evenings and Monday evenings, mountain time at uh, 7, or, yeah, 7, uh, Eastern Time, 9, every Sunday evening and Monday evening. And the phone number, reserve about three hours of your evenings on Sunday evening and Monday evening for this work. Uh, and, again, learning how to invoke higher energies. Repetition is the mother of wisdom. Let's put it that way. 425. 436-6260. Again, that's 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. So see you there. Come and join us at this critical moment in time. Let's have our our circle of light grow in these activities. All right. I guess we can pass the talking stick to Micah. Are you there, Micah? Greetings. Thank you, Tara and Rama. And uh, greetings to all of our listeners from around the globe and throughout the cosmos. So um, I have a couple updates for us on the new gen coin. Um, very important update. So number one, new gen exchange will be located in Lithuania. All required paper has now been submitted to the Lithuanian government, making it possible for our new gen exchange to become a reality for all of us in the very near future. We anticipate two major announcements in the next two to three weeks that will bring immense credibility to new gen coin while simultaneously causing our company to explode in numbers. Number three, the 10% bonus of realty coins, hemp coin, energy and oxygen coins that we are currently giving members when buying a new gen smart contract will soon be going away. The end date is tentatively set for the last day of April but could vary slightly one way or the other. Members, however, will continue to receive a 10% bonus of new gen coins when purchasing a smart contract until new gen coins goes live on the exchange. Number four, great news. As soon as any of your coins are registered on the new gen exchange, you will have the ability to sell them or buy more as you desire. This will be a blessing for anyone who needs to take care of some immediate needs. Now, the new gen coin plan. 
at the present time, you have the opportunity to purchase new gen coin at the price of 29.56413631 cents per coin. The price of the coin has had several increases over the past few months and is projected to increase dramatically in the near future. So consider what happened with Bitcoin. As recently as 2010, it traded at five cents per coin, and it now trades at over $41,000 per coin. This same thing could happen again with new gen coin. When you purchase a new gen coin smart contract, you receive coins as follows. The total dollar amount of your purchase divided by the present price of the coin. For example, right now, with a $1,000 purchase, you receive 3,382 coins. However, there is more. As a new gen coin promotion, you receive 10% bonus or 338 coins for a total of 3,720 coins. You may purchase any dollar amount of coins that you choose, starting with as little as $50. The staking period for the smart contract is 18 months. This staking period may be ultimately shorter because once the full term of the contract as soon as the exchange is launched, it dissolves and your money is live. Um, increased rewards while coins are staked. During your smart contract staking period, there's an additional bonus. You are going to get 0.35% compounded daily on your investment. So right now, folks, uh, couldn't be a better time to invest in this opportunity as they're projecting within the next three to four months that the exchange is going to be going live and the uh, projection of the value of the coins within the next once the exchange goes live they're projecting the value to jump right away to five to ten dollars per coin so you guys can do the math uh, when you're purchasing the coins right now at 29 cents and they're going to be compounded daily as well up until that exchange gets launched. So the next three to four months is, is a really, really good time uh, to get involved in this opportunity. So with that, uh, we're going to move on to the uh, first video we're going to play, which is um, entitled The uh, Why Wars Never End. This was produced by one of our knowledge seekers in the Kesh Foundation, and it's based on Mr. Kesh's teachings on the recent situation in Ukraine. Um, a quick introduction. Many of us sincerely want to end wars on this planet, but how can we if we don't truly understand how they are created? So uh, with that, we're going to go into our video and I will start playing it now. Introduction. <clears throat> Many of us sincerely want to end wars on this planet, but how can we if we don't truly understand how they are created? In this summary, Mr. Kesh has revealed to us the hidden causes of many wars 
and especially now what is going on in Ukraine. When we saw the Pope rushing off to the Russian embassy the night before the conflict started, most of us believed what the media told us, that he was on a mission of peace. But now we find out that the truth is quite the opposite. It was said that we as knowledge seekers will start to rule this planet through our souls. In a way, we have a responsibility to understand the situation clearly and then use our souls to create the fields needed to come to a correct balance. It doesn't matter if we are a housewife or a politician. Our souls are equal in their ability to change the conditions of this planet. So please, everybody, do not be afraid to read this document and understand the truth so that when we make our intentions together to bring peace on earth, it will have a tremendous power. We are all equal, regardless of what we are being told. The truth of the Pope's visit to the Russian embassy was actually one of defeat. He went there to guarantee that Russian forces will not cross the Ukrainian border, and he has agreed to pay for all the costs of the war, because all the leaders know that he is the guilty party. Penalty. Just to hear this is so crazy. How can the world be turned so upside down? How can all of us have been so fooled by the temporary controllers of this planet? Basically, the Pope was lusting after the gold of the Russian Orthodox Church, which has more wealth than the Catholic Church. The Vatican has been financing American and European organizations to go into Ukraine and destabilize the government and put their own people in places of power through bribery and other promises. Finally, the Russian church had to make a move or be taken over by the Pope. This is why Mr. Kish says that uh, this is not a war, because when you take back your own property, you are correcting the situation. This is not the first time, but it is an ongoing pattern of the Vatican. The Vatican succeeded in what you could call a corporate takeover of the Church of England. Then there was Libya, but the Vatican was betrayed by the British. The Vatican sent African priests into China with bags of diamonds to split up China, but the Chinese contained it in Hong Kong. They also collaborate with the Rothschilds family financially, as they have the same goals to control the humanity. But sometimes they fight amongst themselves. This is not a conspiracy theory, but a deep understanding of actual events taking place we, the little people, see the bits and pieces of information, but we don't know how to put it together. And emotionally, we are trained not to question, but to follow. In order for the church to gain so much wealth and power, it protects itself by keeping people ignorant of their own soul. We saw this clearly during the Inquisition, but it's still going on today in different hidden forms. Now with the Keshe Foundation Plasma Technology. All of this is changing. We are being taught that our soul is within us, and we don't need intermediaries to control and abuse us by lack of understanding. Please try not to read this article and think, oh, now, now I have understood the conspiracy. This will not help and could make us more neurotic. Instead, be open to the possibility of another interpretation like, oh, Everything they told me about myself was not true. I am not ignorant, and I am not a slave. The soul is within me. 
I can understand and become free to help the others by sharing what I have understood. Through this knowledge, we lose our fear. And through our intention, we share love, knowledge, peace to bring about the elevation of the soul, the souls of these leaders. This is what terrifies them most, that we should find out the truth. But for us, it is the greatest opportunity to change ourselves and change the planet. Thank you for listening. Now the summary. A question was asked about the Russian and Ukraine crisis and the idea of peace. How can we elevate the souls of both the Russian and Ukraine uh, Ukrainian representatives that are meeting right now to reach a truth? Truth. <clears throat> Mr. Keshe answered in a very direct way, but leaving it to the knowledge seekers to think for themselves. By showing a photo of the Pope leaving the Russian embassy the night before the conflict started, with his head and shoulders slumped down like a defeated man. By this picture, the Pope gave President Putin a carte blanche for the war in Ukraine. He went to the Russian embassy in Rome on 23rd of February, 2022. In the history of the Catholic Church, this is more or less unheard of. It seldom happens, if ever. And for the Pope to go publicly there makes you wonder. Americans and Western nations knew that the Russians were going to go into the Ukraine. And they knew they could not touch the Russian army. So they tried to arm the Ukrainians from outside. But when I saw this picture with the Pope, I knew that it was a war between two churches, the Catholic Church trying to take over the assets of the Russian Orthodox Church. I discussed this some three or two, four weeks ago in the American teaching and some other teachings. The war you see today in Ukraine really goes back to the wars between different divisions of Christianity. By the Pope going to the Russian embassy, he accepted the defeat of the Vatican. In this defeat, the Vatican has agreed to underwrite all the damages and costs of the war, including every bullet and every tank that Russia will use in Ukraine. The reason the Catholic Church is paying is because they went in to dominate the Russian Church. In other words, for many years now, the Vatican, hidden in the background, has been financing the incursions of NATO and American billionaires into Ukraine, both politically and militarily. The reason this is confusing to us now is because the billionaires control the media reports. So everybody believes that the current situation in Ukraine came from inside Ukraine itself, where the truth is that it has been financed from outside. Putin offered to join NATO years ago, but they refused him because the Pope was after the gold in the Russian church. The Russian church has no choice but to go to the Russian army to defend the Russian Orthodox Church. The Americans, Chinese, and European leaders all knew what was going on. The only problem is the public still doesn't know. The leaders all knew that the Catholic Church was poking to start problems in the Ukraine so that they could force the Russians to hand over the Russian Orthodox Church, or rather hand over its assets to the Pope. To the Pope. Which means, on the outside, it will still say Russian Orthodox Church, but inside the Vatican would have control over it, like what was done to the Church of England. The Vatican controls the assets of the Church of England, and the Queen is his servant. In the end, the Russian Church would not accept it, so they asked Putin to go in and clean it out 
and get the nation of Ukraine back. On, on 23rd of February, the Pope accepted his defeat, and now he had, and now he has to underwrite the losses. In the photo here, this is the walk of a defeated man to the Russian embassy in Rome. It says, I'm prepared to pay all the penalties. Now the Russians have a carte blanche to do what they like in Ukraine. Every bomb they drop and bullet they use in Ukraine is paid for by the Vatican. The more weapons they use, the more profit they make. This was the same situation in the Second World War when the Americans sent their soldiers to Europe. Some European nations are still paying off the Americans because they had because they invoiced them for everything they spent, everything they spent, including the chewing gum. Weeks ago, I explained that there was a 99% chance that Russia will go into the Ukraine because they are trying to get their motherland back. And the Americans, with the Vatican behind them, were poking to put all sorts of things inside their country. And finally, the Russians did their job of protecting their homeland. The Americans know they cannot face the Russians or there will be a third world war imminent. So everybody just stands outside barking like a dog. The Russians are literally wiping out and cleaning the house up. There are two parts of this cleaning operation. First is by not allowing the others from outside to put their nuclear weapons inside the USSR, which Ukraine is a part of. This is what you see happening today. The Russians will be there. They'll wipe out and put things back in order. But this is not a war. And secondly, they are claiming back the Church of the Russian territories in such a way that the Catholic Church will never put its foot again into the Orthodox Church of Russia. We could see this coming three and even five years ago. We saw the same thing happening recently in China, where the Vatican in the background was financing a war to split up China. But the Chinese confined it to Hong Kong and battered them. The Chinese paid heavily for it. Again, this is very confusing for us because the billionaires are controlling the media. So we heard a totally different story. I know this is hard to believe for a lot. Uh, this is hard for a lot of us to believe. The Vatican paid for all the things we saw happening in Hong Kong. But then the Chinese brought it under control. How are they financing? Uh, how are they financing the Ukraine? They did a similar way in China. In China, they used Christians to bring the money in. Priests were flown in from Africa carrying diamonds in their bags. Then they sold them to China, in China to finance the violence and everything else we saw. But the Chinese were waiting for them. Another way they tried doing it was to get rid of the communism by turning a lot of Chinese into Christians. If you make one billion Christians out of the Chinese, then the Vatican becomes triple billionaires. But their plan wasn't going to go through because the Chinese already had a structure that the people knew. And the Chinese found out, and they took out everybody that was part of the plot. This walk of the Pope is one of defeat. And for the first time, the Catholic Church had to be stopped. They warred with England for 300 years until they finally won the Church of England. At the moment, the Queen is the servant of the Vatican, and she has no more power. It's just like when one corporation takes over another. They let it run as it was. They don't interfere. Whatever you want to call it, just know that the Vatican owns it. The property is theirs. This current situation in Ukraine is an exact repetition of what happened in Europe a few years back. When the economies of 
in Greece, Spain, Ireland, and Portugal collapsed. Then suddenly out of nowhere, miraculously, everything came back to normal. All those countries came out of the problem. This was because the Vatican did not want the Christian structure in the European Union to fail. The European Union to fail. So Vatican paid for all the debts. And then we saw immediately what I call the Rothschilds family behind it. Later, they wanted to get their money back, so they appointed a German pope. Since the pope is the sole owner of the Vatican Bank, he can withdraw the money without question. And remember, the Vatican Bank is not controlled by any other organization. The German pope transferred the money back to the Rothschilds. Then the pope abdicated, or was forced to abdicate. The reason we don't hear anything about it is because the money is transferred secretly. This is the same process going on again in Ukraine. The controlled media gives a different story to the people, so that's why it may be hard to believe. Over the past decades, the, the Vatican guaranteed the finances for the Americans to poke into Ukraine and do whatever was needed. The same with NATO. NATO wanted to put their forces into Ukraine, but Russia finally said no, and, the, and they gathered their own forces on Ukraine's border. This is when the showdown took place, and when it was certain that Russia was going in. That's when the Pope had to go to the Russian embassy to take the guarantee that Russian forces will not cross Ukraine's border to come into Vatican territory. It's like saying you can keep you can keep the Russian Orthodox Church in USSR and will pay all the penalties because we were we were the naughty boys. The defeated man always goes to see the one who defeated him. This is this is a defeated man walking out of the Russian embassy. He has underwritten to pay all the damages. Now, the Vatican always cashes in on their losses. This means that it will be the Catholics from the American and European churches who will end up paying for all the damages in Ukraine. Now, it is clear why the controlled media has to present the Ukrainian crisis the way it does. The people who give money to the church will not be able to accept this kind of truth unless their souls get elevated to understand. This visit by the Pope to the Russian embassy was to get assurances that Russia will not cross the Ukrainian border. We will see some skirmishes, but in reality, this is a war of religions, not a war of nations. In fact, it's not a war, it's a correction. It's the bringing of Ukraine back under the fold of the USSR. Another way to look at it is, if you have a brother and he is, and he is on his own, the other boys bully and attack him until the big brother comes to help him. Then the other boys all run away. But when the big brother comes, he puts his hands in the pockets of the ones who are doing the bullying. He says, you have to pay for the damages from bullying my brother. This is what's happening now, and the Vatican pays for it. So don't worry what's, uh, about, what's, about what's, hap what's happening in Ukraine. We were watching this for some time. And we're expecting this to happen four years ago. The delay in it has reasons. Putin knew about it. And he was requested by the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church to protect the Church of the Motherland. He was waiting for the Church to make that request. And then he responded. He had a reason to show his power and to protect the Motherland's Church. And that's all it is. It will not become a war because this man walking out of the embassy has guaranteed to pay for it. In a way... If you look at it, it's punishing those in Ukraine who went to bed with the Pope. I was looking over the situation, and it will take time. 
and it's possible we might see a small repetition of what was done in Afghanistan by kamikazes and guerrilla warfare. They stayed there for 15 years and then pulled out because they couldn't control it. And now the Europeans are trying to show that they are doing something in Ukraine. Um, that, that's because they, uh, that's, what, that's how they're getting involved. Yeah. But in general, they should have it under control in about three to six months. They'll make sure nobody ever talks about NATO again. People may go on the streets and do whatever they like, but the Russians will change the people on the top and inside the government so that the Vatican and the others will have no say in running under Ukraine. Because from Russia's point of view, once Ukraine goes, Belarus will go, and the other parts of the Christian side of the corridor that leads to Moscow will be opened up. Moscow would be in danger, so the door had to be closed. This is what we see in the pic- in this picture. It's the walk of a defeated man. The Russian Orthodox Church is one of the richest churches in the world, and he took the risk to try to bring it under his control. The only thing they didn't count on was that the Orthodox Church would go to Putin, and Putin wanted to confirm that he was there to do the job. We were watching the whole thing. And when we saw the Russian naval forces going through the Bosporus, going through the Bosporus and up as the Black Sea, we knew the war was on, or what I call cleansing the Vatican out of USSR. And that's when I spoke in the other teachings. You have to understand that church business is a financial business and has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with making profit. When they decide to create a war, it's a long-term investment. I explained this before. When the father dies or the mother and the son dies in the Western world, it's an investment for the church. How does that work? Let's say the Vatican pays $10 for the bullet that kills the father or the other family members. The surviving family members spend the rest of their life going to the church to pray for that one who dies. Let's say that every time they go to the church, they give a dollar. Add it all up over time. It's a huge return on the investment made by the church to secretly start the war. Church business, God business, is a money business and nothing else. This is why we said there will be no more religions on this planet. Because once you understand the power of the soul of the man, you do not need all this mayhem from those wearing the robes and the white frock. Look at the picture. You see the shoulders are folded in and uh, folded in, and his head and chin are down. This is the walk of a strong man defeated, a man thinking he is strong, defeated. Don't worry, the Vatican and the Pope has never sat down quietly and accepted defeat. We have to see what they plan to do over the next 20 years in other, par- in other parts of Russia and the West. We'll see more mayhem because between these two churches, unless we as knowledge seekers can bring the light and the understanding that God's word is in the soul of the man. Don't worry about this Ukraine business. The Vatican has already paid for it, and they will receive the bill every day with how many bullets and how many shoes the soldiers have used and the food they use to fight this war. The Vatican has underwritten all of it. The head of Ukraine says that the Russians will pay for everything they do and all the damages they cause. Yes, no problem, because the Vatican has already paid the Russians, and they'll make a profit in the losses. It will bring a lot of jobs to the Russian industry. This is a dirty business of religion, and we are watching many people suffering because of it. But to the leaders who are behind it, the people's suffering is irrelevant. 
Another time, another time recently when the Vatican lost was when the British monarch took the gold that they all had planned to take together from Libya. The British monarchy took revenge on the Vatican for losing the Church of England by taking $140 billion of gold from the vaults of Libya. The British flew the gold directly to the Bank of Scotland. And eventually it ended up in the British government. Vatican financed a program to bring down Libya. And then they were to share all the gold between the Italians, French, British, and Germans. But the British got there first and took it to the Bank of Scotland. The other countries got together and decided to kick the British out of the EU, and, and they did it through Brexit. In the world of religion, the house of God never loses, because it's a house of money and not of God. So don't worry about Ukraine. You'll hear a lot of hullabaloo in the media for the next maybe six weeks. The Russians will change the government and, get, and then get paid. The Vatican will transfer the gold from its reserves to the Church of Russia, and not to the Russian government. Only those who are clever will see what's happening. Then the Russian church will pay the army's expenses. And in the end, and in the end, those in Moscow will make maybe 10 to 20 billion dollars out of it. You have to realize that Keshe Foundation has very close advisors within the Vatican. Very close advisors. We hear, we know, we are informed continuously about what is and what is about to happen. A pope has never come to an embassy to ask to stop a war. <laughs> the, the Vatican has always created a war. And this one, and in this one, they accepted to pay for. The Russians were not prepared to pull their troops back. They said, we're here, we're going to show, and we're staying. And But you have to pay. You have to look. And if you want to find this out, you have to look at the balance sheets of the Russian parliament to see all the expenses that the Vatican will pay for in this war. Don't worry about Ukraine. It won't go beyond the boundaries of Ukraine to Romania and other places. The Catholic Church made a move to put pressure through Ukraine on the Russian church and to get it to bend. Ukraine went to bed with a superpower, both in religion and military forces. But you will not see the Americans or the Europeans interfering. They cannot do so because they already accepted defeat. And they obey the Vatican. The deed is already done. Now the boys will play and some of the old war machinery of Russian army will get used up. The Vatican will pay for every tank that you see on the street. And every plume of smoke you see coming out of the back of the Russian tanks. Know that the Vatican has already unwritten to pay for it all. It will not go beyond the Ukrainian border. The only problem is a lot of people will suffer from it. And those churches are supposed to bring healing and not create suffering. The second excerpt from the 421 Knowledge Seekers Workshop. The week before, in the 421 Knowledge Seekers Workshop, Mr. Kesh was asked, six months ago, Mr. Kesh said, we as Knowledge Seekers ended all wars. Now we are on the verge of a war that might lead to World War III. How would he explain what's happening in Ukraine? And the second question was, whose decision is it to kill people in Ukraine? Is Putin's soul deciding those who die? Mr. Kesh replied, let me explain something. We don't have a war in Ukraine. I explained this very, very clearly in the American teaching a couple of weeks ago. The USSR never died. Russia, as a U.S., as the, uh, what is it, United uh, 
is something like United States of Russian states, was never dissolved. The USSR was never dissolved. Each country went on their own, and they called themselves what they liked. But the nation and government of the USSR was never legally dissolved. Ukraine is still part of the USSR. It's not who decides. It's the USSR as a collective group of nations of what we call the bigger Russia have decided that they're going to keep their own property and their territory of Ukraine. This is a Vatican war. The Vatican tried to attack and take over the Russian church, which is even richer than Vatican, but they could not get into it. The state of USSR is the administrator and protector of the Russian Orthodox Church. The USSR is headed by Russia and includes 12 other satellite nations. The Russian church has asked all of them to protect the motherland's church. This is why all the nations together are sending troops into Ukraine. They're not just Russian troops, but a union of nations. Now, it's funny. The media does not want to bring that out. No, no, this, it's so crazy. America will never go to war, and they know they are just barking like a dog, as I call it. Russia has the right to protect the assets of the USSR. This is what they don't tell you in the public. Vatican is secretly financing this push, but there will never be a war. We said weeks ago that it is 99% chance that Russia will go into Ukraine to protect the motherland, USSR. Russia is not invading Romania nor Bulgaria. Russia is protecting its structure from the pressure and push of the Vatican through NATO. Uh, they were trying to open the back door to get the Church of Moscow or the Russian Orthodox Church to become assets of the Vatican. Get this clear. It doesn't matter what you hear in the media. Russia has not moved in to create a war. Russia has moved into its own territory, which belongs to it, as the USSR. Americans will bark, but they know that they are in the wrong. Europeans will bark, and they also know they are in the wrong. There won't be a war. This is not a war. This is a correction. If the Russians don't correct this now, later there will be other civil wars, maybe in Belarus or like what we saw in Chechnya and the others. Vatican is trying to push, using NATO as their slave. If NATO can put forces in Ukraine, then they can force Russia to give up the Orthodox Church, which is richer than Vatican. This is not a war. It will never be a war. Look at it this way. If America moves Marines from the state of California into another state, is that a war? The real war is what happened is what happened in Ottawa, Canada, in the last few days. That's the war of slavery by their servants. If you know geopolitics, America doesn't have the field forces to go into Ukraine unless they do high-level bombing, like what, like what they did in Yugoslavia. The Russian and USSR military forces have sent one bomb out of Allied forces on Ukraine and will flatten out New York. <coughs> Americans bring sanctions, no problems. <clears throat> we'll see the same pattern Russia used over the years. They will move in and change the government. Then they'll take all these leaders who started becoming rebel soldiers and opening up huge bank business bank accounts in America and Europe with the money they stole from the nation. Then after raping the nation, they'll escape to the West, where they have, been, they have also been paid. Or they'll get caught by the Russians and, take, and be taken to prisons in Siberia. I have been to one of these prisons, so I know what they are going to do with them. Then after 60, after 30 or 60 days or even six months, 
the Russians will withdraw. Uh, they, they install a pro-Moscow understanding of the Orthodox Church of Russia, and then the barking dogs will stop in 12 months' time. But there will never be a war. It cannot be a war. If Canada or Mexico try to take over California or some other state, the American government would move troops to protect its motherland. It's the same with the, with the USSR. This problem has been sitting there for many years. And now this is the second time it has come up. And now Russia has taken action to correct it. The intrusion by Vatican using military forces of NATO has caused this problem. But there is not going to be a war. This is the motherland protecting its child. Russians have spent trillions of dollars investing in Ukraine. Just because you let your child leave home doesn't mean you allow the others to rape them. The motherland has to protect its children. This is what we see now. This is the correction in the political dimension in Ukraine. For whatever reason, soldiers get killed. This is part of it. I have been very close to the affairs in Moscow and Russia and the politics in Kazakhstan for a long time. I don't support either policies or governments, but I stand very clear to see the reality and the truth of it very clearly, where it sits and how it sits. Ukraine today is still part of USSR. The Russian parliament and all the parliaments of the 13 satellite nations should have been dissolved, uh, should have dissolved the USSR. Then Moscow wouldn't still have the leadership it has today. But as it stands legally, even if it wasn't Putin, it would have been somebody else because the USSR still exists. You have to understand that Vatican did the same thing with China. All that uprising we saw in Hong Kong was due to financing by Vatican. They sent priests from Africa into China with bags of diamonds to sell in China and start a war to divide China, but China became aware of it. I know exactly what is happening because we are part of the peacemakers. We know what is happening with the governments of the world. All the mayhem and the pushes of, uh, of the West into Hong Kong was financed by the Rothschilds and the Vatican. About six years ago, one of these Rothschilds people penetrated the Keshe Foundation to destroy it. At that time, we had a big breakage in our work, and a number of knowledge seekers, a number of knowledge seekers disappeared. It was the same process that they are using now in Ukraine. We know this because one of the Iranian guys was connected to Rothschilds. They thought that because I was Iranian, they could break through. But we found out with the help of the intelligence systems. Go back to six to seven years ago, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, without mentioning any names. We worked with the Chinese government, and it was isolated to Hong Kong because they became aware of what was happening. Vatican wanted to split the Chinese state, but we and the Chinese state became aware of it, and the system kicked in and isolated it to Hong Kong. In the media, we saw the battles that they had for months. But now, do you hear anything? All those leaders who got paid by the Vatican are now in government prisons in China. We see the same thing now in Ukraine. The Vatican and the Rothschilds are killing themselves to destroy the peace so that they can have the control. But it is not happening. I have no worries because this is not a war. You just see a few dogs barking. But let's see what happens. In six months' time, when things are back to where they should be, we might see some of the people who got benefited by NATO going and jumping on the streets. They are what I call the free slavery of the Vatican inside. Otherwise, the majority of the people of Russia and Ukraine know exactly why the Russians are coming in. 
Just because you left the side gate of the fence in your garden open doesn't mean that the dogs can come in. You close the gate and keep the dogs out. It's as simple as that. They can bark behind the fence as much as they like. There shouldn't be a war unless something goes crazy with somebody in the West. I have been part of this process for 40 years, and I worked long enough with the Russians and Chinese to understand their point of view. Yeltsin once said, Mehran has slept in more beds of the presidential offices around Russia than I have. Then you know how close we are and how much we understand and understand the technology and the feeding of the nation. First of all, Europe doesn't have enough forces to match Russia. Secondly, if they push, Russia will close the gas pipelines. Western Europe needs that gas to survive, especially in the cold winter time. The Russians have chosen the best time to do it. If they close the pipelines, the prices will go up. The Germans and the rest will freeze, and their nations will go on the streets. It's very well planned and carried out. Western Europe relies on a gas pipeline from Russia for the heating and their life in the winter. They know what they are doing. The Americans can bark, but we won't see high-level bombing like what they did in Yugoslavia. A few field forces here and there, but Europe doesn't have that kind of military, especially with the corona, to stand a full invasion from Ukraine into Western Europe. It's not going to happen. Russia is just getting its child back home in a way which became a bit astray. They will shout and kick. But at the end, when the child's in danger, the mother will bring her home. The end. Okay. So that's that. Um, Also, uh, just so as I forgot to mention one more time uh, for those that want to sign up for new gen coin um, https colon slash slash www dot n u g e n c o i n dot com forward slash t a r r a m Tarong. So uh, we're going to go into the David Martin um, interview here now, coming up here. Persistent energy of humanity. And they would have taken that every time. David, I've uh, very much been looking forward to this interview, so thank you for taking the time to come sit down with me. Oh, it's a delight, Patrick. Thank you so much. So I want to maybe approach this a little bit differently than most interviews where we follow a trail and then get to a conclusion. Maybe we've got to do this more like a research paper because I know the the vastness of the trail. Um, Let's start with the conclusion. Um, and you know, wh- what is the conclusion? And then we're going to get into uh, the trail that got us to this conclusion. So when it comes to COVID, um, in, in the general context in the world, what the world believes about COVID, what the media is promulgating versus what you know, what's the conclusion there? The conclusion is we have a conflict of two fundamental worldviews about what humanity is. There is a view which is informed by the industrial evolution, which is now turned into the kind of AI and cyber view of the world, 
which essentially sees humanity as a series of predictable reductionist kind of almost computer simulatable experiences. And in that world, what you want to do is you want to get consensus thought. You want to get consensus behavior. You want to get consensus acquiescence. You want to get the world to actually fit into a formula because that's a view of humanity that says that the best humanity is domesticated. That's one worldview. Gotcha. There's another worldview, and that worldview says that the essence of humanity is this unbelievable interplay where the spark of consciousness that tunes us into the frequency called humanity gives us the ability to see life as an ever-unfolding mastery of learning from that which has come before us, adding our own experience and our own intellect and our own creativity to that experience, and then passing along something that is fundamentally nonlinear and in many instances transcendent. And so when we think about it, that, that one worldview is the worldview that can build a cathedral, where the cathedral has a dome that wasn't even contemplated when the cornerstone was first set, where you actually know that by virtue of building the thing you're building, Somebody else is going to look at it and go, ah, I wonder if you could do that with glass. And I wonder if you could do that with, with an arch. And I wonder if you could do that. And in fact, by the very act of living, we're innovating a more rich experience. So one worldview takes us down a progression towards consensus, monotony, and ultimately absolute replacement with a digital reality. Mm-hmm. And another worldview says, That's not what humanity is. That's what an industrial model of a regression-oriented control system is. And we are, in fact, living the fork in the road. So that's the cool thing about where we are. And this conversation is advocating for the cathedral. (laughs) Great. With COVID specifically. Yeah. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, there's a, there are forces at play that are trying to force this door, uh, you know, uh, behind door number one, basically down yeah. the former path that you described. Um, which, you know, uh, it's interesting to say it ends up in digital replacement. <laughs> um, but, uh, is there a, uh, in your mind, a conspiracy? Is there, is there some sort of a group of people who are trying, who are puppeteers trying to pull strings without people knowing about it to create certain, um, influences in humanity yeah. to shape it into the form of whatever it is they want it to be. No question. And and we, we need to take this one back a bit. But remember, let's start where we are right now. COVID doesn't exist. What do you mean by that? COVID is a series of clinical symptoms. Mm-hmm. This is a series of clinical symptoms that by definition cannot be defined. Mm-hmm. So the wonderful thing is they are at best a bit fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And to have COVID means that somebody decided that you have enough, whatever enough is, three, five, seven of the 11 to 15 approved symptoms. And once you have those, you have COVID. This is such a bizarre experience because we invented a diagnosis and then we said that it was causal, saying we have a virus that causes these symptoms. The problem is, 
we actually had the symptoms long before we had isolated a virus. And the virus exists in enormous numbers of the population with no symptoms. So the fundamental fallacy is we have empirically established there is no causal relationship out of the gate. There is no causal. If you can have a fragment of what we're calling SARS-CoV-2 and have perfectly healthy experience of living, Mm -hmm. and you can have all of the things we call COVID-19 and have no evidence of any of the fragments of the alleged causal agent. By definition, that is in fact the definition of conspiracy. When you willfully create, as the World Health Organization and the CDC did in February of 2020, when you willfully create a conflated statement where you know that the definition, by definition, is going to be a way to manipulate the population, right? The difference between positive cases and sick people. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't even know what those numbers are. When we were told, oh, there's a thousand COVID cases. Okay, is anybody sick? Well, nobody asked that question. They asked how many PCR tests were run. We have people filling the hospitals. Okay, great. We have people filling the hospitals. And crazy thing is I can find a hospital almost any day, anywhere on the planet. If I look, I can find a hospital that's ICU is full. So we go, ah, there's full ICUs. Great. Were there any alleged viral cases in those ICUs? These are questions we're not invited to ask because we're building an ontology around this illusion that says that we are going to use numbers and statistics to instill a state of terror and fear in a population to coerce that population into a behavior they would not otherwise accept. To what end? Like, why why would people want to do that? Well, it's once again, when we think about the worldview, if what I'm trying to do is accelerate a very hierarchical system where there is a few individual actors or groups who have the ability to impose their narrative onto a population and the population willingly embraces whatever the overlords tell them, there are an enormous number of people who actually are very, very happy to be in the position of that dictatorial view of saying we're going to impose upon And then they watch as the masses just acquiesce to whatever they're doing. I remind people frequently that if you go back and look at the great reveal that we saw in the Anthony Fauci emails, which were supposedly going to be the watershed moment, the thing that should be quite problematic is that a veterinarian, Peter Daszak, a veterinarian is the guy driving the narrative. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, you know, I'm I'm accused by many people of being somewhat of a polymath and I, you know, multidisciplinarian or whatever you want to call the the terminology. And, And I'm not saying that a veterinarian can't have insights into public health, but I have a problem with a veterinarian who is paid to create a narrative, who is paid to definitely divert funds during an illegal action that was going on. I have a problem with that veterinarian being chosen to be the one running the narrative where he's telling the world we need to make sure that people don't get suspicious about the laboratory in Wuhan, don't get suspicious about other things. 
it's somewhat ironic that the only person who's building the narrative is the person who was actually running all the ingredients that went into the narrative. And those kinds of things are the self-evident components of a story that says this was a manufactured narrative. And the manufacturing of the narrative, unfortunately, has a very long history. Is there um, a relationship, though, between a contagion and these set of symptoms called COVID-19. No. So, so all the, the viruses, and I know here we're going to get into the patent history and these things, yeah. et cetera. Um, so, uh, when someone shows up and there's a, you know, a, a, an apparent, uh, observable cause and effect, meaning, uh, here's a person who has the symptoms or develops the symptoms you know, the, of, of COVID-19. And there is a, these other people are also, you know, that they were around seem to be, uh, have uh, gotten it also through some sort of transmission. Yeah. Is that, is that, uh, there's no cause and effect there? No, this is the fallacy of re- regression. And I apologize in advance for everybody who hated math in the 10th grade or the 9th grade when you first saw that Y equals MX plus B formula. Mm-hmm. But here's the fallacy. Those same people were around a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. Who didn't get sick. And ironically, the person that allegedly got sick wasn't around somebody who was sick before. So once again, what we're doing is making the mistake of association and causation. And that's a fundamental problem. That's the epidemic of stupidity. What make the distinction association versus causation? Yeah, so so if I'm measuring a thing, there's a higher probability that I'm going to see the thing than if I'm not measuring it. We can't see it if you're not measuring. Well, there you go. (laughs) So so the funny thing is if I have a population, I don't care what the population is. If I have a population, I bring the population in and I say I'm going to measure blood pressure. You know what I'm going to find? There's going to be some people who have higher blood pressure and some people who have lower blood pressure. Some of them are going to know that they had it and some of them are not. Some of them are going to be symptomatic and some of them are not. But I'm going to only see that which I choose to measure. Now, the funny thing is we picked a measurement device in this particular instance, which was not specific to a pathogen. Right? There has not been a SARS test ever run in the population. The RT-PCR amplifies a fragment associated with what we think we've called SARS. So, you know, people think, oh, we tested for the virus. No, no one has ever tested for the virus. Hasn't been done. So what are they testing? They're testing for fragments of either RNA strands or protein strands associated with what we think would be produced by the virus. But the RT-PCR itself cannot measure what we think we're measuring. So we do what's called cycle threshold amplification. That's what the RT-PCR is about. It's about taking a sample and repeatedly amplifying all of the little fragments of, of nucleic acid sequences, we're amplifying those fragments anywhere from 25, 28, 35, 40 cycle thresholds. What that means is we're taking a tiny little speck of dust, we're reproducing it a whole bunch of times, and then we're trying to figure out whether the dust came from the carpet or from the sofa or from the chair or from the dog. Now, the good news is we can build a hunch after a certain number of times looking at the thing, we can build a hunch that goes, hey, it's probably from either the carpet or the sofa. But we can't tell you 
whether it was from the carpet or the sofa, because there's similarity between the fibers in both of those. And because all we're measuring is this tiny little subfragment of it, we can get to it's probably a furniture thing. And that's what happens in RT-PCR. We're amplifying this fragment to the point where we think we probably have an association. But this is a disease based on the manipulation of statistics. So why not based on the existence of a thing? And the thing, remember, there's, a, by the way, a very simple thing that could be done. Every research facility that has ever researched human tissue has samples of human tissue that predate November 2019. I don't care where you are. I ran labs. We kept, we kept tissue samples from people for 8, 10, 15 years. If we wanted to solve this question immediately, you know what we could do? We go to a tissue bank and say, let's take 100 samples from prior to November of 2019. Let's run those samples and let's see if there's any SARS-CoV-2 in those samples. You'll conspicuously notice why the research project that I just described has never been done. Why hasn't it been done? We'd find it. Yeah. And if we found it, then we'd have a hard time selling the story that we had a new disease. We'd have a hard time selling the story that we have a new pathogen. And the reason why we'd have a hard time selling the story is because it is, in fact, a story that's falsifiable with a very, very, very simple so who's but not done exercise. So maybe two questions. Number one, so why did we choose uh, you know, the PCR test in the first place? You know, the experts, are they in on it? Of course, they have the patent on it, so yes. Okay. There's a big financial interest in selling a test that you can run persistently and have no accountability for what you're testing. It's a fabulous money grab. Wow. All right. And then number two, what's their, what's the end game here? What's the agenda to say that, hey, we're going to, you know, basically create this work of fiction. Yep. Get everybody in fear and terror. Cause behavior. Um, and you know, there's the censorship going on. I mean, you, it's kind of easy to observe these things, but could there be a conspiracy on this scale? It's, it's not a conspiracy. It's actually, remember, conspiring. If we go back and get to the lexicon of this, right? Conspiring is when one or more parties get together to create an act, whatever the act is, which is intended to either hide or harm. That's kind of the core of, of what conspiracy is. The problem with this one is it's actually stated in public. So you can't quite call it a conspiracy. So when Peter Daszak in 2015 at the National Academy of Sciences made the statement, we need to create universal acceptance of a universal pan-influenza, pan-coronavirus vaccine. We need the media to create the hype. And we need to use the hype to our advantage because investors will follow where they see profit at the end of the process. He said this publicly? He said that publicly. It's been published. It was published in the National Academy's proceedings in 2016. Now, what makes that problematic is the following. According to the World Health Organization, the coronavirus SARS problem was eradicated in 2008. Now, you heard the date that I just said. 2008. We had that little camel fart in the Middle East, the MERS, which was a few hundred people that got terribly sick and several people died from what we called MERS. But SARS was declared eradicated. So why in 2015 
with Peter Daschick, the veterinarian, the guy hanging out with Anthony Fauci's money that he was diverting through Eco Health Alliance to Wuhan. Why would he say that sentence? We need the media to create the hype. We need to use the hype to our advantage, and investors will follow if they see profit at the end of the process. That's a quote. Why, why, why would, he say, would he say that publicly if it wasn't not a conspiracy? It's not a conspiracy. There's nothing hidden. This is an, a willful act of inhumanity. This is a willful act of bioweapons and terrorism. Because if you're telling me as a veterinarian who's funding the weaponization of coronavirus, if you're telling me that you're telling the public that we are going to create a hype event, is that Dave being conspiratorial? That's not a conspiracy. That's actually sociopathic behavior. And we need to be really clear on this. There's a group of us who find ourselves that we at least think we've self-classified into rational. And and I'm being quite polite about that because I'm not sure sometimes that I, in fact, am. I try to at least have a grounding with opening assumptions where I go, I can at least let you know the foundation of my madness. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's an ethical thing to do, if nothing else. But if you stop and think about what I've just said, you have the guy who's getting paid to weaponize a virus. Mm -hmm. That guy saying we need investors to follow where they see profit at the end of the process. Does that sound like a public health thing to you? Well, my I guess what I would say is. Why would he want to be so forthright in public to something that's so obviously abhorrent? I mean, so so Plato has a very interesting answer to your question. In the Republic, Plato talks about the audacity of what he referred to as temple robbers. The story that he tells in the Republic is actually quite fun. And it basically says that let's keep it really simple. Let's make it simple for today's conversation. If a person killed another person, we'd say, oh, that's bad. That's homicide or it's murder or whatever else. And we we have kind of a righteous indignation and we'd be consternated about the fact that that had happened. Okay, so if that person killed like three people, we'd start going, what if there's like mommy issues there or daddy issues or neglect or abuse or this, that, or the other thing? And we'd still be upset about three or five or ten people being killed and we'd go, that's still unfortunate. But there's a threshold where we stop being met with abhorrence and we start being met with fascination. Like once we get to the Charles Manson level, we start going, that's kind of an interesting character, isn't it? Right? We're not taking the sum of all of the deaths and going, I would be shocked with that one, shocked with that one, shocked with that one. What we do is we actually numb ourselves to the fact that we're talking about the eradication of human life. And at a certain threshold, we get fascinated by it. We make movies about it. We write books about it. We go, isn't this a fascinating story of inside the killer's mind? Well, what is that? That is actually a numbing of our consciousness. It's a searing of our sense of humanity. Where if I can get to the, now I'm going to have genocide. I'm going to kill a million people. People sit there actually trying to reverse engineer. Well, how would you schedule that many execute? Like, that's a practical issue. I wonder if they have like a software program. I wonder if there's an SAP program for mass murdering. Like, 
we even lose the fact that people are being killed and we enter into this bizarre obsession with the mechanics of the how it was done. Now think about a population of 300 million people or 3 billion people. Our consciousness doesn't have the ability to enter into the sentence that Peter Daszak said in 2015. We are going to unleash a pathogen on the world. And investors are going to follow for profit. To what end? For profit? Is well, profit the end? there's two ends, as I've stated many, many times. One end is there are a lot of people lining their pocket with this thing. I mean, remember that to create the illusion of this response, the medical countermeasure response that we call Operation Warp Speed, the United States government contracted ATI, not a pharmaceutical company, a Defense Department contractor whose other contracts included misinformation and propaganda. So you think the government is a part of the conspiracy? I don't think it's a part of the conspiracy. Or the, if it's not a conspiracy, but part of the agenda. No question. If, if I were going to, I don't know, if I was going to go out and make a vaccine, don't you think I'd actually hire a company that made vaccines? Mm-hmm. Would I, would I hire a propaganda specialist out of South Carolina? They're the main contractor. Operation Warp Speed went through one defense contractor. Does that make sense to you? No. No. And would it make sense to anybody? These things are so egregious and in public that this was, in fact, an effort by the individuals who are running this particular racket to show that even the government has been manipulated. We actually don't have the illusion of what we think of as a government that's in control. As a matter of fact, it is such an egregious abuse of the agency of government where we have somebody who has the ability to have the audacity of violating federal laws being the architect of a narrative that goes into the September publication from the World Health Organization, September 2019, that said that we need to create a worldwide experience of an intentional or accidental release of a respiratory pathogen published in September of 2019, and the exercise had to be completed by September 2020, and the milestone of completion for that exercise was the development of a universal vaccine platform. Who's the author of that? World at Risk. It's the Global Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. Anthony Fauci sits on that board. Uh, Dr. Elias from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sits on that board. And Dr. Gao from the Chinese CDC sits on that board. And this is all, this is published. It's in the public domain. Yep, I'm quoting from it. Wow. Wow. And so anybody who wants to tell me that this is some sort of deep-seated, deep throat, follow the money, and you'll get into these seedy underbellies of secret handshakes and everything else, no, it isn't. It's written right in front of our faces, and it's done to do a very simple thing in those two worldviews we talked about at the beginning. If I want the population to ultimately accept my digital reality, 
I have to make sure the cognitive dissonance is so complete that you stop trusting your own brain. And guess what they've done? Exactly that. So now, a couple of, of things. Um, just circling back to one of the, uh, I want to close the loop on something yeah. we talked about earlier. This whole idea of the contagion and saying, well, you know, how come everybody doesn't get it? It's that you know, it, traditional germ theory is, you know, it's a matter of immune response versus the pathogen. And you know, there are people who are more vulnerable of the people whose immune systems will fight it off without developing the disease COVID-19. So wouldn't that be an explanation as to why, um, you know, why there could be a contagion, a set of symptoms that are associated with that contagion and some people would get it and some people get it mildly, some people would die and everything in between? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderfully logical question to ask. And if we were serious about that in this particular case, then the clinical trials for the intervention would have actually measured either infection or transmission. And by the way, the FDA has a published standard, which was last updated in 2014, which actually defined what a vaccine clinical trial primary endpoint was. And guess what? It had to do with infection or transmission. Guess what we haven't done? those two things on this particular vaccine. We changed the rules of what, no, we even changed the rules of what a vaccine clinical trial was. And we changed those rules because we knew that this had nothing to do with infection or transmission. And remember, people have to get back to the association. We, we want to live in a simple world where we can tie a nice bow on the top of a thing and go, oh, you know, Frank died of a heart attack. Oh, he's a smoker for 20 years. Yeah, that's what happens to smokers. Right? We're living in this kind of 12th century morality play where, where we're told that, you know, that the dragon is the reason why the bad thing happened or whatever the myth story is. We don't ask the question, oh, was it really the smoking that killed him? We make the association mistake of saying that because something was associated, therefore it's causal. And we love this obsession with causality because we want to believe in a predictable world where we know what the inputs are and we know what the outputs are. Does that start sounding like the digital world? Right, the digital. I needed, I need the inputs to match the outputs. And we had to manufacture this crazy concept of healthy people being asymptomatic carriers. Well, how did we have to come up with that story? By the way. In the 1900s, early 1900s, 1904, 1905, there was a really beautiful case in California, Juhovi Williamson, which was actually the Supreme Court of California ruling that you could not quarantine a healthy population. There's a Supreme Court decision in California. And who was the first state to quarantine a healthy population? Like New York and California? And you sit there going, the rules are not. Eh, maybe kind of suggestions. This is a pr- Supreme Court decision, right? And in a Supreme Court decision, that's very self-evidently clear. You don't quarantine a healthy population. The reason why was because it was deemed both unconstitutional and unethical to do that. Now, let's get back to this association causation problem. If all of the facts stand in the way of the story I'm trying to tell you, right, the inconvenience of I got a bunch of sick people that I don't see the fragment in. So the causal thing seems to fall apart there. And then I have a bunch of people where I actually seem to be seeing that they, in fact, are sick, but they don't have the pathogen. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to tell you as the 
fear campaign gets built. I'm trying to say SARS causes COVID. SARS causes COVID. COVID comes from SARS. Right? Every causal statement that's out there. The problem is all of the evidence says that that's project. All of it. And add to that, the only way we can maintain the campaign of terror is remember back to Peter Daszak's conversation. We need the media to create the hype to get the public to accept a pan-coronavirus vaccine. They told us what this was. This was a marketing program. Every time you saw a face mask, every time you saw a sticker on the floor, social distance, this foot, that six-foot social distancing. You know where that actually came from? A Petri dish study in a hospital where they took a very, very sick patient and they set Petri dishes at different distances from the patient. And then they actually measured what grew in the Petri dishes. They never validated that it came from the patient. They just actually had Petri dishes. And then they said, how far out did the Petri dish grow weird, crazy things? And it turns out that at six feet, they still had crazy things growing. And after six feet, they couldn't find the crazy things growing. So they came to the conclusion in one study, which, by the way, under the Federal Trade Commission Act, is halfway to making a recommendation. So you can't even make a recommendation about six feet. But if you go back and you look at that study, they had a tiny problem. They never showed that any of the things that grew in the Petri dish were infected. We don't know. And I'm not saying that six feet is safe or 12 feet is or 20 feet is. What I am saying is that when you're creating an illusion, you actually don't want these questions to be either asked or answered because this is not the point. The point is we're going to create a visual cue we're going to create a behavioral clue. We're going to create all these cues. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tell the population to be afraid all the time. All the time. Be afraid where you go out, where you stand, where you this, where you that. I'm going to create a fear system in which you cannot escape the fear. You can't go anywhere without seeing the disc on the floor. You can't go anywhere without seeing the mask sign on the door. You can't go anywhere without seeing the message. And they told us in 2015 what this was for. This had nothing to do with a pathogen. It had everything to do with the profit. Looking into your background, you've got my vote for world's most fascinating man. Well, it's just the, 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 your use of phrase uh, or the term uh, polymath earlier, but there's so many areas um, of interest that you have uh, and, and have applied them, not just at the personal interest, but they're, they're applicable in the world. But, you have a, uh, a perspective and it followed the trail that nobody else has. You know, and I've been looking at this, this COVID yeah. thing for a long time. Uh, insofar as looking at intellectual property. Yeah. So just for a moment, talk about your background in, in intellectual property and kind of your management of these databases. And how did you start to get on this trail that we're going to get into right now? So let's let's answer that at the humanity level first. The humanity level is that we only have one asset defined by right in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution provides every human being in America only one right, and that is the right to your creativity. That is the only right we're granted. And I think a lot of people don't know that because they don't read something silly like the Constitution. <laughs> But if you look at that right, 
you realize that we have defiled that right since 1786. We say that everybody has equal access to the right to their creativity. And then we build all of our social systems, we build all of our finance systems, we build all of our banking systems, we build everything to make sure no one has access to it. And so my motivation around intellectual property came from a broken social contract that started in 1786. And if we go back and read what the Constitution actually says, that exchange for the promotion of the useful arts and sciences, meaning that the contribution, back to my cathedral analogy, right? by offering into the public your creativity, you should receive the benefit for having made that contribution. The ultimate democratization of wealth, the ultimate democratization of creativity is that contract, which is you do something of value And society rewards you with the right to benefit from that. Well, that's been erased. And it was erased many times over. And it was erased principally under the Uniform Commercial Code, which actually put, and the tax code when we invented the tax system. But essentially what we said was that the the right defined by creative inputs was in fact something that could be leaned as an asset. It could be used in banking. It could be used in tax. It could be used in all kinds of other ways to extract wealth from a person. But we never built the system ever to actually let humans actually receive the benefit. So in 1998, after doing 10 years of treaty restricted tech transfer all over the world, which is a very long sentence that I'm brushing over a huge thing. But in 1998, we built the system that would allow a bank to look at the creativity of an individual and see the financial value of that creativity such that the bank could lend money based on that creativity. And that's what my company started doing. Now, when you do that, what you have to do is you have to establish a couple interesting things. And I simplified into three really fundamental questions. First, do you have what you say you have? Now, the reason why that's an interesting question is most of us, when we think that we've been creative, we don't bother to check on whether or not somebody else had the same impulse. Because we're pretty sure in our own little God complexes that we probably came up with it. So we don't usually look in the rearview mirror and go, oh, there's 10 other people that came up with the same thing. We actually go, oh, it's my idea, without doing any real responsible assessment. And so... The first step is, do you actually have what you say you have? The second step is, does anybody else care? One of my favorite examples of this is the faster than the speed of light engine. That's really patented. An engine that flies faster than the speed of light. Now, the cool thing about that is it might work. The bad thing about that is we haven't found any materials that can actually be used to implement the thing. So the cool thing is you can get an engine. You just can't build the vehicle that the engine lives in. The other cool thing about that invention is you have to figure out the halfway point of your flight really precisely, like to the angstrom. Because it turns out if you're accelerating to the speed of light, you have to start braking a long way ahead. Because the great news is getting the speed of light might be easy. But making sure you hit the brakes before you arrive at the speed of light kind of has an existential problem like smashing into Mars because we flew there really fast, but we forgot to put the brakes on halfway through the flight. That would be a bad idea. 
But the does anybody else care is actually asked and answered in, in the context of not do you care because you came up with the idea, but does anybody else care is, is there a context in which the thing that you were creative about actually has an expression that somebody else has shown evidence works? And so that's the second piece. And then the third piece is if you can't use it, and this is the tricky one, is what you're doing something someone else can use? In other words, what's the recycling or the refurbishing or the reconstruction of your creativity such that it could have value after you don't have it anymore? Because those are the three questions a bank has to ask. Do you have it? That's an important one. Does anybody else care? That's an important one. That's the value question. And then the, can somebody else use it if you're not using it is the collateral question. That's the, that's the fundamental of banking. So in 1998, we built the system which uses linguistic genomics to answer those three questions. It's really cool. The bad news is when we digitized the patent record the very first time, we found a bunch of evidence of violations of biological and chemical weapons treaties. Just by, by virtue of looking through what was there. Yeah. You weren't we, necessarily for that. No, no, no. The cool thing about my worldview is I, I like to enter into every experience of my life with the knowingness that there is something to find out and the unknowingness of, and I have no idea what it is. So one of the things we found was a bunch of stuff that looked like it was violating biological and chemical weapons treaties. And that was really problematic when we started seeing that a bunch of what were called pathogens, viruses, bacteria, various toxins, seemed to be showing up in things where they didn't belong. My favorite example is the blast-resistant rocket-propelled grenade that is actually patented to deliver a payload of biological agents. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but I can see a syringe and I can kind of go, yeah, that's probably the way I would deliver a, a biological agent to somebody. When it's on a rocket-propelled grenade, I'm not sure I can quite believe that that wasn't meant to be an agent of war. Right. Something about the rocket-propelled grenade. I don't know. I have a, I have a cognitive problem. With that. And, and the, the treaties um, prohibit the, even the development yeah. of such things. Yeah. Like, any any research into, development of, perfection of, commercialization of, anything else. Disagreeing not to look at it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of a big deal. And that's kind of the end of the Second World War. We, we said that is a really bad thing, and we don't want the world to have that again. But here we're finding all these weird patents, and I started looking at these weird funding patterns. And remember, Anthony Fauci started NIAID in 1984. What is that? The National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. Mm-hmm. He started in 1984, and it seems like as he started in his role of the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease, the bioweaponization of pathogens also seemed to start going through the roof. And that was an alarm bell for me, because if you're running an NIH program, the National Institutes of Health program, you're running an NIH program to allegedly help, you know, cure disease or help with, you know, longstanding disease. And then I'm starting to see these weird things showing up in bioweapons programs and military programs and everything else. I'm asking a question. Now, I wasn't looking for the bad guy. I just was looking at this information going, there's a self-evident problem. Mm-hmm. It seems that NIAID is weaponizing a pathogen model. Anthony Fauci hides in every public statement behind the fact that he was trying to find a way 
to naturally develop an HIV vaccine. So Anthony Fauci's cover story is I'm trying to make a vaccine vector that allows me to deliver HIV vaccines. And that's the argument he stood behind all along. Problem is, if I'm doing that, I probably wouldn't be getting DARPA funding. I wouldn't get DARPA funding? Yeah. So explain what DARPA is, please. The Defense Advanced Research Program, um, which is this kind of black ops of the science and technology community funded by the military complex to actually come up with novel ways to defend the country or attack others or do whatever you want to do. And you start saying this, this alliance between the defense funding mechanisms and allergy and infectious disease. Strange fit pills. Well, I'm willing to accept that there's a lot of weird things in the world. I, like, I don't have to make sense out of things. But when I see patterns start to emerge, where I start seeing money going to the same place, or I'm starting to see dual funding, or I'm seeing after 9-11 and then 9-28, which nobody remembers, the anthrax, you know, biological weapon um, program that took place a couple weeks after the towers fell. And nobody seems to remember that we actually had a bioterrorism moment in America called the anthrax scare, which, by the way, we shut down all of our schools. No, we didn't. Um, we shut down all our small. No, we didn't shut down all our small businesses. We we all had to wear face masks because it was an aerosolized powder. No, we didn't do that. All right, you see what I'm doing? Yeah. Like you're looking at the evidence and you're going, oh, hold on a minute. We actually had a powder form pathogen called anthrax. We sent it through the mail. We weaponized that, and we did none of our interventions that we're doing for a thing that we don't actually know really even might exist. Mm-hmm. Right. Pretty, pretty crazy. But we started watching, and in 2001, a very alarming thing happened. We saw the 1999 grant that was given to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where coronavirus was specifically selected as a malleable recombinant technology platform that could be altered so that it could target human tissue with greater virulence. And I'm going to tell you the sentence that bothered me in the patent. This is a, a, a patent that exists. Yeah. Good. We want an infectious, replication-defective virus. What does that mean? Yeah. It's a good question to ask. So we want to make the virus more capable of making you sick. That's the infectious part. But we don't want it to be able to leave you and go to somebody else. So we want an infectious, replication-defective virus. If I'm putting the happiest thought I have in the universe on this, I'd go, okay, I get it. It's like giving somebody radiation where you want the radiation to affect them, but you don't want them to go to the bathroom, you know, pee into the urinal and then have, you know, radiation hitting the next person who comes to the urinal. I get it. You can, you can have a thing where you want the effect to be limited to that person, right? And you don't want the effect to spread to other people. I'm totally down with that. But when you do that with a virus and you actually then say, I'm not just going to target the, that individual, but I'm going to make the virus more capable of targeting human lung epithelium. It says this in the patent. Yeah. And what year was that published? That patent was published in 2002. And this is before the 2003 SARS outbreak. Anybody have a math problem with the calendar problem I just said? Right. We've lived, allegedly, if we 
you know, if we subscribe to a viral model of the universe, which I'm not saying I do, but I'm saying if you do, we've been living with coronaviruses in the general circulation for millennia. We actually build at UNC Chapel Hill and collaborating with researchers across the world, we build an infectious replication defective coronavirus. We make it target the human lung. And a year later, we have SARS. Well, now what's wrong with the chronology of what I just said? We say we're talking good. And, and, and remember, I'm the one criticizing causality. So I'm going to hang myself on my own cross. I am not saying, I am not saying that the coronavirus outbreak in 2003 in Southeast Asia was in fact, you know, UNC Chapel Hill going to attack China. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there's a math problem on the calendar, which is coronavirus wasn't harming the human population with any severity at all. We build a recombinant replication defective coronavirus. And not only does it come out in 2003, but do you remember that it was supposed to be a pandemic that never got off the ground? Right. Right. We were all supposed to live in fear of this thing. But the agency of fear didn't work because we actually didn't get enough people sick. Now, that actually sounds like replication defective. That's another piece of a puzzle. Right. I've built a pathogen. It's supposed to be this scary uber pathogen. And it turns out it works. It makes people really sick, makes some people die, but it doesn't transmit very well. Why would why would anybody want to patent a virus, you know, in such a way that could do such bad things? Are they claiming it was a vector for a vaccine? That's yep. what okay. Yep. So they that it had positive applications. This this is one of those beautiful Oppenheimer moments. I didn't know I was building a bomb. Okay. Maybe, maybe you didn't. Maybe you're a genius when it comes to recombinant you know, DNA and RNA work. Maybe you're a genius there and an absolute idiot over here going, I wonder if this could ever go wrong. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. I don't care if it's the problem. If that's a problem that you have, I'm not going to give you hundreds of millions of dollars of making something more dangerous. And we didn't stop with that, right? In 2013, when a bunch of miners got sick in China, and they got all the COVID symptoms, by the way, all of them, in 2013, all the COVID symptoms, and there was a thing called the Wuhan Institute of Virology virus that was allegedly isolated from these six miners. The first thing that we did was we actually built that virus in UNC Chapel Hill. Once they got Why to- would you do that? Now, now, now we know that this thing allegedly was associated with these guys that got really, really sick. Why would you take that virus and then build, are you ready for this, a chimeric synthetic alternative that increases the pathogenicity of the ACE2 receptor and the S1 spike protein, the two things that make the SARS virus the SARS virus? Why on earth would you go, oh, I've got a great idea here? The great idea is we found a version of this thing that makes people far more sick, and they get a lot sicker a lot faster so let's go ahead and make recombinant synthetic chimeric alternatives of that what can you explain what that is uh well yeah that's actually frankenstein's lab that is sitting down in a laboratory and going i have found something that has taken the 
anonymous little vector, you know, that wonderful thing that we were supposed to say might be used for a vaccine, might be used for HIV. Now I'm taking a thing that I knew made people sick, not an innocent little viral fragment that I could use for a vaccine. This was a willful act where we knew that this would make people sick. And then we decided to take that and make it more lethal. And we did that. Yeah. In a lab. And the cool thing about this is Ralph Barrick, in his response to a uh, international journalist inquiry into this topic. Who's Ralph Barrick? Ralph Barrick is the, the master kind of architect of coronavirus at UNC Chapel Hill. But the funny thing about him is that when he responded to a request from the Financial Times, I'm going to go ahead and say it because screw them, they, they, they need to be on the record for this. When he responded to an interview request for the Financial Times, he actually said that what he was doing was, in fact, helping civilization. And thousands of people were going to be saved because of his vaccine work that he was going to enable. Conveniently leaving out the fact that in 2016, he published a paper saying, and I quote, SARS coronavirus is poised for human emergence. Meaning? Meaning that he had built the bomb. Not meaning that, that and it's out there and, and we might. No. I, because I, if you read what he actually wrote in the paper, and, you know, a lot of people who do nothing but read the headlines go, oh, well, he's just warning us that this might be coming. It sounds like, yeah, it'd be nice if it wasn't a synthetic chimeric alteration of the thing, which is, not natural, right? Voice for human emergence hardly is we've built it in a lab. And we're supposed to believe a story that this came out of the bat cave, even though as of this date, which is the end of July 2021, we haven't found a single bat that even has a remote resemblance of this particular pathogen. But we're still supposed to believe it came out of a bat cave. We just haven't yet found the bat cave, but we have found, allegedly, thousands of cases all over the world where it exists in people, but we can't find it in a bat cave, even though we know the bat cave, where it came from in 2013, when it was natural. When it was natural, we could find it. We can't seem to find this one. So uh, just as a quick interjection. Is it conclusive in your mind this is this is a, a man-made, not a natural? Absolutely. Okay. So just that's not even a question. It's not even a question. It's it's not even a question because the published evidence is all in patent records and is all in scientific proceedings. There is no question at all that this did not come from a bat and a pangolin walking into a Chinese bar and getting it on one night. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let me ask this, because um, now we're in this patent world, uh, and there seems to be this series of patents that are filed. So the first thing is that yeah, it seems sort of um, uh, like you know, unbelievable is that you can patent viruses. Yeah, so that does seem unbelievable. But you can't patent something that occurs naturally, right? I mean, like like you can't patent gold, or you can't patent you know, it's like you know, these things are patentable. So how do you patent a virus? Well, you pay off the patent office. And it's pretty easy to do that. You, you actually literally pay them fees to the point where you pay them enough, they give you the patent. Give me an example. Well, the CDC's patent on SARS coronavirus in 2003. The CDC has a patent. Oh, yeah. They got it in 2003. They, in 2003? Yeah. 
on a SARS coronavirus. Yeah. The same thing we're dealing with today. Well, according to them, no. It's a very uber different thing that allegedly all happened in 2019. There's a tiny problem with that story. Mm-hmm. It's not true. That That's the part of the story that's a little bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. In 2003, April of 2003, the CDC filed a patent on SARS coronavirus. Um, and, and I have been criticized all over the world by legal experts who take issue with what I'm about to say. And the problem is legal experts, A, don't read, which is the first problem, and B, don't understand genomics, which is the second problem. So besides those two problems, they're probably right. But here's where those problems create a problem. The patent application that the CDC filed in April of 2003 was rejected as unpatentable by the patent office, not once, but twice. Under what grounds? Under what was called Section 102, 35 U.S. Code Section 102, which is a rejection based on the fact that the information was already in the public domain. Did you hear what I just said? It was already in the public domain, meaning that people already had the information that the CDC was trying to patent, and it was public. Now, here's where we have to take a little diversion to the press Official press statements by the CDC. We're filing a patent on SARS coronavirus so the world can do research on it. That's their statement. They made the public statement that that's their justification for getting their patent. Here's a tiny problem with that story. About the same time they were making that statement, they were paying the patent office to keep their application secret. They didn't want the world to know what they were publicly saying they wanted the world to know. That's a little tiny problem. Like, literally, they were writing a check to the patent office to keep it secret when they were telling the world, we're trying to make it publicly available. I don't know if you have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. You don't need a patent to make something publicly well, available. Hey, it was already published, which was the evidence that the patent office used to reject it, and they rejected it twice, and then they paid a fee to get it appealed. And the cool thing about the appeal is they actually told, and and I wish I could make this up, but they actually wrote on the side of their application to have the examiner backdate their filing so that the story I'm telling you doesn't look as damning. But they wrote it in pen on the side of the document that they submitted to the patent office. Why would they do that? I mean, you know... Let's see. I mean, if you're an ethical, upstanding, moral citizen, is there any problem with, I don't know, Violating federal law by backdating a federal document that has a statutory provision that says when you have to do a thing? Could that be a problem? I, feel, I think, yeah. It feels like it could be a problem. And so, so they get a patent on SARS coronavirus. Now, here's where all of the legal experts love to lose their with what I'm about to say. They say, can't patent nature. The Supreme Court held that twice. In 1980, they held it in a very famous case about modifying a bacterium. And they held it again in 2013. And Judge Clarence Thomas in 2013 was very clear on saying the patent office is long held. That's his words. Long held. You cannot patent nature, which is what pretty much everybody knows. What the CDC did was they altered the only issued claim of their patent. And the only issued claim says that they patented not the virus, but they patented a sequence identification number, sequence identification number one. That's the only thing that it says in the claim. Mm-hmm. And if you only read that, you'd go, oh, so there's what's called a hand of man test in patenting nature, which is if you can show that a person had to do effort 
on nature to do the thing, then you can get the patent. But you can't get the patent on nature. And here's the tiny little problem. If you actually look at what sequence ID1, which is the thing that's actually listed in the claim, if you go back and look at the defined term, what is sequence ID1? It is the DNA for SARS coronavirus, the natural thing. It's not any hand of man. It's not any human manipulation. They actually misled the entirety of the world by the cunning use of a definition of a term that no one went back and looked at and goes, okay, what sequence ID1? And it turns out it's the whole DNA sequence. And here's where the problem comes in in 2019 and early 2020. I say CDC has a patent on SARS. That's a true statement because they do. Mm-hmm. Everybody else comes along and says, well, but SARS-CoV-2 is a subclade, which means a subcomponent of the general classification of SARS coronavirus. That's a true statement almost. But to get to the subclassification, you have to pass through the classification. CDC owns SARS. SARS-CoV-2 is a subclass of the thing CDC owns. And at no point has anybody bothered to go back, as we have, and gone to the published sequence of SARS-CoV-2 and found that, in fact, the CDC's patent is the anchor of SARS coronavirus that is, in fact, fully present in the SARS-CoV-2. Now, there are modifications in the SARS-CoV-2, so technically we could say, well, they're distinct Mm -hmm. because they are. But if you go back and look at the fragments of the gene sequence that are distinct, it turns out all of those have already been published. So that's in the public domain. So the fact of the matter is CDC got the patent on, on SARS coronavirus. The patent was awarded in 2007, but its priority, meaning the date they sought the protection, was April of 2003. And the thing we're calling SARS-CoV-2 today is, in fact, the CDC's patent plus published modifications. In other words, the hand of man, because man has been doing the stuff men and women, but I'm using the legal term, so please don't get upset with it. When I say hand of man, that's a legal statement, not a Dave's being a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but but that's, the, that's, the, that's the clause, and by that definition, the CDC's patent is in fact still expressed inside of what we're calling SARS-CoV-2. The whole regime after April 23rd of 2003 from April 3rd, 2003, to the birth of SARS-CoV-2 in December of 2019, we tracked over 4,100 patents, 4,100 patents, specifically to the treatment detection and vaccinations for SARS-CoV. 4,100? How can... 4,100. I mean, what types of things are they patenting? Vaccines, drugs, treatments, all sorts of other things. So everybody who pretends like who could have seen it coming? I don't know. 4,100 different people, companies, organizations, institutions, all of whom have a very common link back to the same funding sources. So Operation Warp Scenic was not at, uh, didn't start at, uh, you know, zero and then, you know, nah. go forward. This, this has been in the works for a long time. No. Nah. It's been around since 2010. So there was a whole family of, of, businesses that got started after the Asian outbreak in 2003, 
a bunch of them were equity funded. A bunch of those equity fundings collapsed without getting follow on financing. So there's a kind of a big death knell to a lot of the SARS treatment and vaccine companies in 2008. For some reason, kind of everything fell off the rails in 2008. It may have had something to do with the fact that the World Health Organization said that um, SARS coronavirus had been eradicated. So they did make that statement. If the horse is off the track, betting on the horse feels like a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, am I going out on a limb here? Does that that sound (laughs) like a conspiracy theorist? I, I would say that if the raison d'etre for the entire research program and all the funding is declared eradicated, it would be very hard to go and ask somebody else for money. Tiny little problem. In 2008, the Defense Department picked up what the public funding left off. On, on coronavirus? Yeah. The Defense Department took it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... It sounds like a public health crisis that accidentally came out of Wuhan bat cave, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty solid yeah. ground to stand on. That This was all just just an accident that happened in the wet market in Wuhan in December of 2019. It feels like it to me. Are there any other smoking guns along the way between 2008? Oh, yeah, nothing like the fact that the company Moderna, which, by the way, had never produced prior to November of 2019, had never produced a safe and effective anything. That, how did they get tapped in? Oh, that's an interesting question. How did they get tapped with their 141 patents funded by National Institutes of Health and NIAID? And how was it possible that they were in correspondence with University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in November of 2019? Remember, this is a month before the bat and the pangolin walked into the wet market bar, right? Remember that? Yeah. So a month before, it makes perfect sense why they were given the RNA sequence for the spike protein for coronavirus a month before there was an outbreak. Who gave it to them? University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, under the auspices of NIAID. Wow. So, so Anthony Fauci delivered to a company that had never built anything successfully, the formula for Operation Warp Speed vaccines, a month before there was even an outbreak. Is there a relationship with Moderna and Fauci? Oh, yes. Was that? They only exist based on Fauci's funding. So Moderna is a very insidious story, and this one's going to creep you out because the story that Moderna doesn't tell you mm-hmm. is a story I'm going to tell you. Okay. In 2010, when Moderna got started, Moderna was 10 years already in operation. We just didn't hear of them because they weren't a company at that time. They were a National Science Foundation grant. Mm -hmm. The National Science Foundation grant is entitled Darwinian Chemical Systems. Mm -hmm. Just sit with that. Let it just settle for a moment because I'm going to give you the, oh, that's interesting. Darwinian Chemical Systems was a grant funded by National Science Foundation to figure out whether you could get RNA to write into the genome of a single-celled organism to modify it, to actually see if you could recreate human life in a post-extinction event. Oh. could even think of that. Well, not only a bunch of people, but the best news is that's where the company was born. This same company that tells you that RNA can never, ever, ever get to your DNA, that company 
was founded based on 10 years of NSF research showing how RNA writes into the genome of an organism. Now, once again, I'm told, oh, Dave, but, but the lipid nanoparticle that wraps around the RNA that we're injecting into people can't get back into the DNA based on the evidence of nothing but 10 years of showing that you can do it. And the best part about the Darwinian chemical systems grant that got started, and I love this, by the way, I, I love letting people know that, you know, people go, well, there can't be anybody that's that evil, right? Like that they would actually come up with a thing that was a computer code that could be injected into a single cell organism to restart the evolutionary process after we've killed off the world. That probably sounds like a happy bedtime story, doesn't it? Mm. That sounds like, I know, I know before I go to bed, I think of what I'm going to do in my post-extinction events. <laughs> um, and when you say yeah. computer code, I just want to make sure you say, when you say, is this, is this RNA a, yeah. an organic thing or is no. it computer code? No. In fact, the best part about what people say they're injecting into the living human being that I find so fascinating. In the current vaccine? Yeah. In the current vaccine, it's not a vaccine. It's a computer code. Mm-hmm. And it's a computer code. And I don't mean that in a metaphoric sense. Um, what Moderna and what Pfizer are using is, in fact, a synthetic, read man-made, synthetic approximation of the mRNA required to build a spike protein synthetically. When you and I grew up, and we're probably roughly in the same genre, a vaccine was either the actual live virus or some attenuated part of that or an inactivated. I mean, you and I are are young enough or old enough to remember when polio went from crazy shots to oral to, you know, like, those were all things that we did, right? This isn't a SARS coronavirus being injected. This is the code to make the spike protein, but it's not to make a spike protein derived from an actual live live virus, okay? It's actually a computer simulation of what we think a broad-spectrum spike protein would look like. There is no living system anywhere, and by anywhere, I mean anywhere, in this process. It is entirely AI. The whole thing is. And so anybody who thinks that, well, this is just, I I had a physician recently criticize me by going, well, it's basically the same thing as a vaccine. Using no criteria for what a vaccine is. But the, the FDA's got a definition of yeah. vaccines, don't they? Yeah, so how, how and it's they, not this. Yeah, I was going to say, so it wouldn't legally or regular. I mean, it's not legal, but from a regular Yeah, it is a legal thing. It is a legal thing. Okay. Yeah, 21 codified regulations. It's actually a law. So it legally doesn't meet the definition no. of vaccine. And this isn't, um, how can I put it, an abstract debate. This is literally no. just reconciling it's what actually, your thing is with what the, what the legal definition is. Yeah, so let's, let's unpack it because what yeah. I say has the technical scientific reason to be true, and, but we need to understand it because a lot of physicians who are advocating for the vaccine have actually bought the party line without actually looking at what's happening. 
So when when I introduce a protein, I'll keep it really simple, like a peanut allergy or a shellfish allergy, right? I'm introducing a protein. My body has a response to that, okay? And so anybody who has an allergy, anybody who has any of those kinds of experiences, what's happening is a thing of nature is coming into your body. It's recognized as a foreign agent, and your body has a response to it. And that response can be inflammation. It can be allergies. It can be all sorts of other things. Typically, some form of a histamine-like response. So puppy eyes, watery nose, watery eyes, you know, hives, whatever, whatever your thing is, right? So, so what's making that happen is a foreign particle of a thing is coming into your body and your body is reacting to it. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's been a part of the human experience for as long as humans have had experience. So that's happened. And here's the problem. What's being injected is not the thing that's creating the reaction. What's being, re, re, what's being injected is the instructions for your body to make the thing that's foreign. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's a big distinction. Well, it's huge. I mean, it's, 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 it's one thing to have the outside world encountering my body and then my body responds to the outside world. It's another thing to hijack my body to create the pathogen and then has to create which the response. Which then has to create the response. And here's the internal logic problem. That's not a vaccine. You are not injecting a pathogen to trigger a response. I'm not advocating for vaccines. Please don't mishear what I'm saying. But I'm saying in good vaccine, old school, pasture level kind of old school vaccine, you're putting the pathogen into the person and the person's body is responding. Mm-hmm. And when we say pathogen, we mean protein or chemistry or whatever. There's a whole bunch of things that can live out there. And I don't like getting caught up in the metaphysical arguments of is it germ theory, is it terrain theory, is it energetics, setting all of that aside because we have to stay in their argument to make the argument, right? Their argument says, I'm injecting a code to have your body make the thing, which then we're going to hope your body actually responds by building immunity to the thing we told your body to make. That is not a vaccine. That is a gene therapy, which is a very different thing by definition. Totally different thing. Totally different regime. And whether we call it genomics or proteomics, and I don't care which side you come out on, because the RNA that's coming in is a synthetic code to trigger the production of the spike protein. Your body then creates the pathogen. And then you hope that your body, having created the pathogen, responds to it as though it was foreign. With the hopes but you of, made it. Yeah. And with the hopes of saying that, because to me, how do you modulate how much gets created? Because therein lies the holy crap chimeric problem. What is chimeric? Well, it's kind of the, the chimeras are, are the multiple renditions of an expression that if we go back in literature, usually are multi-headed serpents that are ready to eat sailors off of ships. Like, right. The chimera is not a good thing. It's a thing that's a multi-headed, multi-energetic uh, kind of thing that usually is associated with kind of like Frankensteinian outcomes. So it's when we call it chimeric, chimeric is not just, oh, it happens to express itself a bunch of different ways. It's usually expressing itself a bunch of different ways for harmful effect. Right. So now 
because that's that's one of the things I've, I've often wondered. Saying, you know, at what point does it shut off the factory, and then once it does, you know, you know what happens? And you know, I, I don't know that any of these things could be known. But I'm wondering, and, how, how does the FDA authorize it as a vaccine under emergency use when it's not a vaccine? Know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. How does organized crime work? <laughs> yeah, they just do it. But but they're where? Listen, under the 21 Code of Federal Regulations, under Section 50 of the 21 Code of Federal Regulations, there's a rule. The rule says that if you're going to have an emergency use authorization, so you know, a pandemic happens, we're going to have an emergency use authorization. You have to impanel what's called an institutional review board. Now, you and I know what that means. Most people don't. An institutional review board is a group of people who have scientific, usually philosophic, usually religious, um, and, and sometimes some cats and dogs, just general observers. But usually you impanel a body. They get together, and their job is to ask the most important basic question. Because the scientist is asking that, can this be done? And the Institutional Review Board is supposed to be asking the ethical question, should it be done? That's written into the law. So what I'm saying is not Dave's theory of how society should function. It's actually written into the 21 Code of Regulations. Now, here's where the problem kicks in. That impaneled body has to, under the law, include people with no financial interest in the outcome. Now, the law was written that way. Are you ready for this? To get rid of conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Do you realize that at no point, at no point, has the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the agency under which CDC and FDA and NIAID and NIH all live, at no point has the Department of Health and Human Services ever impaneled that institutional review board, despite the fact that it's required at the outset this, by the way, is the, the genie can't be put back in the bottle. You cannot go back and say, well, it was basically justified because our backs were against the wall. There was a pandemic. We didn't follow the law because we were just crazily trying to save the world. No. The reason why the law was written was it said you had to make this decision before you started research. So there was no IRB oversight no. for any of the research, no. even the, you know, in no. the Operation Warp. Not, not. Not under the federal statute that tells us how this has to work. What about the and prior research, though? What about the stuff that actually predated? Oh, the- I love this one. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question because at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, they got a letter from the NIH saying, "Dear UNC Chapel Hill, um, the work you're doing is actually part of the moratorium on gain of function. You're not supposed to do it." So, so, so this was gain of, gain of function research. So yeah, it was 2014. There's a moratorium yeah. on it. Yep. I mean, you're not supposed to enhance the function of yeah, the virus. Exactly. So, so, so they get this letter and it says, you know, here's the specific projects that you're doing, which happen to be Ralph Barrett's projects on coronavirus. So in case you were wondering, it was like, I wonder if they can guess what the project is that's the one that they shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They guessed because it was in the letter. Right. So that's kind of easy. Mm-hmm. And then the best part about it is in 2016, when Ralph Barrett publishes this SARS coronavirus poised for human emergence thing in the footnotes of that article at the bottom of the article, if God forbid, once again, if you read, it's there. They not only had an IRB at UNC Chapel Hill to review the research, but they had an IRB 
to review the legality of the IRB. <laughs> Who's watching the watchers? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And they put that in writing, right? We know we're breaking the law, but there's a load of money in breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put together another group to evaluate whether the breaking of the law is actually ethical because we're making a lot of money on this project. And by the way, you know, I laugh at this in a way, but it's, this is published. This was in 2016. This was long before there could have been a conspiracy. They were conspiring because they knew they were doing something wrong. Hmm. So the researcher knew he was doing something wrong. So he tries to get the fig leaf of the, oh, yeah, but the IRB approved it. The IRB goes, we know what we're doing is wrong. So we're going to get an IRB on our IRB. And, and we're still supposed to believe that this whole story started in a bad cave in China. So let's like, like, good. These people are like literally, you know, this, this is like a bank was robbed in downtown LA. There's robbers standing on the steps of the bank with bags of money and guns. Let's go ask the robbers. If they think a bank robbery might have happened in Geneva. Like, if that happened, we would all sit there going, we're not that foolish. You do not ask the bank robber to investigate the bank robbery while they're holding the bags of money and the guns. That's what we're doing now. Let's connect these dots. (laughs) <laughs> this is, you know, it's almost like uh, you can't we you can't make this stuff up, right? No, I, mean, I wish I could. Yeah, it, yeah. Like, I, I would be like a Dan Brown novel, yeah, like yeah, the imagination. Like, yeah, Jack <laughs> Ryan would be Child's Play, and I have my own Prime channel. Right <laughs> so let's connect the dots. So yeah, we're, we're going back to early two thousands, maybe late nineteen, you know, late nineteen nineties, and we're finding that. There's intellectual property or patent activity going on uh, around uh, coronavirus and yeah. using it as a vector in vaccines. The very first one, 1990, Pfizer. Oh, wow. Pfizer was doing it in 1990? Oh, you heard me say that correctly. <laughs> That's right. That was my out loud voice. I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> This is funny, but you're funny. Okay. <laughs> so... But who could have picked five? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, like happens to be. It could <laughs> have. It, it could have just been a flip. What a coincidence! You know, and and you know, maybe maybe the bat and the pangolin were hanging out. So Pfizer's filing patents as early as 1990 yep. in this arena because for a coronavirus vaccine. For a coronavirus vaccine, then we. <laughs> Then we got, you know, late 1990s. Now, and you said, I think, earlier that in the patent at the CDC, and obviously it's got to be an individual on behalf of the CDC, because the CDC... No, in that case, like 40 or 50. It is literally, Paul wrote it as the named inventor, mm-hmm. followed by, I don't know, 30, 40, 50. It is, it's like a phone book of Atlanta. But, well, Everybody was in on it. So, so you know, just, just clarifying for people yeah. who might not understand, you know, intellectual property a little bit. You know, a, a company or an entity can't file, can't 
file patents, it's individual inventors, yeah. but then they are licensed to... Yeah, they assign it. They the assign ownership it. is assigned to the, yeah, to the CDC. Yeah. And he said, though, and, and, um, and it might be just my uh, ignorance around uh, genetics, but uh, he said that there was a part, that the, the, a part of the DNA was what was... Um, you know, was patentable. Yeah, the whole DNA but viruses story. don't have DNA, do they? Oh, so, well, there you go. Yeah, that's, so how's that? How's that work? Okay. Yeah, that's a, that was a confusing point for me. That happens to be specifically what they say the source of the entire sequence was: coronavirus DNA. But the coronavirus doesn't have DNA. Well, you know what? All I'm doing is reporting the facts. So this doesn't. So okay. Now uh, you know it's it's confusing, but nonetheless, it, it was meant to be confusing. Remember, if you're creating a theater, absurdities like this are where people intentionally put the absurdity. Because what are you doing? You're going to have a ten hour conversation with a bunch of legal scholars on whether or not this was or wasn't legal, or blah 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 blah. blah. And you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to call into question the fact that a federal government agency violated federal law. And we're not going to talk about that because we're going to be debating the merits of the color of the toilet paper in the bathroom, yeah. right? There are so many distractions woven into this thing where people can get dogmatic about masks and distance and what's a gene and what's a virus. And, you know, you, know, you can break your pick on a thousand one of these and miss the whole point which is a group of criminals who want to see a humanity that is turned into something replaceable with a series of automatons that never ask or answer or inquire into things. A small group of individuals have decided that's the future of humanity. And the way you do it is by taking every attribute of what you and I would normally do, which is, hey, that's interesting. I want to dig into that. Well, I need to exterminate that impulse. Thank you very much. There's one thing uh, that you uh, briefly alluded to, but I want to reconcile. Yeah. And it's this idea that you're saying there is no contagion, but now we're talking about this series of, of the, you know, the IP and, and you know, yeah. the virus and yeah. what it's targeted to do and then the remedies for it, et cetera. And so are you looking at that as just smoke and mirrors? It's not, you know, there's no practical application of that, or how, how do you reconcile these things? Yeah, so let's go back to Peter Daszak's quote. Right, we need to get the public to accept a pan-influenza, pan-coronavirus vaccine. Okay? Got it. Now think about this. We're not going to accept a vaccine without a pathogen being named. If I told you tomorrow that, and by the way, I'm not making this up, Moderna has a, a vaccine in development for opioid addiction funded by NIAID, Anthony Fauci's group. Mm-hmm. If I were to tell you that I need to give you a vaccine to prevent your opioid addiction, would you take it? Of course not. How could you say of course not? Well, I mean, me personally, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just don't uh, align with that particular model of. Uh, no, but 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 there's a deeper problem. Yeah. You don't have an opioid addiction. Oh, well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm projecting, but like I thought you meant if I had an opioid addiction. No, addiction but, okay. but the reason why you would do it is because the condition giving rise to the thing that I'm allegedly intervening 
doesn't exist. There never was a contagion. The reason why we never measured for a virus was because it never was there. There was not a series of things being passed around populations. There were conditions in which a bunch of people were observed to be getting sick, and I'm not diminishing that. But here's the actual model of why we need contagion. We need contagion to get an acquiescence to an intervention. We built the contagion model to sell drugs. Contagion didn't exist. It's an agency, it's a narrative, it's an ontology of fear, which then says, now you accept the thing I'm telling you fixes this horrific monster that I told you I created or I told you is real. And it creates confirmation bias on our Absolutely. part? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so we're looking for it. But So what's the alternative, um, uh, you know, I, I want to say hypothesis, but the alternative explanation, if you will, of um, family of five, you know, all get, all have the symptoms and patterns of COVID-19. Right. So Similar. all of them also have mm-hmm. a thousand other things that they've done together. Mm-hmm. They went to the same restaurant. Mm-hmm. They watch the same, you know, they have the same EMF exposure in their house. They have the same water system. They have the same all kinds of other things. There are tons of times where you have co-emergent symptomology. Mm -hmm. Go to any sorority house, go to any women's dormitory, and a bunch of women begin their menstrual cycles in synchronicity. Mm -hmm. Is that some sort of deviant master plan of the universe, or is it, oh, when people are in the same environment, some frequency emerges that actually syncs up different parts of people's systems? There are a few, probably thousand cases of, oh my gosh, I went to church and 10 of us at the church got sick. Therefore, it must have been the church that was the problem. I mean, this bolt story that came out of Washington State which led to the anti-singing ordinances. (laughs) There was somebody in a choir that sang, and they were sick, and then they, you know, 15 other people got sick. Okay. All of it objectively, mathematically, numerically, and phenotypically may be the case. Did they meet at Denny's for coffee before they went to church? We didn't ask that question. Did they actually leave the church and all go to meet up at a bar? We didn't ask that question. Did they have the same snacks or whatever. There's a thousand questions that we didn't ask, but we wanted one single narrative to emerge. Somebody sang, and the other people got sick. Now, here's a tiny problem with the story. I was a choir director. Guess who you'd expect to be the pathogen source in a choir? A bass or a baritone? Dave, why would you say that? Well, Dave, I would say that because it turns out that they're standing in the back rows, and so their vocal projection and expiratory gases would be flying over the altos and the sopranos. So, mathematically, the certainty would be if the pathogen came from the choir, it came from a bass or a baritone. Now, that's not Dave's mysterious mathematical wizardry. That's, I was a choir director. I know how choirs stand. 
And the problem was it was a soprano and alto that got baritones and basses infected. That story is full of... Because they didn't sing in a circle. They sang in a choir. The problem here is we want the, we want so bad to get the confirmation bias. People were in a place. This a cruise ship. Okay, cool. And they were exposed to the same salad tongs. They were exposed to the toilet seat handles. They were exposed to the bar. They were exposed to a ton of things. And what we want desperately is to say, oh, my God, these people were in the same place at one point in time, and this happened. And we fail to actually examine the facts and say, time out. A ton of people were there that nothing happened to. And, and here's the worst part, and the people who allegedly had an event horizon themselves also didn't create the next event horizon, which is the reason why what we call r not the infectious rate of, of alleged pathogens and pandemics, didn't actually ever meet the calculated rate. We wanted desperately to tell a transmission story, but it didn't show up. And the reason is because we knew that the thing we were measuring was infectious and replication defective. People are not reading the actual science. We built the fragment off of a coronavirus that was, in fact, infectious but not replication defective. And now we're trying to say there's a replication problem. It doesn't work because it can't work, which is the reason why to do the clinical trials, they killed off the idea of transmission right out of the gate. Because if you actually had to measure that, the whole story would blow up. So you look at it and you see the architecture. But remember, and here's where it gets really important. What we are injecting is a pathogen. That is real. And the pathogen we're injecting is the mRNA strand to turn you into a S1 spike protein builder. And you're not building a SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. You are building a synthetic chimeric synthesized version of a computer code that we think is going to actually trigger the production of a spike protein. But we are not using nature to do that. The only way I can get a population to agree to the transaction is to create the illusion of the contagion in the first place. It never existed. The contagion never existed. And by the way, I, I bring up the syphilis case for a really good reason. It didn't exist then either. It turns out that during the mid-30s and 40s, it was very, very, very difficult to deal with allegedly an outbreak of STDs. You know why? Because everybody was actually only having sex monogamously in their privacy of their own homes. The only reason why it worked is everybody knew that they weren't actually only having sex in, in their own homes. <laughs> right? But yeah. you, pick an, you right. pick the illusion. Right. How many people could have ended that whole contagion story by going, you know what? I was sleeping with the neighbor. But we didn't tell that story. So it was the mysterious who saw it coming. Every time we're doing this, every time we play the cycle, the model is so tired and broken that I can't believe anybody can still fall for it. But the cool thing is, because it's the same model, I actually can see the evidence and I can set my machine intelligence systems to detect when we see the pattern reemerge. I guess what ties in here, you know, looking at the macro data is that we're supposed to have had this, you know, this pandemic that went on for as long as it did, but the, uh, you know, the all cause mortality death rates really haven't changed. No. So, so is that, 
imply that what you're saying, you know, what you're saying is true is that yeah. there's not suddenly this contagion that's infecting more and more people and more and more people are dying because that's, you know, that fact is in existence. No, and we have the tiny little problem that I said on a show not long ago, which is I always like to follow the money. And in this case, I like to follow the money called life insurance payments. Because you know who doesn't lie about life insurance payments? Actuaries. Yeah. Life insurance companies. Yeah, right, right. You know what hasn't changed? The number Premium. of claims that are paid. No, the number of claims that are paid. Which means people haven't died more. Well, unless coronavirus cunningly has the ability to pick who to infect based on whether they're insured or not. Now, if you believe that, you're seriously tripping off the wrong side of the, the globe here. Because the fact is that if we were going to see the all-cause mortality, creepy, scary statistics, we would also see the life insurance companies losing their mind about all the death benefits they paid, except for the fact that they actually paid less during the pandemic. So this gets more fascinating Uh-oh. because I got life insurance uh, right before the pandemic, and I got more during, and the you know, the, the rates didn't change, so there's no higher risk from an actuarial standpoint. Because they weren't paying for the deaths that weren't happening. <laughs> I mean, these things, the minute I say them, people go, oh, that's interesting. We should have actually looked at that because the people who are not going to lie are the people who actually have to pay for the lie. That's right. And they're not paying for the lie. They're not even covering it up. They're not saying our cost of business went up. No. In fact, they're reporting better profitability. So we see this whole thing brewing. And, again, what an unlikely trail that you have uniquely followed, which is the IP trail. Yeah. And then you reconcile what the activities are around getting protections legally for certain things. Yeah simultaneously with proclamations of, of documented public statements, all of which predate this December so-called, yeah, this so-called pandemic. Yep. And, and it leads up to it. And suddenly we think we find ourselves in this new scenario, but the scenario has been dreamt of for decades prior. Yeah. And it, it, it's almost it, it, with chilling accuracy as far as exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, especially when you talk no about surprises. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, especially if you talk about, you know, a, a virus that's patented that attacks the, the lung epithelium. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, thank it, God they have good Internet and bat caves, obviously, because the bats figured this out. So they're like, hey, <laughs> can you make sure that we get that epithelial? Effect? Wow. Like, that's pretty cool. Wow. And then. Of course, the mandates uh, for vaccines and, and now, you know, of course, the rhetoric around that and, you know, that everybody has to get it and then they're getting into children. People have no risk. And so on. you start to see the whole thing unfold. And, you know, so in the beginning, as we started this conversation, you talked about, you know, well, it's, it's a fork in a road to tell you know, two potential futures for humanity. Yep. And it's, you know, in the abstract, it was like, OK, you, know, you talk about you know the first one, which is, you know, a digitized humanity that's you know, submissive and, and controlled yeah. by, you know, by you know, maybe a few. But then now we see how you get there because of all of what it, what's unfolding along the way. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting human question, mm-hmm. I think, because I love to step back and say, what are we missing in the conversation? Mm-hmm. 
And it is an interesting human question. I don't know if you remember, but Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking used to chat about kind of the future of humanity and when the machines would rule the world. And and I think we all had the, and, and most people don't know this, but the term robot comes from a very dark Czech poet and an author who invented the concept of a robot, which is a, a really weird thing. But they were really concerned about, you know, the future of AI when the robots would rule the world or machines would take over humanity or whatever else. And I think all of us had this kind of sci-fi view of this, which was at some point there was like the Alexa voice that was, you know, inviting you to drink the Kool-Aid and kill yourself. Like that, that's, I think, where a lot of people go with that. But the mistake was that if you actually look at that whole conversation, what was AI? So many of us were thinking that it was humans were going to go into a machine, right? We we're going to have the your brain on the stick and, and you were kind of going to live in this virtual reality hologram. And, you know, and the, some of the researchers were kind of propping that story up. And, and both Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk were very popular in talking about, oh, be careful of the machines ruling the world. I think we've we've missed the warning by the caricature of what that means. I think we missed the definition of what a human was. Because I think that we all thought it was we were going to go into an AI, not we were going to turn our bodies into the AI. And that's a big distinction. And I don't think we've had that right conversation, which is, if I have authentically considered the what my life is, what my sovereignty is, what my humanity is, what whatever your language is, if I haven't considered the, the who am I really, then what is the line between me and a machine? Right? If I get up every day, punch the clock, you know, get my coffee, go to work, work for a job I hate, also that I have the privilege, maybe if I survive to 65, of living my disease-riddled, you know, asthma-riddled, diabetes-riddled, miserable existence in an RV in a trailer park in in Provo, if that's if that's my definition of what my amazing human existence is, haven't I already become a machine? And I think we need to look at that from a foundational standpoint because the reason why we can have a public who at 47 or 48 percent, if we believe their numbers right now, is accepting a vaccination, which isn't a vaccination, which is, in fact, a computer code to turn your body into a machine to create a pathogen so that you then have the mechanism of immune response respond to the pathogen you created. If that is your definition of humanity, then we left the question of humanity a long time ago. We already entered the machine age. And we're not engaging in the question that says, hey, hold on a second. Don't we have a moment now to reexamine the human question? Not to figure out how to avoid the machine question. Because maybe the machine question started on its journey in the Industrial Revolution, where you were part of a machine by what lever you pulled. And were you on the manufacturing line or whatever you were doing. Like if we lost our picture of humanity a long time ago, which I think we did, then the machine question is a different one. And where I think this invitation sits right now is we have roughly half the population who knows somewhere in some soul level, intuition level, 
we have a knowingness that says we're not going that way. And yes, we've been told it's the, you know, the anti-vax or it's the hesitancy or the whatever else. I like to say it's the choice to be human. And the cool thing is we have evidence that says that over half the population still has the echo, still has the memory somewhere in the cave of consciousness that goes, humanity is not about building pathogens and putting them in our bodies. Humanity is about figuring out how to increase our vitality, how to increase our connection, how to recognize the limitless nature of the field effect called the human experience. And I love the fact that for the first time, maybe in the modern story of humanity, we've been presented with this beautiful fork in the road to say, which choice do you want to make? Do you want to go down a pathway, which is the fatalistic machine digital pathway? Or do you want to go down the pathway of saying humanity has yet to build its greatest cathedral? Well, I wonder, and it's, 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 um, you're adding aesthetic beauty to the circumstance, which uh, I think it calls for, which is really important uh, if we're going to retain any sense of humanity, yeah. right? Um, you know, where's the beauty in it? You know, it's always a good question, and and I think you know that's a part of it is you know yeah. saying that we're we, we now are forced to consider things that maybe we weren't considering exactly, and and that that is the good part. The the other part of it that is. Um, you know, it's, as I've speculated about that becomes disconcerting is that maybe there's more to the agenda, the, the dark agenda, meaning, okay, so you're injecting this stuff in and, it, you know, it, you're, you're putting AI in your body, you're putting, yep. you know, uh, you know, things that turn you into a machine. Is it possible that, that maybe there's a further agenda saying that this opens up uh, the ability to continue to program you and do more? No to question. You? Oh, it's no question. Oh, got it. So it's not, so it's not limited to, so the idea is, I mean, this is, this could be really sinister and, but I can't help but have my mind start to go there now is to say that you create this fictitious pandemic and, um, you create the fear mongering, you create censorship so that people like you can't be shown on social media talking about any of this kind of stuff or other people like, uh, Robert Malone, who, you know, was, uh, an inventor of the, you know, the mRNA technology yep. who speaks out with concerns, shut him up. So all dissent goes away. Any other potential less uh, speculative and less harmful, uh, you know, cures for this problem. Can't talk about that. Yep. Drive this agenda. But it's not about the whole thing is created, not just because we want to make money on a vaccine. No, nope. we want to create automatons. We want, we want to be able to, once this stuff is injected, maybe there's, you know, a, uh, down the road uh, control that can be imposed on people. So you think that that's a foregone conclusion? Oh, I don't think it is. I know it is. How? Well, because I've actually been in the meetings where those very things have been considered. And there's nothing like instilling the existential fear of death. And you need to have an anonymous enemy to do that, by the way. Yeah. Right. You have to. The reason why we don't actually measure for the complete SARS-CoV-2 is if we did, we wouldn't have enough numbers. Mm-hmm. The reason why we do RT-PCRs on fragments is because we can find fragments. We can't find the whole thing. We've not necessarily evidence that we isolated the whole thing, because even when we say we've isolated the whole thing, we've only isolated fragments that we built into the thing we're calling it. Mm-hmm. So we actually haven't done what is required to say there is a thing. 
the more you can anonymize the agency of fear, the more effective the fear. Right. Don't know where it's coming from. I don't know where it's coming from. It come anywhere. Like when I get up to walk through a restaurant, I have to have my mask on because the coronavirus can infect me while I'm sitting at the table, but it can on my way to the bathroom. Like absolute lunacy, right? Every single thing that meets the credul like the credulity test, and you go, no, that's what they do. But here's here's what happens. Most people don't remember that from 1929 to 1936, um, we lived this exact experiment. The difference then was it was syphilis. It was for us to get to addicted to penicillin. Do you, do you remember the story about penicillin, where now we have penicillin-resistant and then methyl-resistant and then all of these pathogens that have been amplified by the virtue of our intervention? Right, that's key right. function in itself. It is. We, we built a condition, and people forget, we had an environmental crisis that, that period too, remember? The Dust Bowl. People don't remember. They don't put their heads around the, oh, the same thing is playing out. We have a financial crisis based on broken public trust statements. Yeah, we've got that right now. We had living conditions, the Roaring Twenties, that couldn't be maintained. Standard of living couldn't be maintained. Sound familiar? You're going to have nothing and you're going to be happy about it by 2030. Remember the World Economic Forum? We have an environmental crisis. Then it was the Dust Bowl. Now, what was the Dust Bowl? The Dust Bowl was a drought, to be sure, but the Dust Bowl really was the consolidation of the agriculture production to make mega farms across the Midwest. And it turns out the only way you can do that is actually manipulate the prices of the grains that are being produced so that people can't make their bank payments. And so the whole freaking story around the Dust Bowl is this crazy story where it is the cover of an environmental thing that gave the cover for the consolidation of the agriculture infrastructure of the United States. Does it sound familiar that we have an environmental crisis that's going to reor reorient who owns what? It feels like I'm actually speaking as though I'm living in 1931 right now. You know why I'm saying that? Because I am living in 1931 right now. What's being played out on every single one of these little manipulations already has a playbook, and we already know what the playbook is. And in this particular case, we have these interesting little innovations that take place during coronavirus. Think about this. Aliens. We got those. Aliens are authorized now that coronavirus is circulating? Like, that sounds like plausible. Like, you didn't figure the alien thing out three years before coronavirus? No, you drop it in the middle of a pandemic. What is that doing? That's adding to the fact that we know that there's going to be some technological breakthrough that's about to come that's going to come from the covert work at Area 51 or wherever the story is going to come from. You watch. What's going to happen is we're going to introduce things. And then we have the anti-establishment movement, my favorite of all, my anti-establishment movement friends who go, let's get rid of fiat currencies and let's get rid of central banks and let's get rid of all that and let's distribute the economy on a digital infrastructure. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Except for the fact that beginning in 1996, the U.S. military realized that the fundamental problem with the Internet was its susceptibility to electromagnetic interference. So I've got a brilliant idea. Let's take an anonymized, you know, covert Federal Reserve. Let's go ahead and put it on the Internet through blockchain and crypto. Let's get everybody dependent on that so that we can do what? Bring down the web. You think coronavirus is bad? Wait till you see the electromagnetic 
calls to heavens. And now we're going to turn to who? We're going to turn to the Savior that already told us they saved us through this injection. And they're going to go, well, you know what? We don't know who has real money or not real money, so we're going to have to come up with a way to tell whether you're really the person who really has the money or not. So guess what? We've got this little thing that we're going to put in you. And, and don't worry about it. It's, it's inert and, you know, it's going to be RFID or it's going to be whatever. And by the way, you're going to line up to do it. Why? Because you trusted them with your life. Now you're going to trust them with your livelihood. And before long, we're going to find out that the orchestration of, and by the way, this summer, how many times have we heard this? Internet failures. And the funny thing about the Internet failures is if you look at who was brought down, banking, insurance, investment, were they brought down like you can't get back up? No, but denial of service for three hours or four hours. Anytime you see an outage that happens in equal measured time units, it doesn't sound like an outage. It sounds like an update. Oh, interesting. That's right. It wouldn't be, you know, three, exactly three hours. How, how many times have you had a thunderstorm where power is knocked out of your house and the power went off at eight o'clock and came on at 11 o'clock? Mm. The whole thing is being played out. That's why I don't have any. Oh, I wonder if it's part of a bigger program. <laughs> I don't wonder. Because back in the spring of this year, I actually told audiences on camera the dates the outages were going to start how were you able to anticipate that because i read the same material that i read back in 1999 about coronavirus Mm -hmm. if you know whose material to read they're telling you what's coming and this is the point the point is that the suppression the part that you've talked about which is the how do we suppress the voices merely by having this conversation You know what we've done? We've screwed up their plan. Because you and I weren't supposed to have this conversation. But we did. And the problem is, Cam was rolling. And the great news is that somewhere there's going to be an artifact of this conversation, which makes it much harder to tell a bat story about origins if you actually had a conversation where two guys were sitting in a studio having the conversation before the surprise event happened. And that's the passion I have, which is if we can get ahead of the story, which we know is unfolding, it will feel more like it was exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. This is an orchestrated plan playing off a playbook. And the difference between the organizers of that playbook and us is that they have been singularly focused for a very long time. And if there is a lesson, if we want to go to the macro, macro intelligence, if there's a lesson to learn from this experience, that I'm sure most people need to learn is that those who think they are working in the light have a fundamental fallacy, which is the absence of focus. Because the reason why darkness wins is it has one plan, not 50 topics. It has one plan. And the cool thing is we get to learn from it this time because we get to see it. So do you, I mean, I'm inferring by what you're saying right now that uh, we're not too far gone that we think nope. that, no. okay, that there's still uh, hope to be able to overcome the circumstance and that the light will win. 
So here's the thing. I, I really am not a fan of hope, just like I'm not a fan of belief, just like I'm not a fan of trust, like I'm not a fan of a bunch of those things. Um, hope is a regression problem. It's a math problem. It's the uncertain future problem. Uh, I think that if we all have the integrity of accounting for our own life, we would go most of our life has been monotonously good. Like none of us took a breathing break three minutes ago to get our diaphragm going again. You know, we didn't sit there this morning going, well, my my feet are working and my legs are working. And oh, but I forgot to start my heart. Like our, our experience of life is monotonously good. Every one of our nexts almost always is perfectly fine. Not great, but perfectly fine. Hope is the byproduct of doubting that. What's going to come next is the conscious choice that we make. Not some sort of nefarious plan of some sort of uber dark lord who's trying to work its will across the universe. Our ability to manifest an amazing next is dependent on the conscious choices we're making right now. And if what we do is we start celebrating the artifact of a humanity that has the elegance and the beauty and the transcendence that it does in fact have, then all of a sudden it's much, much harder to intimidate a population into be afraid, be afraid. The likelihood is if we met somebody at the door who said, you are unsafe now, walking out this door, you are unsafe, we'd go, actually, no, we're actually feeling pretty good. Oh, but there's asteroids in the universe. Okay, cool. And right now, I'm actually feeling really good. And quite frankly, when we pick ways to go, an asteroid strike would be pretty damn fascinating. (laughs) So, so, you know, that's, that's a perspectival thing. And so not only do I have what I think people call hope. I have certainty. I have certainty that the outcome of humanity will prevail because we have faced darkness so many times. And darkness, unfortunately, has the same playbook. And it's overplaying its hand right now. It's appealing to this primal fear that it loves to exploit. But the problem is it's angry now at itself because it isn't working as well as it wanted to work. And so what do we have to do? We have to create new terror campaigns. But the problem is even those aren't working because they're so self-evidently fallacious. So I'm not hopeful. I'm certain. And I'd much rather be certain than hope. Well, uh, I am heartened by your certainty. (laughs) It is, um, at least for my lifetime, unprecedented as far as what's happening right now. I mean, it's, 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 shocking in many ways and uh and it's also shocking to me how many people just don't question and have that fear rule them but that's the game plan right i mean that's, that's i feel like there's a need for compassion in that situation I, I've, I've said to a number of people if you grew up and and now i'm going to kind of make an epigenetic inference but if you grew up across the last 500 years And the stories that you were told where the people with special skills or talents were burned at the stake or were ostracized or were executed or were penalized or were left destitute. And many of those things were very public. 
you know, it used to be the town square where you beheaded somebody or you burned somebody or you did whatever you were going to do. Epigenetically, there would be a program that would be starting to be written into your experience that goes, don't speak out, you know, don't question authority, don't do all these things, because it is an existential risk, mm-hmm. okay? Now, the wonderful thing about this moment is I feel like epigenetically, some of those spirits of the courageous that stood on those pyres and were burnt and that had their public beheadings and all of those things. I think there's an epigenetic energy that those energies also manifest, which is, you know what? They, you know, they ended this phase of my existence, but my life moved on. I mean, Tertullian's very famous quote, you know, it's the blood of the martyrs at the seat of the church. Well, let's play that forward. The fact of the matter is, there is whatever we want to call it, the 47% that said yes to rolling up their sleeves. Okay. I lament that because they were the ones that watched the executions. Mm. They don't know the power because they never saw the power of being able to stand in your own power and saying, you know what? You cannot take what I cannot give you. You can't take my life because I don't identify it as mine. When I wake up and I seriously wake up every morning with a profound kind of surprise of I'm blessed with another opportunity to have another day. Well, you know what? You might end the flow of those days, but you didn't take my life because living for me was always the interconnectivity anyhow. So you might take the Dave bald bow tie wearing crazy. You might take him out of the scene, but you're not going to take my life. Because my life is the field effect that is, in fact, a persistent energy in the universe. And so and so what I love is the invitation to have beautiful compassion to go. I want to find ways to embrace in love those individuals who didn't have the experience of knowing the persistence I just talked about. Because I'd love to actually look at the people who acquiesce to those power systems and go. I know you said yes to the vaccine, but I think you would have rather had you given the opportunity to have the question. I think you would have rather had dinner at my table. And if the option had been given you, you can either take the vax or you can hang out and be part of this conversation. I know half of the people that took the vaccine would have sat here rather than taking the vaccine. Why? Because they would have seen humanity. And the echo that they would have gotten in their own consciousness was, oh, hold on a minute. Yeah, that's what living was. Living wasn't the avoidance of death. Living was the fellowship of that persistent energy of humanity. And they would have taken that every time. So our job is to actually, in compassion, say, how do we evidence that? So we're not going, shame on you. It was a dumb decision, whatever else. No, we're just going, man, you know what? I'd love for you to see what it's like to choose life. Well, I have to say, through this entire conversation, to land on the um, foundation of compassion and the intention of compassion is probably a perfect place for us to land. So uh, I appreciate the extraordinary journey that you just took us on. And uh, I am uh, very heartened by your words and uh, also by your commitment to really spending the time. I mean, this is 
this is an intense amount of research and understanding that you had to go to just to be able to sit in this chair and have this conversation. And uh, that's something that I admire and respect very much. So thank you. You're most welcome. I'd like to leave you with a beautiful piece from a gorgeous historic narrative. When Joseph's brothers come to Egypt after the famine or during the famine, there's this moment where the get even gotcha moment happens where Joseph could have gone, you know, you sold me, you threw me in a well, you traded me to whatever else. And, and his, his sentence was very simple. He said, I was sent before you. I love that. Yeah. I love the idea that all we are is people who are prepared. You know, was it a lot of effort to follow the threat of coronavirus since 1999? Yeah, it was. But I was prepared to be in a place where I could have a conversation where we take the fear out of it. And by the way, we also take the judgment out of it. We just go, you know what? There's some people that made a series of expedient decisions that harmed humanity. But if we can have a conversation about this in a beautiful and respectful way, then what we actually realize is I just got sent ahead. That's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so I pass the talking stick back to you, Tara and Rama. Oh my gosh. Thank you everyone for our, we are co-conspirators in Aye. life. <laughs> thank you, Micah. Thank you everyone. And we'll take a little quick break here. And we'll be back with a look at the stars and some music and peace. See you in a little while, everybody. Namaste. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. All right. It is the 26th of March. And we're starting, uh, we're starting that one week period where the moon is going to conjunct everything. Just a few hours ago, the uh, moon exactly conjuncted Pluto, which is at 29 degrees and 19 and a half minutes of Capricorn. And right now it's in one degree Aquarius. Now this week, we are going through... Mars conjunct Venus with the conjunction of Saturn. And that's at 16, 20, and 22. So Mars, Venus, and Saturn. So 16, 20, and 22 Aquarius. Now, Jupiter in Pisces is at 21. And Neptune's at 24. So that conjunction is going on. Now, Jupiter moves kind of slow. So Jupiter conjunct Neptune's going on for quite some time. Mercury got ahead of Neptune this week. Mercury's at 30 Pisces. 
And the sun's at 7 Aries, getting ready to conjunct Chiron at 13. And good old Uranus is still hanging out there at 13 Taurus, North Node 24 Taurus. So that's the setup. And uh, we got, see, we got Pluto sextile Mercury and... Neptune, but it's much closer to you know, much closer to Mercury. And Mercury's at thirty, and Pluto's at twenty-nine. So that sextile is supposed to be supportive of transformational thinking. Uh, Mercury gets ready to go into Aries this week. Here, let me look at uh, next Saturday. Yeah, next Saturday, Mercury will be in fourteen Aries. So Mercury is moving pretty fast. Let's see here. There's this. Let me get this additional uh, thing going on here, just so I can tell you that. Uh, yeah, Mercury is moving. Almost two degrees a day, and the moon is moving a little over 14 degrees a day. And what else is this see here? Saturn is its declination 16, Mars declination 17, and Venus declination 13. So they're all... Uh, Almost going to be on top of each other. We, we should. We should. Let me see here. I can see Venus in the morning sky if it's clear in the southeast. And we should be able to see all three of those very close together. Of course, Venus is so bright it kind of over, over. It outshines Mars and, and, and Saturn. Saturn's brighter than Mars. So that's just, that's the setup. Those are the conditions. Uh, big old square, 13 degree Uranus and Taurus to 14 degree Mars and Aquarius. And Venus is still square. So you've got Venus and Mars is still square Uranus. And when you think about that, you get arguments, 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 arguments. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what Kaitasha has to say about this this week and the coming week. We're going to have a new moon uh, in about, let's see here, the new moon is going to be five, about five days from now, right around. Right around the first of the month is going to be the new moon Aries. All right, back to you. Okay, okay, right. All right, K Patsy, here we come, everybody. This is twenty six minutes.
Brian Scapaccio with the weekly Pele report for Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. And rather than go down to the river, which is on my right, I'm going to come up the mountain to the left because we're having what? A moon, Saturn, Venus, Mars conjunction in Aquarius, the observer. Let's observe Costa Rica in the dry season. <laughs> Not quite as green. There's some brown mountains over there. Rainy season doesn't really start until May. So, <clears throat> yeah, the river's down. Hills are a little brown. Anyway, what's going on? You know, we got the moon up there in Sagittarius today, and it's going to stay there until it uh, goes into Capricorn tomorrow. Moving on through Capricorn, going to, you know, hit Pluto. And and then on uh, Saturday, uh, he's going to go into Aquarius, where, and you can look at the chart right at the beginning of this report, he is going to come together, she's going to come together. There's the man on the moon, and then, of course, La Luna is feminine. We got all kinds of things. What was I reading in, in some ancient uh, 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 cultures? The, the moon is masculine, and the sun is feminine. Mm. So let's not get too carried away with <laughs> labels and stuff. But anyway, uh, she's going to go into Aquarius and then at the exact same degree, 21 degrees moon, 21 degrees Saturn, 21 degrees Venus. And Mars, not far behind, catching up. Mars is going to conjunct with Saturn next week. Exactly square the moon's nodes. So I will be talking more about that. But, yeah, in the meantime, other things going on here is today, I choose to do the Bailey Report on uh, Mercury conjunct Neptune. I mean, last week the sun was, uh, well, anyway, yeah, I had a sun-Neptune conjunction. I did an astrology talk, and then on, uh, now I'm doing a Mercury-Neptune astrology talk. Oh, my God. <laughs> Saturday, Mercury goes along and uh, sextiles Pluto just before going into Aries. So then we're going to have the Sun, Mercury, and Aries. We're going to be talking all about that. That's the garden here at uh, Alegria. I think it's pretty awesome. There's a huge table in the middle of that so the community can come together and have feasts. Finally, like I say, on Monday we have Venus conjunct Saturn. And what else? Uh, uh, probably finally uh, that I didn't really mention so much uh, is just that uh, we're in the third quarter square with the moon, right? She's rising later and later and later, okay? And actually at that conjunction, what is it? It's like um, the moon rises. I did this. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and then by, by almost 6 o'clock in the morning, Gonna, if you can get up early, you can see uh, the, the Moon, Venus, Mars, Saturn conjunction. Uh, it's, it, they're going to they're going to rise around five thirty or six o'clock Costa Rica time. I don't know where you are, but yeah, gosh, that would really be something to see. Anyway, uh, she is in that that exact uh, uh, square is on uh, Thursday. Four degrees Capricorn, 33 minutes. Let me look at the camera and talk about it. Oh, yeah.
All right, everybody. Hard to get the lighting right when you're in the shade and the light is behind you. So I'll try to adjust it, but c'est la vie. Um, what's going on? Or I should say, what's not going on? <laughs> like today's mantra. You know, there's, there's chaos going on, and this chaos is going to go on for a while, okay? And I'd say until Jupiter passes over Neptune and gets out of Pisces into Aries, okay? So, you know, we still have, you know, uh, a few weeks of large amounts, Jupiter, of chaos, Neptune, in the sign of Pisces, spirit, while that's going on, the sun moved into Aries. Now Mercury is moving into Aries. So there's a there's a new start. It's like the train is leaving. <laughs> the, tra- the, the train's leaving the station, right? Uh, but at the same time, there's still uh, leftovers. There's still busyness. There's still a lot of loose ends, unresolved conditions, situations, relationships, business, financial, in every which way, shape, and form. Right with the Jupiter, Neptune, and Pisces, and above, outside, and beyond that, of course. Now, and what we really want to talk about today is this Venus Mars moving through Aquarius. I mean, they move through Capricorn together. Now they're moving through Aquarius together. They're really together. Jack and Jill going up the hill to Aquarius, the top of the mountains, the, the you know the the helicopter, the UFO. Liberation, objective analysis, science, technology, worldwide web, global consciousness, enlightenment, things that are very up, 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 raise the bar. Let's improve. Let's look for the future. Envision the future. You know, so Aquarius is about non-attachment, detaching from the known, the familiar, and the past. To prepare for a bigger, wider, higher, more enlightened future. And Venus and Mars, what's this? It's the yin and the yang, the masculine and the feminine. So there's a lot of relationships breaking up. There's a lot of, uh, you know, liberation. And this is, you know, I've talked before about the difference between non-attachment and detachment. But very often, when people get into Aquarius, they also just detach. This is limiting. This is old. This is, you know, I want freedom and I want, uh, you know, so up, 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 out and away. Now, beyond that, it's been interesting. If you recall, Venus, you know, Venus was uh, forward. Then she went retrograde. Mars passed her up for a little while. Now she passed Mars back up. And this is what we call a new phase conjunction. Venus is moving away from Mars, just like a new moon. Okay, when you, we look at phasal relationships, the new phase is from zero to 45 degrees. And then it's the crescent phase from 45 to 90 till you get to the first quarter square. So this new phase, Venus breaking away from Mars, 
This is this is you know if you have this in your birth chart, you can really look at it. The the phasal relationship between Venus and Mars is how you do relationship. Okay, sexual, emotional, intellectual, communicative—how how much you are into the place of well, the, there's different places to be in the new phase. The place to be is new, 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 new experiences, new people, new conditions. Setting up, you know, new environments, uh, new forms of relationship, new ways of doing relationship, new ways of looking at relationship, wanting new and different things out of a relationship. So this is catalyzing. You know, people. It's not only we want to find our tribe of like-minded souls. We want to find our community of people. We want to, you know. Uh, connect to organizations, global or wherever we can find them, right? For supporting a subculture, the seeds of a new paradigm, the seeds of a new age. Well, like I think I said in last week's report, it all starts at home. It all starts with our personal relationship to ourself, and after that, and well, and in particular. This is compounded by the south node of the moon in Scorpio, which is soulmate twin flame union, and the south node is the past, and the north node is now in Taurus self sufficiency. I will unconditionally love myself. I'm not looking for it out there. I don't need approval or support, or to, I need to come into relationship with myself. And of course, this Taurus Scorpio is square to Aquarius. So Aquarius is about, like I said before, completing, letting go of the Capricorn, you know, uh, uh, past, conventional, and moving into experimental new. And so Venus moving away from Mars, both of them being in the sign of Aquarius, and now Venus is even going to pass Saturn. And start a new phase, okay? You know,、uh, a whole new cycle, a Venus-Saturn cycle, and and Saturn is structure, commitment, contracts, laws, rules, and boundaries around Venus is money, around love, around relationship. So this is the you know the breaking and making of commitments, of big serious decisions. Of where I want to be seven, fourteen, twenty-one, twenty-eight years from now, and who I want to be with, and who's going to help me get where I want to be, and so you know we're all in this flux. And how about that? You know the the equinox on top of a full moon in Virgo. <laughs> I mean, I said it was coming in last week's report, and man, it came right like a tidal wave. It's like whoosh. And what do tidal waves do? They pick up everything and move them forward. So our lives are getting picked up. You know, our hearts are getting picked up. Our you know conditions and situations are just getting picked up and moved, whether we're you know ready or not, aware and consciously embracing or not. 
This is this, and it's and this. You know, people ask me, how long is this going to go on? This is just like so intense. When is this over? And I have to say, like I like I said before, it's, you know, Saturn square Uranus is still going on this whole year, um, and it's actually intensifying towards November, towards the end of the year. So, you know, this is there's there's a lot of tension going on, and whether it's you know war or mandates or personal relationships. You know, the important thing here is that, yes, we do maintain, like, like the mantra says, manage the situation. And management is maturity. Saturn is maturity. Objectivity. What is best for everyone concerned? What is, you know, what is good for the future generations, for the whole, for, you know, the family, the community? So, you know, this is, this is very, uh, very intense. It's like an initiation. I want to read to you the Sabian symbol because this Sabian symbol puts a whole nother Slant that I want to talk about on our conversation here with Venus, Moon, Saturn, Mars, conjunct. I'm going to read this for the 22nd degree of Aquarius because that's, you can look at the chart at the beginning of the report and see that it is in the 22nd degree of Aquarius. Here's the book. You can download the PDF from my website. Under the resources tab, scroll down. A rug is placed on the floor of a nursery to allow children to play in comfort and warmth. Amazing that Elsie Wheeler, the psychic that came up with these 360 uh, images when she held the card with the degree of the zodiac up to her forehead, she gets an image, and this is for the sign of, and this is Aquarius? A rug for comfort and warmth? <laughs> That's not what you really think of when you think of Aquarius. <laughs> Very interesting, eh? We are never left without assistance when eagerly seeking to grow emotionally and spiritually. Even if we do not consciously realize the intent and value of what sustains our self-development and cushions the shocks which life provides our growth in understanding, still the assistance is there. We may think, no one understands me. That is very Aquarius. Alienation, isolation, feeling bizarre, unique, unusual, outside the norm. Uh, Aquarius, you know, it's part of that archetype, right? But the understanding is there. If we do not egotistically take for granted that life and society owes us everything. Through 
a warm appreciation of basic opportunities and even small comforts, we can safely and happily grow into personal maturity. So this puts like another dimension into this whole picture, doesn't it? It's not just what's going on with our finances or the war or our relationships or our bank accounts. This is about gaining a greater perspective as a result of appreciation, as a result of not taking things for granted. This is one of the things that is associated with Pisces, with Neptune, with innocence, and even with cancer. This innocence, this naivety, this childishness that takes for granted. I'm going to be fed and clothed and sheltered and mama's going to hold me and daddy's going to take care of me and keep me safe and nurture me. And, you know, you know, as young children and emotionally, you know, innocent beings, we take for granted that people think like us, want the same things we do, are going to connect and relate and da, 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 da. And, you know, part of Aquarius, part of, you know, Saturn, co-ruler of Aquarius, part of Saturn, Capricorn, Aquarius, this maturing, this maturing is like, guess what? No, not. You can't take that for granted. And everybody's not the same and they don't want the same things. And, and they're not able to overcome their own trauma and their own wounds in order to support you and love you and hold you and da, 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 da. I mean, we really, this is the north node of the moon in Taurus. We really need to emotionally nurture and hold ourselves. And some of us, you know, are already maybe a little more down that road and others are maybe less. And the ones that are less experience the loss, betrayal, and abandonment of Scorpio's south node, kicking them out of this spider web and, uh, you know, tapestry, you know, in order to individuate, individualize, you know, gain in self-sufficiency. So, you know, it's really challenging to maintain a state of appreciation when you're getting your ass kicked, <laughs> to put it bluntly, <laughs> I mean, we are going through deep, hard times, many, on many levels, right? I'm doing readings. I'm talking to people all over the world. I, you know, it's, it, it's tough. Yeah, the economy, the inflation, the, the politics, the, you know, you name it. There's a total fear being fed consciously, <laughs> you know, uh, by the totalitarians, you know, that uh, want, you know, to maintain these places and emotions of fear and terror in the hearts and minds of the public because it's easier to control a scared population. Yeah. But to take this image of a rug 
a soft, warm carpet being laid down on the floor of the nursery so that we as children can experience ourselves and play in warmth and comfort. So if we can believe that there is a spiritual intention, that there is assistance, that there is grace, that spirit is with us, we can make decisions and choices that are more appropriate for everyone concerned, even though they may cause hurt or pain or, you know, separation. You know, there is this, you know, it's like the flower has to separate and get out from underneath the shade of the tree so it can blossom, grow, and bloom. So there is a place for separation. Every month, the moon separates from the sun, and we have a full moon. And then it comes back, and we have a new moon. So there's always this breathing in and out. There's always this uniting with another, and then, you know, uh, pulling back within, and uniting with another. You know, the yin and the yang, the day and the night, it's always this coming and going. And, and here we're dealing with the fixed cross. Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius. This is the fixed cross that, you know, is not so into change. Yeah. Got the wind coming over. Maybe I should just stop. <laughs> okay, so. Let me close with what? When in a crowded subway station with my train about to leave, I will manage the situation and not forget to breathe. I had in there that I need to manage the situation, but I changed it to will because a mantra, you know, the repetition of the mantra is a programming of the subconscious mind. So you don't want to program the subconscious mind. I need, I need to manage this. I need to, you know, I need to do better. I need to, no, 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 no. What you want to do is you want to program your subconscious mind that you're already there. <laughs> you know, I will manage it. I will manage this. Come hell or high water, come, you know, war or peace, come, you know, separation or union. I'm going to manage it. We're going to do this. We're moving on. We're moving through. It's part of the growing process. And at the other end, you know, at, you know outside, you know, this wormhole, there is going to be what Aquarius is about, the expansion of consciousness to the ultimate truths of the universe. So we're really seeing ourselves, the nature of life and love, and ultimate truths through all of this. Let's keep our eye on the, you know, eye on that train. And it may feel like, yeah, it's like, you know, you're at the airport and, you, you know, you're running to the gate because the plane is about to leave or you're at the subway and there's, you know, you have the train here. You just made it. You hit stoplights or I mean, it's just like, you know, we're in this place, Jupiter, Neptune, Pisces, where there's chaos and there's blocks. 
Saturn square the moon's nodes. You know, it's like, oh, God, you know, I got to get through this and get through that and get through that and clean my play off. And, you know, just like, you know, so this can be, you know, tension producing, anxiousness, anxiety producing, insomnia kind of stuff. You know, so it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, breathe, step into the witness, the observer. This too shall pass, and this, you know, brings us up to the level, right, of the true king, queen, authority, master of the universe. Ow! (laughs) (laughs) So, live long and prosper. What do we have here? The song for this week. Uh, yeah, I, I just come up with, I, I love the Allman Brothers. They're one of my, uh, you know, one of my old time favorites and Midnight Rider. I don't own the clothes I wear and the road goes on forever. I got one more silver dollar, but I'm not going to let them catch me. They're not going to let them stop me. Not going to, you know, they're not going to catch the Midnight Rider. Be a Midnight Rider. Don't be caught. Liberate. Step into the unknown. There is assistance there waiting for you. One last time. When in a crowded subway station with my train about to leave, I will manage the situation and not forget to breathe. (laughs) Namaste. Aloha. So much breath. <laughs> so much love. Ciao, ciao. Tanya's 20 minutes, just to let you know. So there's a good amount of time here. Okay. I have found the time and the degree of the new moon. And it's going to be at 12, 11. It's going to be 11 degrees and a half of Aries. And it's going to be... Friday, April the 1st at 2.30 a.m. So Friday night, we got that. Yeah, see, the moon is going to, the moon is going to, Friday's going to be weird because, yeah, start the day. Mm -hmm. With the new moon. So Thursday Thursday night, the new moon starts happening 
and right before the right before the new moon, the moon's gonna conjunct Mercury. Mercury's gonna be at ten. So there will be uh sixteen degrees between Neptune and Mercury, but then you got Mercury at ten, the sun at twelve, the moon at twelve and Chiron at thirteen. So it's Mercury conjunct Sun, conjunct Moon, conjunct Chiron. So it's a new moon plus Chiron and Mercury. Mm. Yeah. And we know mm. we, we know that we know that Chiron is the wounded human. Right? Yeah. The wounded, the wounded sentient being called humans. So let's let's uh let's listen to Tanya first because she may talk about this new moon. If she didn't last week, I don't remember last week. You know, it's like yeah. it's ancient history. New moon. Okay. And then uh we'll have a little bit of time left and I'll go Hunt up uh, 12 degrees of Aries for the Sabian symbol. Okay. So, all right. We'll see you about. I'll, I'll stick around here and we'll talk to you in a bit. Okay. And welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an upcoming event to help us understand the dynamics in the stars, in the numbers, to guide us through the energy shifts in play right now. And so this particular forecast is all about Aries because we're celebrating not only the equinox, which happened on March 20th when the sun moved into Aries, but on April 1st, universal time, the sun and moon will merge together for the Aries new moon. And every year, this Aries new moon presents a new beginning of the whole zodiac because Aries is the first sign. Now, because it's happening on April 1st this year, there's an extra surge of letting go of the past and really starting fresh in a very significant way. So let's look at the time first. It happens at 7.24 a.m. Universal Time, and that's in Greenwich, England. And that would be 2.24 a.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 11.24 p.m., in the last minutes of March, on March 31st, Pacific time. And of course, you don't need to be in Aries. Aries is somewhere in your chart. One of your houses is ruled by Aries, most likely, unless it's in between two signs. But most people have a house ruled by Aries. You certainly have Aries in your birth chart. And so this new moon will significantly impact you wherever it takes place in your chart. So Let's go right into it. So April is highly significant in so many ways because it is a 10 universal month in 2022. And 10 reduces to 1. And this new moon that starts the the zodiac, per se, in Aries, is a birthday in so many ways, 
numerologically because of it being on April 1st. So we've got a 10-1 universal month in April that starts on April 1st and then the, the new moon on that same day. Now, it gets even more exciting because the sun and moon will be at 11 degrees in Aries. And 11 is made up of two ones. It creates a portal, a gateway, through which you walk through. And the way to really be present in this gateway is to leave the past behind. So the gateway is like an initiation into the present moment. And if you're in the present moment, you don't think about the future. You do not remember the past and worry about this or that or feel guilt trips or are stuck in a belief system. You literally are present. And so all these ones set up a code that is really powerful, especially since the last six new moons, which are comprised of the last three in 2021 and the first three in 2022, we're all at 12 degrees, each one, all six. And now we've moved to 11 degrees on the 1st of April in a 10-1 month. So very, very significant new beginnings. And because Mars rules Aries, and Aries is the first sign of the zodiac, Mars is energy. Mars is momentum and initiative. And so we have a lot of drive now to move ahead, to just literally not look back anymore, to leave it all behind. And it's helped by Mars being sextile to the new moon. Mars is actually creating a harmonious aspect of around 60 degrees to the new moon. And that is highly fortunate, especially since Venus and Saturn and Mars are creating a stellium in Aquarius, the sign of the new age. So it's highly significant how this stellium of these three planets are in harmony with Aries, which is two signs later from Aquarius. So we've got a lot of wonderful opportunities now to take your mission seriously through Saturn, to energize yourself through Mars, and just go for it. And Venus adds a sense of luxury, beauty, pleasantness, and abundance to the equation. So I wanted to say that a lot of the vernacular in the last couple of years has been around a reset, some calling it the great reset. And Aries really is saying, no, this is about a, an awakening. And especially with the stellium in Aquarius, which is the sign of awakening, forming this harmonious sense of connection with this Aries new moon. This is not a reset, which is very much about, you know, pushing a button. It's technology. It's, it's spiritual. So you can say the word reset to indicate a brand new journey that you're taking, so it's different from this sort of AI technology push the reset button. Rather, and, and that would be sort of the collective moving together as a result of external prompts. This is an internal prompt. This is very different. A great awakening happens within our hearts. It's not a, it's, it's not created externally artificially. So we want to be very open during this time to question, to research, to listen, 
and engage with the world and each other to help us all lead to that great awakening instead of the great reset, which, like I said, is almost like out of sync with your heart, right? So you're not following an order. You're literally creating internal order within you. So we need to be committed to each other. We need to be committed to our mind, body, spirit. And in doing so, we help each other to set the stage for an inner awakening that comes from love. And love plays a very big role in this Aries new moon, as you'll see in a moment. So the sun and moon are conjunct in Aries. Aries is fire and courage and action and new beginnings. Energetically, you're just free to choose your path. You feel independent. You feel courageous. And this is a new moon. So again, new beginnings, a new era. So there's a great energy here to initiate something new. And it also signifies a change in seasons. So spring in the Northern Hemisphere and autumn in the Southern Hemisphere. So we can easily break negative habits now. We don't have to give our power away. We can set ourselves free to birth a new life, per se. Now, here comes the love part. So the sun and moon are conjunct Chiron. Chiron just moved to 12 degrees right before this new moon. The new moon's at 11 degrees. Both are in Aries. And Mercury's there too at 9 degrees Aries. Now what Chiron brings to the equation is healing through the heart. And so this is a very important time now to really be open to profound healing, healing of the past. Remember, we're in the newness of it, so we are just letting go of past habits and and past ways of thinking about how life should go for us and what the expectations are. And we're just literally saying no and cleansing ourselves, and that's what Chiron is helping us do. So there's tremendous compassion. There's no guilt. There's this just this connection of love between us and others, the ability to move energy for everybody's highest good, and also feeling connected in a profound way to your destiny, to to just feel the sense of you've reached a point where there's an inner need to always focus on healing whatever moments have just passed and then uplifting the energy around you as a result because you're not stuck in whatever pain was created and you're letting it go. And so this means you're you're utilizing the discipline as well that Saturn brings from that stellium in Aquarius. Saturn in Aquarius brings discipline to focus on the excitement of breakthroughs as opposed to being stuck in the past, right? So Saturn in Aquarius is an incredible experience we're having now where we are literally dealing with, well, how do I use this energy in order to create a new sense of breakthroughs that are not based on a stuck regimen that the Capricorn represents Capricorn is where the stallion took place in early 2020 on January 12th, right before everything shifted, right? So we're now really moving into the Aquarian age. That's just a little bit of a side note. But in terms of the love conjunction with Sun, Moon, and Chiron, 
what we have here is an opportunity to reach into our holy inner sanctuary, which is really a daily commitment. So you can call it prayer, you can call it meditation, but you're opening your heart to love in a daily basis. The heart is where love resides. It resides there permanently. It is always there for you, ready and willing to embrace and comfort you when you choose to remember to invite love in. So to understand you are never unloved and you're never without love. And this is an incredible state to be in when we take that time to get in touch with that inner sanctuary. We will always understand that love is our true nature because we feel at peace. We feel whole. And we know deep within ourselves that love is always with us. So love is you. When it seems like you're without love, right, when there is another frequency that's interfering that you're allowing in and you feel unloved and abandoned and you feel like you're in an inhospitable world, you actually deep down in your inner sanctuary, when you get in touch with that every day, you understand this not to be true. It only appears that way because of your choice to walk through that gateway and choose illusion instead of the present moment to choose to play the game of separation, meaning me against you or us against them. So by establishing that daily routine, so again, we're beginning with all the ones with Aries, the new moon, we can create new routines now, right? This is a great, great time to establish a great routine to go deep within yourself and this can be whatever time of day that's convenient for you, that's comfortable for you, because it's, for, it's not for everyone to do this first thing in the morning. But in any case, make a point of doing it. Like like you have to eat every day and shower, you do this. So opening up yourself to embrace love, actually to have love embrace you, to invite love in. You're strengthening that deep inner knowing, that trust, that surrender to love, and you also are realizing that being on this planet as a human being is just an opportunity to discover that you are love. So being human is not real compared to the sensitivity of feeling that you have when you're in the reality and the presence of love. That is eternal. Your life on earth is not, right? That's just transient. So love is the one energy that is ever-present. It is in everyone. It is what makes the universe run, is love, and it is there eternally without interruption. And love wants you to feel that it's present. It wants you to welcome it into your heart and delight in its comforting grace and love and so this is why we want to focus on frequencies that activate love such as gratitude gratitude is one of the fastest way to feel loved and loving and so to help us with that we have another very important transit that is happening in april actually it's exact on april 12th and that is jupiter 
conjunct Neptune. And this conjunction truly is the one this year that is giving us opportunity for growth and expansion and optimism and solutions. And it's just very, very powerful and beautiful. It's the first time since 1856 that Jupiter and Neptune have met in their own home sign of Pisces. So this is very much about dreaming big and dreaming without any boundaries. So literally let go of the expectations and just hold that trust within you, that divine flow that allows whatever frequency you're focusing on in terms of this dream of peace and joy and love on the planet that you can literally activate that at this time. So that happens 11 days after the new moon in Aries and it happens while the sun is in Aries. So it ties into this whole theme of dreams coming true and new beginnings. Now, one thing to keep in mind is love source, the universe, God does not want anyone to make sacrifices in order to prove that they love the divine. That is actually insanity and it, totally is uncalled for because no one wants, if you can imagine, you don't want your loved one to prove their love to you by making a sacrifice, right? That's not love. (laughs) So we're moving away from that paradigm. Love is totally accepting of everyone, everything, unconditionally, because that is the nature of what love is. The universe is love, eternally loving everything that is created, all the conscious sentient beings, right? This is an absolute womb of love. And all that love is able to do is to love others. So as you're awakening now, which is totally in play, right? We're all in the process of this great inner awakening. You will find yourself fully conscious and fully aware of the real nature of who you are. And there will be nothing in your environment that is not complete, that is not in eternal alignment with love. How could any kind of non-existent state be present in reality. It truly is an expression of love in however it appears. So this means that being in harmony with this frequency through this conjunction with Chiron, right, making it part of how you think as well, because Mercury is part of the stellium with the sun, moon, and Chiron, is to truly always go to that place where you are in harmony, you are forever, always with, all is one. So if you feel there is a sense of separation from love in your life, remember it is there to show you that there is love, that there is light, and that you always return to light, and that the darkness is an illusion. It's just there to help you to understand where You are in the spectrum of things. Are you filled with love? Are you heart-centered? Or are you in a state of unconsciousness? 
where you're not aware and then so others or the external are pulling the strings and that's the reset feeling, right? You want the awakening feeling. And so this Aries new moon is your opportunity to take the reins like Mars and move into that truly empowered awakening of your connection to love. So have an amazing new moon. And remember, you have an incredible spiritual code that is filled with wisdom and love. And it is revealed in your birthday and your birth certificate name and your astrology. And I've created a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com where you can discover your code, your star code. And not only that, you can discover the star codes of loved ones and colleagues and friends in your life. So you have even more compassion for their path because in this code is revealed your destiny and your purpose and also the shadow sides to watch for that describe the darkness so that you awaken to the light. It's a wonderful class. It's free. It has a handout as well. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com and have a beautiful Aries new moon. And I'll see you in our next Star Codes podcast. Bye-bye for now. Pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. All right, then. We're going to look at the Sabian symbol here of the new moon position of 12 Aries. Uh, she's still not rounding up. So uh, that's why she talked about 11 degrees. But anyway. Now the picture for 12 Aries is a triangularly shaped flight of wild geese. And the keynote here, an, Ill, an idealistic reliance upon a mental image of universal order. He says here, um, the League of Germanic Cities in the late Middle Ages and El Hansa, the founder of the occult brotherhood of the Druzes in Lebanon during the era of the Crusades, has always had at least an undertone of the integration at an expansionistic level, spiritual or economic. The Hindu Hamsa, H-A-M-S-A, was the symbol of man's transcendent soul. What previous interpretations of this Sabian symbol have failed to grasp is that the flight of geese presents not only a remarkably geometrical V-shape moving through the sky, 
but also that this light is seasonal and therefore attuned to planetary rhythms. Thus, it symbolizes cosmic order in contrast with the social-political order within a nation, which is represented by its ruler. It is order made visual on the background of the clear sky. It is a celestial type of order, even though it is earth-born birds which reveal it by their ability to keep their flight structured. The symbol therefore refers to the soul consciousness as visualized by the heaven-oriented mind. Yet this soul consciousness can be called transcendent because it has not yet become incarnated. Ooh. We have to consider what it pictures in contrast to the preceding symbol. A basic dualism of consciousness is thus suggested. We are arising a potential conflict between cosmic and social principles of order. The principle of cosmic order polarizes the all-too-human reliance on the social concept of law and order. Now, the previous, previous symbol here was the power resulting from the formal integration of the collective desire for order and is the ruler of a nation. So Aries 11 degree is the ruler of a nation. The ruler is singular, which indicates a monarch or a dictator. So we got that going on. And that's that. Now, we've got three minutes left here. What is another, what is another look at here really quickly? He read 22 Saturn. Let's, let's look at, let's look, 13 Aries is where Chiron, that's the very next one. So Chiron's sitting right here. <laughs> is an unexploded bomb reveals an unsuccessful social protest. <clears throat> oh, my. An immature evaluation of the possibility of transforming suddenly the status quo. Yeah, that's what we got going on here. We've got transformation in the status quo here over there in, uh, in Eastern Europe, right? This symbol pictures the result of a particular attempt to resolve the conflict 
between two concept feelings of order. Resolution by violence fails because the ego power at this stage of the process of individualization is far too strong. The state, in quotes, thwarts attempts at popular revolution because these are premature expressions of a consciousness which is not free but can only react wildly to the constraints and to a central ruling power. It is thus a symbol of immature refusal to conform in the name of an over-idealistic desire for harmony and peace. Hmm. Thinking of Mr. Putin here and his ego and his activities there in uh, Ukraine here. Adolescent frustration. Does Putin strike you as a man frustrated? Yes, does. Anyway, there's a couple of nuggets for your contemplation. And I wish you all a good week. It's a, one of those tricky, tricky weeks of always. No one around. And, uh, I wish you a, 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 a good, safe week. There's more flowers coming out. It's the beginning of pollen season. You know? So, uh, namaste, my friend. Namaste, namaste Richard. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Rama. Let's have the phone number here. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everyone. We're going to take a little hour here to go on this conference call. You want to give that number one more time, Rama? 720-716-7301. And the PIN? 353-863-POUND. Okay, we'll see you there for this next hour, everyone. And then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station 2 at the top of this following hour. Coming up. Yay, B-Best Radio, best radio there is. Namaste, everyone. See you on the conference for now. Okay, Ram, is this the one you picked? Yeah. Welcome back, everyone. That was fantastic, Ram. Yeah. Um, Sacred Secrets of Sound. And as you are capable of having a moment to do stuff like this, uh, do it in your time at home and with others too. Uh, the power of the sacred secrets of sound is what we need right now. <laughs> yes, always, yet 
very particular to this wonderful time we're in now. So this says, many have heard at first there was the word, yet documents, um, yet does this really mean all of existence first sprang from sound, connecting religions, magic, and modern physics with ancient knowledge of Egypt, Tibet, native tribes, origin stories of religions, and more. Experts across across fields use sacred geometry and quantum physics to analyze humanity's universal links with sound. Discussing evolution and the Big Bang in relation to consciousness, Greg Braden, William Henry, Billy Carson, Nassim Haramin, Robert Grant, Dr. Teresa Bullard, and others explore the origins of consciousness in our universe regarding vibrations, frequency, and the sounds of creation. Oh, to be in a room with this bunch. Right now, here it comes. Ready, Rama? Okay, this is 32 minutes, everybody. 32 minutes of bliss. Point at forks. These are those forks, forks. These are those forks, forks. Just a second. Yeah, I gotta move that all the way to the beginning. Yeah. How did that happen, Rama? Don't know. It's coming. Oh, it's coming, everybody. Hopefully. There we go. Originally was never spoken 
but it was felt in the body. And this is where the relationship between sound and vibration becomes very important because ultimately sound is only a vibration brought into an audible range. In the Hindu tradition, the word was with Brahman and the word was Brahman. The very first Hebrew letter, Aleph, which starts the whole process is also like an out breath. It's like, you know, it's a sound. The sound is like the expression of the thought from that universal mind or that divine source. The thoughts being expressed out through the sound, which then manifests material universe material. When we come over into the Americas, the Pueblo Indians talk about the spider, how she sang the world into existence. In Aztec mythology, the god Quetzalcoatl used a conch shell to create the vibration that formed the first wave of life. The Inuit say, the raven made the world and the waters with the beat of his wings. So it seems that no matter where we go or what time period, there's a belief that sound was fundamental to creation. And equally remarkable, our own genesis as human beings may well have started in a similar way. When that embryo becomes less than a millimeter in size, right, very close to a millimeter but not quite a millimeter, the embryo already starts to develop the first aspects of the inner ear. So the very first sense organ that is developed within the embryo is the inner ear. But then at 16 to 24 weeks, the neurodevelopment has taken place to a point where all my five senses come online, except my eyes are closed and I'm in the dark, and my nose and mouth are filled with fluids, so those aren't active. But sound travels through water five times better than through air, so my total experience when I'm in the womb is hearing and vibration sense. That sound coming in to the fetus, to the embryo, is essential for the development of the fetus. The mother's voice, as well as voices and sounds from the environment outside, the language that is spoken by the mother, by the father, those things are being heard by that developing fetus. And as they're coming in through its own ears, it's wiring its nervous system. There are three times as many connections from the ears to the brain as there are from the eyes to the brain. So the sounds coming in through the ears feed the neurological system. The auditory nerve directly connects to every organ in the body. It's like we're baptized in sound and vibration and water. And we all have our own mini evolution that takes place. We all have our own Big Bang. 
In the beginning was the void, and all of a sudden there was an explosion of me. Those sounds that it continues to hear and learn develop its perception, that develops personality, develops the way the mind thinks based on the language they speak, and so forth. The Gnostics believed that it was our soul that manifests our physical body. Our physical body is made in the image of God, and its purpose ultimately is a vehicle for the soul as it moves its way through this matrix. Sound is the first sense to develop in the womb, and the last sense to go when we die. Many ancient cultures had practices for midwiving birth and death using sound, music, spoken or sung prayers, knowing the importance of these critical thresholds. That's very powerful because then that means that hearing and sound must be coming directly from source. And that perhaps sound as the first sense is the way that we can most directly connect with source. Many traditions around the world use symbols, instruments, and songs to express their origins. In the Gnostic tradition, existence is represented as a circle with a dot in the center. Countless lines radiate from the dot. The periphery is considered to be the underworld, actually our waking life, also known as the dream of separation. The lines connecting to the center represent a state closer to who we really are. The center point represents our core existence, which we can connect to in deep sleep. essentially, in the beginning, are the oldest living culture on Earth. They have been playing the didgeridoo for at least 150,000 years. And what they do is they take this root and they hollow it out and then make it into almost like a bugle. The tones and the frequencies that come out of it are spaced out in a way that actually encode information. And they say that the sound of the didgeridoo connects us to the dream time where the ancestors reside and where we come from before birth, and where we go after we die. Australian Aborigines speak of song lines, or song paths, that were sung by their primordial ancestor spirits, who walked across the landscape, singing its landforms into being. For the Aborigines, these songs are ongoing and need to keep being sung. Song lines are vibratory paths that exist in a kind of parallel dimension that the aboriginals use to navigate over vast territories and to gain knowledge. It wasn't until I took a trip to Tibet and went into a number of the monasteries high in the Himalayas that I began to understand the mystical secret of sound and its relationship to creation. 
What I saw were series of mandalas that were placed on the walls. And the monks told me, this is the secret. And I said, well, well, what does that mean? How does it work? And he said, a long time ago, we had no way to record sound. But we know that if we project sound into matter, it will create a pattern. So what you see on the temple walls are the patterns that are reminding the monks and the nuns that if they create a very specific sound to match that pattern, then they are reproducing the sound of their ancestors. Many ancient cultures put a sacred or special value on song and the spoken word. We're talking about words, we're talking about spelling, and so we're talking about casting spells. That's why they call it spelling. And so words have power. The ancients really knew this, so they chose their words very, very carefully. Words were really handpicked because they understood the power of words. There was a time, not long ago, where humans could say, my word is as good as gold. And it was as good as a signed contract. The power to create with language comes from absolute coherence, alignment, and integrity between what we think, say, and do. By the words that we speak, we are influencing that field and that manifestation process. But there's certain words, certain power words, certain ancient divine words that were often held very secret because of the power they possess that were often used in ceremony, magical operations, and so forth. Even in modern times, scholars and inventors, such as Nikola Tesla, have pondered the many deep and mysterious roles that sound plays in the creation process. Tesla had a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, that if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, that you have to think of it in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. I really think he was touching on something really important, really fundamental, that matter is not a thing. There's actually no thing in what we call things, matter. There's actually just energy, vibration, frequency, oscillations. When you look at an atom really, really close, you don't see little billiard balls. The atom is made out of 99.9999999% space, and the part that's not space is a little electromagnetic field that's fluctuating. And to think of that as something solid is incorrect. Can we be fooled by what we think we see? A pivotal figure in ancient Greece warned of the dangers of believing what we perceive with our eyes. Plato is considered the father of Western philosophy. And he believed that we don't live in the real world, that we live in the shadow of the real world. And he conceived an allegory called the cave. And in this allegory, he described a group of prisoners who were shackled together. Behind the prisoners was a fire. And in between the fire and the prisoners 
were other people who were playing with puppets that were casting shadows on the wall. The prisoners all believed that the shadows that they were seeing represented the real world. And then in his allegory, Plato allowed one of the prisoners to escape. He went out into the real world and then returned and was actually blinded by the light of the real world. Seeing this, the prisoner said, whoa, we, we, we want to stay in the shadow world. We don't want to be blinded by the light. And this became a, a, a way of describing our relationship to, to reality. Is it possible that our sense of hearing is more dependable than our sense of sight? In Eastern cultures, the ear is considered to be more receptive, yin, and feminine, while the eyes are considered to be more active, yang, and masculine. The current age we live in has placed more emphasis on yang or visual information than on information we receive from being receptive and listening. If we hear two tones that are one hertz apart, we can hear the difference as a kind of pulsing binaural beat. But if we look at two colors that are one nanometer apart, we cannot discern the difference visually. So this implies that the ears are more accurate sense perception than the eyes. American-British scientist David Bone said the world we see is like a holographic image, a kind of external tapestry of impressions composed of interference patterns of waves. What he did was he recognized that patterns tended to show up repeatedly and why would that be? Why would there be patterns? After pondering that for many years, he came up with a beautiful description of the way he viewed the world, which involves something that he called the implicate order. But what it means essentially is that there is something there that already exists. It's pre-existing and it needs to be activated. So that's where the sound comes in as a creative essence. If you take a tuning fork and you hit it up against the crystal, you are going to resonate the fork and the crystal. And they're both going to be oscillating in a phase of coherency and incoherency. But at some point, they're going to come into coherency. They're going to be in sympathetic resonance. There's something implicit in that crystal that will respond to that tuning fork. So that's what the implicate order means. Today, people understand that we live in a matrix. And they understand that sometimes that matrix is not a very comfortable place. And they're looking for ways to go beyond the matrix. And what we're discovering is that sound is perhaps the key, literally, of life. It's the key to opening the door to higher realities. It's the key to opening doors within ourselves. So intimately, we know that the way through the matrix is to raise our vibration. How do we raise our vibration? 
The universe offers many hidden clues, some of which have to do with sound and mathematics. Spiritual teacher and philosopher George Gurdjieff traveled the globe, uncovering some of these ancient puzzle pieces. Gurdjieff was a Russian mystic and composer who devised what he called the Law of Threes, which essentially states that for any phenomena to come into existence, you have to have what he described as a holy affirming, a holy denying, and then a holy reconciling force. And unless all three forces are present, a phenomena is not going to manifest in reality. Every number in creation is part of a sequence in which a, another aspect of divine power becomes expressed into the world. So there's a particular power of one, power of two, and three then is the next in the sequence. After we go from the unity to the division into polarity, polarity allows movement to take place. It allows attraction and repulsion. It allows evolution to take place. An ordinary or mundane example of the law of three is your car. Your car has three gears. It has a forward gear, it has a reverse gear, and a neutral gear. All three are essential. The third element between the two opposite polarities could simply be neutral between positive and negative. It could also be understood, though, as the particular union of the positive and negative, like a masculine and feminine to then create a child. That's what you would see in something like the Egyptian tradition, where you would see that the two components would be Shekmet on one side as a feminine component, Atah on the other as a masculine component. And when they unite, they create Nefertum, the beauty of fullness of creation as their child. that Gurdjieff references is the law of octaves. This says that all vibrations moving through matter and through man ascend, descend, grow stronger or weaker precisely as a musical octave develops. Gurdjieff says the whole universe is structured in octaves. I think he's actually accurate because the whole universe is vibrational. Therefore, octaves are a fundamental part, a doubling of vibration, infinitely, perhaps, basically the structure of the universe. The human cell is one such example. If we just look at the cell, as that cell becomes fertilized with that seed of life, the cell starts to take on a kind of a resonance, a frequency, we could say a sound even. And then as it starts to multiply itself, the one divides through the cell mitosis, it becomes two. That's that one to two ratio is the same that we can relate to the octave. There's a harmonic ratio that's starting to happen there. We have the one to the two, the two to the four, the four to the eight, the eight to the 16, the 16 to 32. So it keeps doubling. So it's following this harmonic sequence. You can also see a lot of correlations between the cell division and the flower of life, which is a sacred geometry. 
So you have the one, and then it divides and it becomes two, and you have the two kind of overlapping. You have the best Pisces, and then you have the four, and then as you get seven and eight, you start to form that seed of life from the center of the flower of life. These same rules that govern harmony and sound and music are the same rules that apply to sacred geometry and what becomes beautiful and harmonic. And life-enhancing within the geometric forms. We've got seven notes in the octave: Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Si. And when you look at the mathematics, you see certain things show up there that we see reflected. In how the universe is constructed. For instance, when you look at a piano and you see there's two black keys and three black keys and two black keys and three black keys and there's two white keys with a missing black key, right? Why is that? Why aren't there black keys in between each one? That's what Kajib called the Mi Fa bridge. Do Re Mi Fa. Mi and Fa is a half step instead of a full step. Full step, full step, full step, half step. Full step, full step, full step. At the octave, half step. Two links where we have half steps. It's why there's no straight lines in nature. When the branch is growing, it's going through its do re mi. The the seed is splitting open. Do. A little shoot comes up, pushes through the soil. That's re. Then a stalk starts to form. That's mi. It can't bridge the mi fa gap. And so it just starts another doll, and that's why when it gets up to this point, it forks. And each of those forks forks, and each of those forks forks, and that forms a fractal pattern. Gurdjieff's Mi Fa Bridge could be compared to what ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras referred to as the diatonic comma. In Egyptian times. They understood that there was a particular gap between the archetypal blueprint for creation that exists on a higher plane level, and it's actually manifesting down through multiple planes until it crystallizes that pattern into a physical structure. And there's often at least a slight incongruence between the perfect ideal form and how it manifests on the physical plane. The idea of Pythagorean comma was then used to illustrate the idea that everything to manifest in the physical world is just a little bit off its actual perfect archetype. But in the Egyptian tradition, it was understood that that slight imperfection is what made it completely unique and beautiful, and that if things were 100% the pattern of the true ideal higher archetype, it may simply Disappear from physical creation to begin with. Like in the creation of a pearl, or in the seeding of a crystal, these slight imperfections allow the formation of fractals, a pattern you see again and again throughout the universe. In the 1970s, mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot was working with the newly developing personal computers, and especially working with graphics. They started plugging equations into the computer, and out pop these graphics that are called 
fractals. And what they noticed is that no matter how many times they repeated this equation, that the fractal was a mirror image at every level of magnification. What's interesting about this is that if they wanted to change any aspect of the fractal, they had to go back to the original equation and change it. Now, when they were working with the Mandelbrot set, they noticed that the Mandelbrot set resembled a meditating Buddha. So they went back in and changed the equation and came up with what they call the Buddha bra. Now, this is really extraordinary because it tells us that if we're made in the image of God, that perhaps we are fractals of our creator. And this aligns perfectly with Buddhism, that we're all trying to return to our original and divine nature. Author and scientist Michael Hayes said that the resonance between biology and cosmology shows that life is music, complete with overtones. And it's no more strikingly present than in the helical structure of life itself, DNA. Hayes called this finding the Hermetic Code. Hermes is the Greek name for the Egyptian god Thoth. He's the god of magic and alchemy. It also is connected with the concept of passing through portals and gateways. When the Greeks talked about Hermes, they were referring to this ultimate ancient knowledge, which is called the Emerald Tablet. Most famous in the Emerald Tablet is the second verse that says, as above, so below. What it means is that everything is in correspondence, that what happens on earth has a counterpart in the heavenly realms. In the Bible, this is part of the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. That's a hermetic expression, an expression of his law of correspondences. And essentially it says that you and I are a fractal of all of creation. We're essentially a printout of the cosmos. That what happens within us also happens in the greater cosmos and vice versa. The Jewish Kabbalistic tree offers a similar message. The Kabbalistic tree is typically described not just as one tree, but a set of four trees that are tied at the root. In the Kabbalistic tradition, it was described as a mirroring, as above, so below, type of relationship between these four trees that were tied to the same sephirot at the center. What we found was that the center of each one of those trees at the root that connected them was this first analytical solution to gravity. So that gravity is the hub, is the force that holds all of the knowledge together, right? All of the information together. Without gravity, nothing would coalesce. Nothing would become one thing. It would all fly apart and nothing would be able to like make a star, make a galaxy, make a planet, or even a proton. 
and so as above, so below has this aspect that all of the higher aspects of creation are mirrored into the physical world in which we live. And once we understand that core pattern through the use of sacred geometry, then we can see how both of these are going to be connected and how our actions on the physical world connect to and affect the higher worlds and how the higher worlds create and sustain and affect us here on this level. Another way to look at it is that a drop of water contains the ocean and the ocean contains a drop of water. Everything in the universe is entangled. The information of all the protons in the universe is present in one proton because they are all entangled to each other. We know in laboratory that two particles can be entangled in such a way that even if the other one is on the other side of the universe, if you modify this one, if you tickle this one, the other one will laugh. It's <laughs> instantaneous. <laughs> Cause and effect is one of the many principles of the universe. Is sound the cause of creation? Or is it the effect of creation? If you want to look at it from the quantum physics idea, is sound a particle or a wave? Well, the answer is, of course it is. It is both. It is causal, it is effectual. And it affects us as well as effects us. Ancient cultures use the metaphor that the universe is actually a cosmic symphony singing a song to the creator. As ancient wisdom aligns with modern science, this concept is supported by quantum theory, which also proposes that the cosmos is a kind of symphony of vibrations. Many ancient cultures believed our unique role was to play our particular note as perfectly as possible to make the creation complete. This translates as be who you are. Up next on Sound of Creation, we explore the mathematics behind music. Join us as we uncover the sonic secrets behind sacred geometry. Good one. I just wanted to say, I just thought of it, I thought of it a couple of times, but uh, tomorrow night is the Academy Awards, everyone. I think we should take a look at that. Just put it on your calendar there. Here we go. So what's your, what are you going to do now? This one, Life yeah. Beyond Death? Uh-huh. Oh, well, let me read this real, okay. real quick. Um, okay. What perspective? What perspectives can Tegetans offer humanity about life after death? Is it possible where we come from when we are born is the same place as where we go to when we die? If we die. <laughs> it's me. Mm -hmm. Swaru'u of Eros shares her expanded 
understanding, understanding, overstanding of the universe with Gosnia Duzak regarding what individuals experience beyond this life. According to Swaru'u, all souls are fragments of source, choosing to experience existence. So each individual projects what they witness while dying according to their own consciousness. And again, we have touched this on this today before now, that that's the end of the old and the new is no death at all. Here we go. will find. So there can be no archon traps 
waiting to force souls to reincarnate. That is only found because that is what they expect to see. Then heaven or hell is the result of guilt or what a person firmly believes she deserves. And it is the very person that is generating that. So everything is due to the mental control or perception that each soul has. But this is easily overcome with the knowledge that you are going wherever you have to go by right. It is the idea of blame, of karma, which is nothing more than a religious belief that forces souls to return. You cannot be separated from the source, because one is the source, and the source is everywhere. In itself, the whole world outside you is illusory. Everything is within you. Everything you want to see, experience, your reality, universal laws, scientific laws, everything is a great illusion. What you look for, you find. So fighting for which God is the true one, fighting whether or not there is a God and how this God is, what is the most important particle, the primordial, is meaningless. Everything is perception, so everything is true. Or everything is a lie, except one thing. Who observes? Yourself. Your soul. That is the only unquestionably real thing. Free your mind, and you will free yourself from all matrix. You said that after we die, we are going to the source, but also that it is a high astral. So what is it? Or is it the same? Because the astral would be something like 4D. But the source is the source. It transcends everything, doesn't it? I only use familiar words, but it's something I have to clarify. That place isn't any frequency. It is everything. It is all frequencies together when you access the all, when you are able to be everything. Being everything, being aware and conscious of everything that exists and what has always existed, all equally easy to access. Past, present and future are mixed, converge into the same. That is the original source. And there you are, and there you go when you die. Unlike other people, I have total memory of that place. It is everything. Whatever you want, you are. Everything you think, you manifest immediately. You are everything. Everything is at your fingertips. You are literally an omnipotent being. There, you understand that it was you and only you who created everything. And I mean the whole infinite in creation, infinite in space, and infinite in time. Although you do not or never want to get out of there, that also fulfills itself. 
because you have never left there. You have only chosen to experience only a small part at a time, a life, an incarnation with an apparent linearity of animated events in a line. Because from the source, everything is at the same time, without time. And the without time being everything also includes the linear. It is a feeling of love and infinite and total integration, which envelops you like a warm blanket in winter. A total realization that it is you who has done everything, that you are integration and love. No good, no evil. Everything is you. Only unimportant contrasts, only valid from points of view limited to certain experiences that you understand from there and overcome, exceed, look for more. You always look for more. You understand at that moment that you are everything and that it's okay, that you are by definition the creative source, therefore indestructible. We are all literally the source. We are all the same person experiencing multiple incarnations simultaneously and outside of time. It is only linear as perceived from within an incarnation. There is no past. There is no future. Everything is or everything is your ideas. You incarnate in a dinosaur or a gray alien of the future. And you have done it and you are and you are embodied as such and more infinitely more simultaneously everything is a sea of consciousness that is you you want a challenge that's why you incarnate being the original source is the maximum literally and infinitely the maximum it is the very concept of God but you want a challenge and you return to where you wish to be. You make your plan. You start to think what would be good to experience, like programming a video game. You make your map of life, your characters, what will happen, the outcome, everything. And from there, you decide that by frequencies, you will forget. From forgetting all to just a little, as the Tigetans who remember a lot but also forget. And you enter your own game, your incarnation, and live what you have designed. But only you have done it. From this point of view, there is not even mental control on the part of archons or reptiles or space lugs, because it is also you who has manifested them and you are them too. So when entering, each soul knows what it is doing from the original source because it is the original source. So it is part of the game. Humans are literally manifesting reptilians, Pleiadians, devils, 
fairies. That is why there are no victims from above. But from the point of view below, there are. Everything is included. Everything is real. And at the same time, nothing is. Only you. When you die, you will see what you want to see. Therefore, there are ghosts, fleshless beings, vampiric entities that stick to your aura. Everything. When someone dies with a lot of attachment to the body, more than normal, as in a violent death, he does not know that he has died. And as from the original source that is, everything manifests. So a body manifests as the one he had in life, called the astral body. Then he goes through the streets of the city where he lived, for example, and does not realize that he is dead. He perceives himself with clothes, shoes, everything. And since he has obsessions, he often experiences the same situation over and over again. That is why dead people begin to create alliances and an entire astral subworld when they realize they are dead. They live and relive the same traumatic situation because from that plane they all manifested. The result is a low astral world where the physical world is copied almost perfectly. Only manifested as with strange changes or deformations by the memory of the dead one who is manifesting them. Like the bathroom door too small to pass through when they have to go. And they continue like that over and over again. It is a caricature world of physical 3D. But in itself, there is not even a density gradient as we have told you. Everything is the same, only graduated by the perception of each fragment of the original source or soul. That's why gradients don't fit with 3D, 4D, or 5D with 6D. There are no gradients. Everything is a whole. Everything is the source. And there are only points of perception of each soul consciousness. How low astral worlds are generated with ghosts hovering around cemeteries and haunted houses depends on each soul. And happy worlds are also generated. Heavens, Valhalla's, Vortable, whatever they call it, it is generated. But it is still valid that to access there it is necessary to have the high frequency? Or just by being there already you have a high frequency? It's part of what helps you focus on something you want, leaving behind what you don't want. But it is your intention that matters, your focus. Don't just think about which frequency is higher than the other. You said that frequency is the result of where attention was directed. But where your attention is, is not also dictated by your frequency? It's a bit like what came first, chicken or egg. You are everything, frequency and point of attention, what is observed and who observes. You are the chicken and the egg simultaneously. 
There is nothing but you. There is no separation. It's only you. You cannot harm anyone without harming yourself. Even so, you have to defend yourself as part of the game or point of attention below. So it's not that something dictates something else, because this has been said at the beginning. Your perception is a result of that, and later that dictates the following, etc. Everything simply is. Everything simply is at the same time. No. That's right. Therefore, from above, from the point of integration, there is no mind control. It is only part of the experience. Okay. Thank you. You said that when someone believes in something, they will see it when they die. For how long will that be seen? At some point in the past, you said that when we die, we manifest our beliefs, but then they will fade away. It is not a matter of time, since it is irrelevant. The perception of animation of linear events that you call time is different in the astral. It depends on the attachments of each fragment of yourself. That you call soul. Sometimes it would take Earth time several incarnations, where you enter your life believing in Jesus and die seeing Jesus, who tells you that you must go down to pay karma, and you re-enter hundreds of times, thousands maybe, until on your own you, that soul, that fragment, understands that it is only He. Who is generating everything? But is there something that releases the soul from seeing Jesus at the end, or will the soul be with Jesus forever, so to speak? And what factor would contribute to the soul finally leaving the attachment to that concept? Does it do it on its own? There, in the afterlife, he also continues to expand spiritually in contemplating the existence. Can the soul reach this conclusion from there without incarnating, or do you have to enter the incarnation again? From the most expanded point of view, from the moment you hold the concept that there is a soul that is still trapped in the religious belief or of any kind, it becomes an eternal concept. From that more expanded point of view, that soul will be trapped in it. For an eternity, forever. This leads me to another question. Here, the Catholic people pray for souls of the dead. Does this work in any way to help free these souls? Do our intentions get there? The dead ones are there. It is true what they say. They go to their own funeral. It is because it is the point of greatest attention for that consciousness. That has disembodied. So yes, they hear the prayers and the cries of the family. But from the point of view of perception of the newly disembodied or dead, those prayers only serve to further strengthen their perception when they die, convincing them to see or look for Jesus, for example. So if the dead man was doubtful, with the prayers. They are showing him the way, so to speak, but it is the way that suits the churches, those who wish to control souls. But if a person 
is very spiritual and knows what he is and has firm control over what he believes, and that is in being free. He will listen to the prayers and will be with the family, but he will go where he should go freely. He will see what he wants, ignoring the prayers. That is why the prayers in the funerals are so repetitive as mantras, because that is what they are, to put ideas into the dead man's head, because he no longer has one. They are mantras. But I insist that a person, free consciousness, is immune to this, if his believing relatives pray. If the dead person is confused, as he usually is, praying will help him find his way, yes, because he listens. But it is up to the living to help him where they want the dead to go or see. That is why it is dangerous. Those who were not guided will be trapped in their same infinite loops where they will not know what to do and will remain obsessed with whatever has their attention. And what would family members have to do instead of praying, if they can do something? Talk to the dead, that he is free and forgiven for whatever he has done, for his failures in life. This is freeing karma. You can pray, not religiously, but spiritually, leading them to follow where they want to go, beyond, light, source, whatever. No religious characters, right? Sure, that's a good idea. Therefore, talk to the dead because they listen. In fact, you are there surrounded by disembodied ones all the time. They walk the same streets. Some know they are dead. Others do not. I imagine it works the same with animals. Animals or not, it is the same being a dog, cat or flea. It is part of the experience, like being a man or a woman. It is all at once. And should we go to the cemetery to speak to them out loud? Is it necessary? Yes, because all those souls listen from wherever. There are more of them there in the cemeteries for their own reasons. They manifest themselves there. But a very close person will closely follow their loved ones. So speaking to them from anywhere is enough especially with the recently deceased. How do you know if they are here still or not, and if you need to talk to them? You feel it, the need. But it is something that is also done for oneself, not only for the dead. You connect with yourself, and it reaches your deceased person. Do the dead have telepathy with the incarnated ones? Some yes, and some no. That is the problem. It is not that they do not have it, because we all have telepathy. But because of their own beliefs, they just don't have it. That is why it is necessary to speak to them aloud. And if they aren't there anyway, they won't listen, right? If I die, I don't want to waste my time in my grave or listening to people. That's right. But as there is no time... A portion or an echo of you will remain in 3D. Because everything that has always been will be from the point of view of the ether, of the source. 
but you will no longer have that point of attention. All that exists is our echo. Fascinating. And I have this question, Svaru. In the end, how are these souls liberated? The ones who do not know they are dead. They do not incarnate, right? They stay there? They also evolve with or without physical body. And at the same time, they stay there, yes. All is, nothing ceases to be. Nothing is destroyed. Nothing is created. Everything is already. It's just what you want to see and in what sequence. There is evolution everywhere. As long as you perceive and control with your intention to have an experience of progressive linear events, which we call time. In the case of the ghost, that every night again and again passes dragging its chains through the same hallway of an old abandoned house, so it will continue forever. Even so, from his point of view, something should change and not present the same obsession. Every evolution confirms the concept that something is and progresses towards something else, bigger, expanded, or whatever, generally by the accumulation of knowledge and awareness. That is why it is linked to a temporal progression. But this time is only from the point of view of the person or soul in question. And where the dead are, they don't have this concept and this experience? They do not evolve? They lack this concept? Why can they free themselves from there? They are wherever they think of manifesting whatever they want to themselves. From the most expanded point of view, many souls are trapped. From the concept of souls themselves, they only experience their own evolution or progression. Then, from that point of view, nobody gets lost and nobody gets trapped. Okay. Could you go to the cemetery and talk to the dead in group to free them en masse? Oh, yes. But remember that being dead doesn't mean they will be receptive to you. It's the same as saying, I go downtown to the central square of the city to stand on a box with a megaphone and talk to those who pass there to free them. They are as close as the living because they are people, the same ones too. But the dead are happy in that astral? Do they get used to being there? Yes, some live there. They are. They choose to be there. Others are immensely unhappy. They form clans, groups, alliances, families, as with the living. Yes, you could make a YouTube channel for the dead. It doesn't matter, seriously. It will reach more dead ones than if you just stand on the box with a megaphone in the square. So somehow they are aware that they already live a parallel reality. There is an infinite amount of parallel realities. But let's say that one is the most strongly linked to what is perceived as the material or real 3D world. The dead see each other, eat, can they touch themselves? Yes, as stated above, they form alliances and clans and everything. But as with everything, 
they can only see what is within their frequency perception range. Do they eat? In their perception, some yes, others no. Can they be extracted? Do they talk with ETs? There, they manifest everything they can think of. Everything. Have you extracted some? Not that I know of. I do not want to go there, to this world. Then you won't go. What's the problem? Knowing this frees you, because you already know what not to do. And if you don't believe in reincarnation but heaven, you never reincarnate? Heaven you will find to suit you. But yes, you will reincarnate, because from the heaven, by definition, it also opens up more possibilities for the awareness. It is part of the collective manifestation of Catholicism. They must go their own way, and you, yours. Yes, and at least it's important for the people to know that they are the ones with the creative power. I think this is the most important message here. You believe what you believe, but at least you know that you are creating it, and that you choose your path, even after death. Maybe soon I will go to the cemetery. I really want to. I will talk to the dead. Okay, but when you leave, order them not to follow you, because they do that. And no children to the cemetery. Their aura is not yet well developed. They are very jealous and resentful of the children, because their vitality charge is full. And that may influence their entire life. Oh my. My mother used to take me to the Catholic cemetery to go talk to my brother who passed over at six and a half. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Well, this one is Rama picked this one for the next one. This is one that's from the past in the sense that we didn't play it um, when it first came out, but this is Teresa Ballard. Let's do it. It's going to take me a moment to yeah, get Yeah, I'll read it while you do that. Dreaming as a spiritual practice. Learn how to use dreaming as a spiritual practice that connects you with your own divine self. Teresa Ballard takes us into the realm of dream time to give us useful methods for connecting our intellectual mind with the intuitive side. She identifies four categories of dreaming, the benefits of each, and how we can start working with them. This includes deepening our awareness during dreaming by learning their symbolic language, Mm -hmm. connecting with higher self for conscious dreaming, and the steps you can take to become a lucid dreamer. Was that enough time to get there, Mm -hmm. Commander? Mm. Okay, this is 36 minutes. Let's do it. Here we go.
And then we have some recall of that work. Let's first talk about dreams that are purely subconscious. A good majority of our dreams tend to be like this, at least until we start to engage with them more consciously. These are when the deeper parts of our brain are trying to process events from our day. Maybe they were influenced by what we ate or something we saw on TV or some other stimuli that we were exposed to during our day. Such dreams can often seem random and it's hard to follow their sequence. Or perhaps there are things that have been suppressed in the subconscious, such as fears, emotions, or unacknowledged parts of ourselves. And these are trying to make their way to the surface of our awareness. Or maybe something's been bothering us in the background. We haven't given it our conscious attention, or we might even be pushing it away. For example, have you ever had a dream where you did something that was so embarrassing and when you woke up from it, you were feeling a little anxious? When I was in my teens and early 20s, this was a recurring theme for me. I had dreams where I'd go out in public, but maybe I'd forgotten to put on makeup or perhaps I'd be only half dressed or something like that. And the perfectionist in me would be so embarrassed and stressed about it the whole dream until I woke up with a sigh of relief that it was only a dream. What these were revealing to me were some of my fears and insecurities. So by my mid-twenties, I really started to pay attention to this recurring message, and I decided to work on myself. As I overcame these fears in my life and stripped away much of my vanity and perfectionism that was based on insecurity, the dreams transformed until they were no longer embarrassing or stressful. When we start to more actively engage and pay attention to our dreams, they will progress from being mostly subconscious to becoming an amazing tool for growth and transformation. This is when we start to enter the realm of conscious dreaming. What is conscious dreaming? There are many levels of conscious dreaming, but it begins when our conscious mind starts to observe and become aware of what our dreams are communicating to us. At first, that awareness comes as we wake up from a dream, remember it, and contemplate its meaning. For the most part, our dreams speak in symbols, and they're usually not to be taken literally. Understanding their messages involves getting to know the various symbols and archetypal characters of our dreams. For example, when people we know show up in our dream, it's usually not about that person, but it's about what they represent to us. Every character in our dreams typically symbolizes some aspect of us, even if it's someone we know in real life. So if a family member or guide appears in one of your dreams, first ask yourself, what qualities do you tend to think or feel most about that person? Who are they to you? What role do they play in your life? What is their main characteristic or how would you describe them? At a symbolic dream level, it's likely that this person represents that aspect of you. As an example, if I think of my father as more intellectual and my mother as more intuitive, then in my dreams, they typically represent my intellectual or intuitive sides. 
Then I want to pay attention to what they're doing and how they're behaving in the dream. It's important to identify these symbols for ourselves. A dream dictionary isn't going to tell you this because they're personal symbols. There are, however, certain symbols that have universal meaning. For example, animals often have shamanic symbolism. And the go-to references that I like best when it comes to interpreting animal symbols in my dreams are the medicine cards by Jamie Sams and David Carson, as well as Animal Speaks by Ted Andrews. Sometimes we might also have alchemical symbols appear in our dream. These tend to be more archetypal, meaning they're part of a universal language of symbols. Understanding the archetypes and how they show up in our dreams is really helpful. The works of Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and Reference Guide to Alchemical Symbols can help us to better understand these archetypal symbols. In essence, our conscious mind needs to learn the language of our dreams. As we learn the symbolic language, we can later use it in a reverse way to communicate to our subconscious mind. For example, we might engage our active imagination by working with these characters and symbols through our visualization at a conscious level. We can use such methods to consciously set intentions for our dreams to give us answers to questions or to get the deeper parts of ourselves working together better. One way to do that would be to identify our intention and then to create a symbol that represents that intention. Meditate upon that symbol and intention for a while before going to bed and then carry the symbol into the dream time with you. The bottom line with all of this is that we want to become more aware so that we can harness our dreams in such a way that really aids our progression in life. The next step is to remember our dreams. Are there any tricks we can use to get better at remembering our dreams? Remembering our dreams usually comes down to two things. The first is our lifestyle practices and the second, our intentions. By lifestyle practices, we're talking about everything from our stress levels to what we eat and how late, as well as whether we consume any substances that might interfere. For example, alcohol, marijuana, sleeping pills, and many pharmaceutical drugs are things that numb or interfere with the bridge between our conscious mind and our sleep state. Watching TV late at night can also interfere with this process. When we watch TV, our mind is flooded with images and drama, which then has to be worked through during our dream time. Clearing the mind with things like meditation or a ritual practice can help us to prepare ourselves to go to sleep in a more clear state. What else can we do to have a more productive dream time? Well, meditation is a great tool to also help bridge from our conscious mind into our dreams. Having a meditation practice in general is a great place to start. Building this muscle helps us to maintain conscious awareness as we transition into deeper brainwave states of alpha, theta, and even delta as we move towards sleep. Meditating for 20 minutes right before bed gives us an opportunity to quiet our mind and set our intentions for the dream time. 
This brings us to a second important key for conscious dreaming, which is our intention. This comes down to making an effort to actively engage and create a bridge between our conscious awareness and the dream time. The more we pay attention to our dreams and consciously work with them, the more we'll remember and the more they'll reveal to us. Our first intention is to actually remember our dreams in the morning and then to write them down. The second intention is what we specifically want to dream about or receive guidance on from our dreams. Keeping a dream journal is really helpful for remembering and connecting to our dreams. Before going to bed, write down your intention for your dream time. Then, whenever you wake up, whether it's in the middle of the night or in the morning, write down anything that you can remember from the dreams. Even if you don't remember anything, just write down how you feel. This practice will help you continue building the bridge between your conscious mind and the dream time. I've had some amazing archetypal dreams in my life. One of the most impactful dreams came to me when I was working on a program for women. I was co-creating this with a colleague and we came to a place where we felt kind of stuck. We were asking, what are we missing here? We knew something was missing that's really important for us as women to understand. And we decided to meditate on this question and see what comes through. I spent a good week contemplating and meditating on it every day. And still, nothing was really coming through that was clear enough where I felt like my ego wasn't involved. So one night, I decided to work with it in my dreams. I asked my guides to bring it to me in a dream so that I could get my ego filters out of the way. That night, I had the most epic archetypal dream of my life. I could totally make it into a movie script one day. I woke up the next morning knowing I had been on an epic journey, and it was so archetypal, and I knew this dream held the answers to our question. I wrote down the details as soon as I could. There were things I didn't quite understand right away, but they were and it was all perfect. It was exactly what I needed to unravel the mystery and come to understand. I started by doing a Google search on a unique name that was given in the dream that had me somewhat mystified. And then that led me to finding an article analyzing the meaning of a character in one of Shakespeare's plays by the same name. This then led to more clues and insights. And the dream was so layered that I then decided I'm going to share it with some friends who are familiar with this issue and the symbolism. And through that dialogue, we were able to discover the meaning of the dream. And it was really profound. But to me, this is one of the best uses of dreams to help us gain insight into the bigger things, the deeper questions, the things that we need to understand and shift within ourselves, individually and collectively. Now, as we get good at conscious dreaming, a more advanced goal would be to become conscious within our dream and be able to observe and engage with it in real time. Is this more advanced form of conscious dreaming the same as lucid dreaming? Not quite. Let's explore the difference. What is lucid dreaming? How's it different from conscious dreaming? Well, have you ever been in the middle of a dream when you suddenly realized you're dreaming? 
And then from there, you were able to shape or change the dream. This is lucid dreaming. I've had lucid dreams, for example, where I was having a bad dream of something chasing or trying to attack me. And at some point I'd realize this isn't real. This is a dream. And it's like waking up within the dream. And at that point I thought, well, I'm just going to fly out of here. So I'd take flight and the whole dream would change. When we become lucid and aware within the dream and consciously choose to manipulate it and change it, we can go and have a fantastic journey. But it's something we have to learn how to do. Well, one way we can start to lose a dream is to program ourselves to check in on whether we're dreaming or awake. This starts with doing it throughout our day when we're awake. We could start a habit of looking at our hands and asking, am I dreaming or am I awake? If our hands stay normal, then we're awake. But in a dream, things don't usually stay normal. Uh, they may start to do something funny or not quite look right, or we may even do impossible things. These can be triggers to becoming lucid during a dream. But we have to do this throughout the day to program ourselves to check in. Then when we're asleep, we have that subconscious programming to trigger us to check and wake up within the dream. In a lucid dream, we're becoming more conscious of what was previously a subconscious type of dream. And if we choose to change the dream, well, now we're applying our will, but it's kind of still our ego's will that gets in when we become lucid. We tend to control the dream from our personality level of things. Sometimes the higher self will come in and guide our dream. And here comes the main difference between lucid dreaming and conscious dreaming. In more advanced forms of conscious dreaming, we become aware that we're dreaming. But rather than trying to manipulate it with our personal will, we ask, what is it that I'm supposed to be learning here? We call in our higher self and our guides to teach us and help us understand and learn. We take a more receptive role, yet it's still proactive and conscious within the dream. As we do this, dreams begin to unfold in a higher form. We begin to consciously engage with the archetypes. Our higher self and our guides communicate with us through our dreams when we're paying attention. The more we consciously engage with our dreams, the more we open ourselves to this communication. We're participating in this conversation. So in conscious dreaming, we're not trying to manipulate our dream like we might in lucid dreams. Instead, we're asking questions and receiving guidance to help us with our life. And the cool thing about conscious dreaming is that we can really start to use our dream time to support our progression. Lucid dreaming can be fun, but it's not usually supporting our progression in a, any big way. It's kind of similar to astral travel for tourist type purposes. It's a phenomenon. It can have a lot of glamour and allure and it can be fun, but it's not always productive necessarily. When we want to make it more purposeful, we can shift into conscious dreaming and use our dreams as opportunities to learn and grow. This helps us access deeper wisdom to support us in our life. Now, the fourth category of dreams that I mentioned is what is known as astral dreaming. 
How is astral dreaming different? What does this term mean? And how does it relate to astral travel? With astral dreams, we're actually engaging with the astral planes. It's not just symbolic or archetypal. And we all astral travel while sleeping, but it's usually during the deepest part of our sleep cycle. It might only be 15 to 30 minute period during the night when we are astral traveling. We're usually not aware of it. But if we do become aware within an astral dream, the experience is very real, like it really happened. And it can sometimes be validated. For example, I've had astral dreams where I remember going somewhere I'd never been before and even receiving a name of a place. And then later in my waking life, I did physically go there and it looked exactly as it did in the dream. Another common trait of astral dreams is that events feel more sequential. Other types of dreams tend to jump around and we may not remember how we got from one point to the next. Astral dreams, on the other hand, follow a clear sequence. Just like in our waking life, we may remember flashes of those dreams and wonder, wait a minute, did I really do that or was it a dream? What's happening here? What are we doing in the astral realms when we're sleeping? Well, every night during the deepest part of our sleep cycle, we all astral travel to the Akashic Zone to record everything that happened that day. It's our personal book of life. Also, light workers are those who've said to the universe, I want to serve in the light. I want to help. We're often given assignments during dream time where our self is serving at some level within the astral realm. We may be on a council of some kind, and we might even receive some sort of training on the astral so that we can serve at a higher level. For example, I often have dreams of being in a classroom or a large gathering of some kind. We're being taught by a master teacher, or we'll go out on a service mission where we're helping people or helping the planet by working with the grids of the earth. When we become lucid during these kinds of astral dreams, we can engage with higher spiritual dimensions in a conscious way and learn a lot. This type of experience makes us wonder, what is real? Is reality just what's happening in the physical? Or is reality what's happening in our mind? Is this physical experience an illusion? A projection of a hologram? If we are infinite spiritual beings having a physical experience, our true self exists somewhere beyond this physical dimension. Then what's real? And what's a dream? Science has shown us that our brain can't tell the difference between a real event and an imagined event, or the events that happen in dreams. The patterns of neural firings are the same. What happens within our brain while we sleep? One complete sleep cycle is typically 90 to 120 minutes long. Within this time, we transition through several stages categorized by the different brainwave levels. As we start to fall asleep, we first drift into a relaxed state. Here, the brain activity is mostly in what we call the alpha range of 8 to 13 hertz. We're not really asleep yet, and we can easily be woken up in this first stage. The second stage comes when we move into the theta brainwave level of 3 to 8 hertz. Here, we're deeply relaxed and asleep 
At this stage, our memories from the day become consolidated, and any unused synapses of the brain are pruned. Eventually, we come into a deep, dreamless sleep within the delta range of 0.5 to 3 hertz. They call this slow-wave sleep, and it's highly restorative. When we astral travel, it's often during this stage. There's not much brain activity happening here. It takes a lot of purposeful practice using astral travel methods and deep meditation to be able to maintain consciousness when the brain slows down to this delta range. But even if we're not conscious during the astral travel period, the experience may later translate into our dreams during the REM stage. The final phase of our sleep cycle, called the REM stage, is characterized by rapid eye movements. On average, this stage begins at about the 90-minute mark of our sleep cycle. At this point, our brainwave activity is very similar to when we're awake. This period is when we experience dreaming, and we have the ability to become aware in our dreams during this time. I remember one astral dream in particular that I'll share with you. In my waking life, I'd been to see a healer, and she told me I had wings. I was like, "Yeah, whatever. I'm no angel." I didn't believe her. And later that week, I had a dream where I was in this big meeting hall. And I was walking down a corridor where there was a mirror to my left. I stopped and looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw my reflection. As I saw my reflection, I was surprised to see these little black wings on my back, and I thought, "Oh, I do have wings. Look at that. They're cute, but they're so tiny. And why are they black?" Then I moved on with the dream. And when I woke up, I remembered this image of myself in the mirror, and I thought, "Huh, maybe I do have wings." Whenever we see ourselves in a mirror while dreaming, it's very symbolic. It's a representation of our energetic form. So, if you ever see your reflection in a mirror during a dream, pay attention. Now, about a month or so later, I had another astral dream where I was in some kind of training, learning how to navigate and fly using my wings. In this dream, my wings were no longer small and black; they were much bigger. And I was learning this new skill of how to fly with them. It was like learning how to hang glide. It felt very visceral and real. It was a challenge learning to balance and to steer to get the method down. Now, this was some form of astral training that was teaching me how to work with my wings. Prior to that point, any flying dreams I ever remembered were more like I was trying to swim through the air using my arms and legs. This one was very different. But there's so much for us to explore within our dream time. So, how do we build a practice of conscious dreaming? Let's review some steps to break it down into a practical formula. First, prepare your body. Try not to eat anything after six or seven p.m. and avoid substances that might interfere with dreaming, including alcohol, marijuana, or sleep medicine. We generally experience two to three sleep cycles throughout the night, depending on how long we sleep for. 
One technique to help you wake up between the sleep cycles is to drink a full glass of water before going to bed. Now, I know we don't all want to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, but doing this will give you the opportunity to wake up and journal any dreams from that first cycle of the night. Now, the second step is to prepare your mind. Give yourself 20 minutes before bed to set your intention and meditate. Do some journaling to first get clear on what questions you'd like answered or what guidance you need. Once you get clear and set your intention, write it down. Next to this intention, draw the symbol of Neptune. This symbol is an invocation of the archetypal energy of Neptune, which governs the dream time and the subconscious. Drawing the symbol invokes this archetypal energy to come in and support the process of answering our intention or question through the dream time. After setting your intention, now meditate for 20 minutes, relaxing your body and emptying your mind. Visualize a river flowing through your mind and let it wash away any thoughts or distractions. Bring yourself to inner stillness and peace. Once your mind is clear, bring your awareness and focus back to your intention. And now identify a symbol that represents your intention. Trust whatever is the first symbol that comes to mind. Now we're going to draw from the exercise I shared in the episode on astral travel, but with a slight modification that is specific to creating a doorway for astral dreaming. Within your mind, visualize a dot on the wall. Again, it could be a black dot on a white wall or a white dot on a black wall. Once you have that dot, now overlay the symbol of your intention on top of that dot. Focus your mind, holding your focus on the dot on the wall and your intention for the dream time. After about five minutes of focusing on the dot on the wall, expand the dot until it touches the edges of the wall. And with the dot expanded, visualize it now becoming a tunnel and walk through. The journey through this tunnel this time isn't to go somewhere like we would for astral travel but to transition into the dream time with more conscious awareness. Use the tunnel to bridge your conscious mind with the subconscious dream time. From here, gently lay down to go to sleep. You can recreate the tunnel in your mind, passing through the tunnel and focusing on your intention, and then allow yourself to drift off to sleep. When you wake up, without shifting your body, First, ask yourself, where was I? What was I dreaming about? How do I feel? The key to remembering is that when we wake up, we want minimal movements. Whatever position your body is in, stay still to keep that muscle memory. Before we start to journal without moving, take a moment to remember where you were and what was happening. Holding still, let it start coming back to you. Once it starts coming back, gently reach for the journal near your bed and write it out. 
or you can use a device to record an audio description of your dream. It's best to do all of this with minimal movement and disruption. As soon as we start to move too much, we begin losing our state of muscle memory, and it becomes more difficult to remember until we've anchored the dream. Even if you don't remember things at first, ask yourself, how do I feel? Am I tired, well-rested, positive, confused? Review the question you wrote down the night before going to sleep. Ask yourself, do I have a sense of the answer? Even if all you remember is a few snippets, maybe a person or feeling of stress or whatever it may be, it still counts, so write it down. Even a little bit of remembering is helpful. And the more we practice this process of journaling, the more we are conditioning ourselves to remember. We need to make it a practice, a part of life, if we want to engage with these higher forms of lucid or conscious dreaming. When we make it a practice, we condition our subconscious mind to pay attention. It's an active process to build and open this bridge to conscious dreaming. To fit this in, it's best to give ourselves maybe an extra 30 minutes or so first thing in the morning to reflect and journal before we have to get going. And when we make this a daily practice, we can become more and more conscious of our dreams. When we're paying attention to our dreams, it opens the door for a form of communication with our higher self and guides. But it's up to us to make the effort and reflect on what is revealed through that universal language of the archetypes in our dreams. When we get more conscious of our dreams, we can use them as a tool for progression in our life towards our full potential. We can set our intention for anything we want. But if it's coming from the ego, there's a good chance our dreams will reflect that and try to set us straight. Conscious dreaming is about higher consciousness. It's not so concerned with the ego's wants. It's coming from a higher spiritual perspective. The question is, how are we going to use this time within our dreams? If we are aware within the dream, are we going to use that awareness to manipulate our dream for entertainment or ego purposes? Or is there a higher intention to learn and grow? From what level of consciousness are we engaging? Remember, conscious dreaming is about becoming aware of the fact that we're dreaming, but we're not trying to manipulate it. Let go of the fear factor. Become a witness and observe. There's nothing to be afraid of. Ask, what's the lesson here? What am I supposed to know? What's my guidance telling me? How does this answer my question or help my progression? Just by asking the question, it will help bring the dream to a higher level. And remember, if any knowledge, tool, or experience isn't leading toward your progression in life, then it's not doing any good. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge really doesn't help us. Knowledge that leads towards progression is about giving us a greater awareness of our divinity. When we apply this kind of knowledge, we can make real change and transformation happen in our lives. Join me again as we venture into the world of crystals and how we can work with them to enhance our life. I'm Dr. Teresa Bullard. Thank you for exploring the mysteries of the dream time with me in this episode of Mystery Teachings. Oh, my goodness. 
that was bringing back a dear friend of ours. I think that was good, right? So we're going to do this one next, right? Okay, I will read this. Okay, this one is Africa and the Dawn of Human Consciousness. That's the title. The human species was designed to be in harmony with Earth and with one another. Acclaimed author and psychologist, Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum, discusses humanity's origins in Africa. Rediscovering our history can give us a new vision of unification for humanity through the philosophy of supra-mental consciousness. In his book, Our African Unconscious, he documents how we can reawaken and renew our collective understanding, understanding, overstanding of how we can unify as a world why civilization. So here we go. This one mm. is 49 minutes. All right, everybody. 49 minutes. And it's 11.22 here. Very mm. good. All right. Beginning with the biological, paleontological, archaeological reality and the population genetic reality that Africa is the origin of the human species, Mm -hmm. Africa is also the origin of human consciousness. All the great scientists of the world, by the way, including Einstein, acknowledged that their great ideas came from someplace that was not associated with their everyday mind. With, not with the mental realm. As odd as it may seem, African Americans in the United States are more hopeful about America than most white people are. Really? We don't really know. All we know is that those great female uh, religions, they were suppressed. And the patriarchal took over and dominated. And the, role was to, the goal was to dominate nature including the nature of females. Today's guest, Dr. Bruce Bynum, has authored a book titled Our African Unconscious, which states that not only does the human race flow from Africa, but so do many of our world's most profound spiritual and religious practices. However, modern colonialism has repressed these contributions from our awareness. The result has been an erasure, and denigration of dark-skinned people and their wisdoms around the globe, which now has to be reintroduced, which now has to be reversed. Thank you, Dr. Biden, for joining us. I think some people will find this conversation, parts of it controversial. Yes, yes. But you are a, you're really a profound thinker. You make great contributions because you're looking at it from a spiritual point of view and a scientific point of view. Both. Starting with our DNA, moving toward what we just said off camera, toward now all of us embracing and developing into a supramental well, awareness. So first, tell us what the destination is. Tell us what supramental means. 
Well, and then we're going to go back into the DNA and start at the beginning. Okay, well, supermental means uh, that consciousness that is emerging in us as a species that uh, is an evolutionary phenomenon that goes from the, from the time that we were, quote-unquote, primitive but relatively balanced beings on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years, and then we gradually clawed our way up to mental consciousness, which is where most of us are today. Mm-hmm. But we also sense from not only our scientific to some extent, but also our intuitive and spiritual intuition and consciousness that there's something beyond that. Mm-hmm. And we see that most of them are in creative states, mm-hmm. intensity, sometimes when we are in deep nurturing experiences, uh, childbirth experiences, mm-hmm. and then one of those indications that there is something... And an ecstatic state almost. And an ecstatic state, mm-hmm. yes. And then that consciousness is a supramental consciousness. And all the great scientists of the world, by the way, including Einstein, acknowledged that their great ideas came from someplace that was not associated with their everyday mind. With the, not with the mental realm. Not with the mental Interpreted realm. Interpreted by the mental realm, but it didn't originate. But it, 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 it descended, yes. so to speak, from a higher order enfolded consciousness that begins in our mother's womb. Mm. From the beginning of embryology. Stimulated by a unfolding neural current in in the uh, uh, womb, it begins progressively more articulated, such that organs flow out of that, such that by the time the fetus is ready, it comes out and it is on some level already conscious. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't become conscious all of a sudden, boom, we're born. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're conscious. Yeah. No, we are conscious for some period of time. Before we're born, mm-hmm. and we also know that we are conscious for some period of time, even after we are clinically dead. Yes, they call of course. Near death studies. Yes. yes, and our audience is very comfortable with all of right. this. Right, so we're, we're we're conscious before we're born yes. to some extent, and sometimes we're conscious after we are dead. After we're dead, clinically for some while. But well, then you got that problem of everything in between, well, which is our life which is where we're in that mental state, which has created massive division and other things on this planet. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but let's start off with the origin, the DNA, and evidence of the DNA around the globe, Mm, that there was one primary physical structure, architecture, species that then moved out and started evolving in different patterns, different ways, different cultures. Yes. So... We've heard of it in the most common sense of Lucy, but let's go more into it. Yeah, Lucy was one of the, uh, that they're referred to as Australopithecines. Mm-hmm. Before her, there were other creatures, mm-hmm. primates. They evolved mostly in Africa, East and South Africa. Uh, they lived for millions of years. And then about six, eight million years ago, we split off from that line and began our move toward where we are today. Uh, uh, whole groups of Australopithecines who were around for a while. Lucy, about three million right. years ago, was one. Yeah. And then out of her, we eventually moved further. We split off from those Australopithecines and became the Homo genus. And then lots of those died off until eventually we're where we are today, Homo sapiens sapiens. And you know what? We've only been around as Homo sapiens sapiens. Ah, 150,000. <laughs> Conservative to maybe 250,000 years. Not that long. Yeah. But even more interesting than that is that when we spread all over the planet, uh, we looked pretty much African for most of a long period of time. 
racial diversifications we think of it today only began about 25 to 35,000 years ago. Before that time, we all looked Africanly. Well, that would, that would make sense. Yes. Simply in that if you're moving, it takes a long time for evolution <laughs> yeah. to step in and have a species adapt to. Now this is, I want to say for our audience, not taking into consideration any of the esoteric kind of ideas of how different races right. were tinkered with or so forth. Right, we're going to right. be sticking with DNA right. and these migratory patterns and so yes. forth. So it takes a long time to develop new traits out of necessity. Of necessity. Okay. Necessity. So, okay, I want to go back kind of okay. to the cradle. So here you have the original human species, right? Mm-hmm. And this species was arguably the most in tune with the planet mm. that we have ever seen because it was born of the planet in harmony with the planet, yes. knew what they could take and what they needed to give back to the planet and had this native intuition intelligence that knew how to live in harmony. And as I was saying to you off camera, it was a already a fulsome existence. Yes, it, was. it was. But people are curious. Things change. We yes, move on. Is. And it, like you said, we evolved into this mental state. Let's talk about what happened from the original state of living in harmony with earth and understanding her language and vice versa. What happened to start propelling us into this mental state and these migration patterns? Well, you know, we had to struggle to become mental creatures. And we were pulled, I believe, by the forces of evolution themselves to develop a higher state of consciousness. We were certainly more in harmony with nature in that fulsome period that you're talking about. But it was also a precarious time. I mean, we were at the mercy of wild beasts. Yeah. We could starve. We could um, get lost. And so we were under the impress of evolution, continuing to develop our faculties. And we had to struggle to learn how to reason, how to think, how to gain control over Nature, which seemed quite precarious, and we eventually evolved the skill of being mental creatures. By mental creatures, I mean ones who could uh, reason, predict, uh, record, have memory, and strategize. That, strategize, yes, which mm-hmm. was very important. Mm-hmm. And then for millennia after that, as we evolved into more mental creatures, we still lived in peace and harmony, but we were a more secure species. Talk about that. We were. We, we began to uh, live in villages. Mm-hmm. We began to recognize that uh, families could be extended. And eventually, we began to do something radical. During the period of Neanderthals, we began to bury our dead. Tell us why that was significant. That was significant because... Uh, we began to develop some sense that something else was going on in the world that we couldn't quite see that was very important. Of a spiritual nature. Of a spiritual nature. And we began to take our dead, sporadically at first, but take our dead and we would bury them in the house, underneath the house. Eventually we buried them in, in cemeteries and graveyards. But we had some gen- general sense that there was something going on in the universe that we couldn't That, that see. was more than a body. It was yeah. more than a body. Right. And we knew it from our dreams. 
we knew it because of the, the mystery of birth. Uh, the, the, the female would create a new form of life. How does that happen? It's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. But it became codified, and we began to have uh, organizations doing that. For th- and we did that for thousands of years. And then about 18,000-plus years ago, in the river valleys around the earth, beginning in Africa, 18,000 uh, B.C., uh, women started noticing something. They started noticing them when they when we finished the hunting gathering and we threw the seeds away that in these river valleys, all of a sudden those same plants would come back. And so she began to notice, oh, there's that. And it comes back out of soil again. I have a cycle in my own body. The moon seems to have cycles. And that star up there seems to periodically come around. And she began to notice these great cycles. And that's the general idea of an, of a, a, a quantum leap over spiritual consciousness before that. She noticed that not only is, are the dead important and we have to take care of them, but the dead somehow have cycles involved. And that's how, how she began to experiment with the idea of, which is the bedrock of many religions. Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yeah. Resurrection, right. rebirth, right, and she played with that for about ten thousand years until the idea became crystallized. What I'm hearing you say, as the men were doing their thing, doing their thing, hunting, the gathering, being the brave warriors, raising their sons, killing things, <clears throat> killing things, the women were more still, mm-hmm. um, more steady at the center of the the life in the family or even in the tribe and that they were in more of an emotive observation and they were they were in a position to be more observant in yes. a sense. Yes. And over a long period of time this observation started planting these seeds you're talking about. Yes. So this results in an understanding of cycles of life that yes. has consciousness to it. That's right. That's well right. that got co opted. <clears throat> no, you're the first person that's come on and said that really came as a result of Female observation, participation, yes. and stimulation. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we'll get into the patriarchy thing in a minute, <laughs> but let's get back to the spiritual, some of the spiritual principles mm. that came with the original African culture. Let's start looking at it as it develops into what we call spiritual practice, even mm. religions. And I'm going to use the terms in your book. And if you can please explain what they are to us, because this is intrinsic to African original human, yeah. con- the development of consciousness. Yes. Ifa, Ori, and Dafa. Right. Tell us what these principles mean. Well, beginning with the, with the biological, paleontological, archaeological reality and the population genetic reality that Africa is the origin of the human species. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Africa is also the origin of human consciousness. And out of that become developed our seminal intuitions of spiritual relationship of all kinds, of all kinds. Beyond what you just spoke about among yes. the women. Yes. Um, primarily among women because uh, the, the women uh, had the mystery within them. Yes. The men did not have the mystery within them. Uh, in fact, we didn't figure out who was the father of anybody 
for a long period of time. <laughs> but you knew who your mother was. <laughs> you always knew. You always knew who your mother was. You didn't necessarily know who your father right, was. Right. So women would want to recognize this. This was their genius. And also she was a center of the family. Mm-hmm. And the men also knew that they would not exist unless she existed and she took care of them. Really, really, really important. This is going to circle back to haunt us a little later in the conversation. Okay. okay? So right now, let's go into those <clears throat> those three ter- terms that I put out there as the basis for the development of our consciousness, the understanding that was there embedded in African culture. The, uh, the ones that you spoke of, of Ifa. Ifa. Ifa, yeah. Ori. Ori. Those are, those are West African, uh, religious, uh, phenomena or, or words that apply to some of the religions that develop in West Africa. Okay. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly when, but probably, uh, a few thousand years before Christ. We don't know exactly. When. Well, explain the concepts because it's going to sound awfully familiar to Okay. Um, Ifa is a divination system, uh, of divination meaning how to read the earth and how to predict from reading the earth, the oracles, mm-hmm. uh, how things would proceed. And so those are two particular systems, Dafa and Ifa, and of which are attempts to and successfully divine how the earth is emerging mm-hmm. and um, I'm not emerging, but uh, are proceeding. And so uh, they became over time very complex and sophisticated systems. A variation on the theme is the I Ching. That is another system. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, that one developed primarily in Mesopotamia and then it, um, migrated over to uh, China. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ifa uh, may have developed in the interior of Africa and along the Nile and then progressed, migrated over to the west of Africa. We really don't know. We have some linguistic suggestions, mm-hmm. but uh, we honestly don't know. All we know is that it has developed there. And what's Ori? Ori, our Ori, is the energy of the spirit that resides literally in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, in many African systems, that though there will be a statue or just the, the figure, uh, the head of a person. It means the, the energy in your head. Uh, older people, the elders, are thought to be, quote, strong in their head, unquote. The ori is strong. Uh, and the, the nature of the process of most spiritual traditions around the earth, from, from the uh, Southeast Asia to South America, certainly Africa, is to raise the energy up mm-hmm. from the base of the body all the way up through the body, through various spiritual disciplines, to reside in the ori. Mm-hmm. And that is where one awakens into a full spiritual consciousness. Now, at some point, there becomes even more of a cosmic consciousness. Yes, awareness absolutely. Now. And today, most of our audience has heard of um, the Dogon tribe and yes. the connection with the star ancestors from Sirius, for example. Yes. So let's talk about how that started coming in before we hop to the first dynasty mm. in, in the Egyptian pharaonic or system. Okay. Well, the Dogon traced their own ancestry to pre-dynastic Egypt. Some of their ideas, particularly with the star Sirius. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, uh, uh, they were very aware of the uh, orbits of certain stars 
uh, without the aid of telescopes, by the way, right. very accurately for hundreds and hundreds of years before Western astronomy. Which is really credited to the Egyptians, also to the the Persians. and Well, they all kind of knew about it. Mm -hmm. They were all uh, trading ideas back Mm -hmm. and forth. But there is a mysterious connection between the star Sirius and many spiritual traditions and phenomena on Earth. Mm -hmm. And the ancient Egyptians knew about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ancient uh, 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 folks uh, from the, uh, the Dogon tribe knew about it. The Persians knew about it. Um, and very interestingly enough, it was connected to phenomena in our own physical bodies. All these, oh, no. well, all these spiritual traditions that you're talking about talked about raising energy mm-hmm. from the base of the body yeah. through the spinal mm-hmm. line to the top of the head. And each has its own character, characteristic way of expressing it, but they're all the same. And that's because the human brain is the same. The human brain underneath the skull is dark. Why is the human brain dark? Because it is full of what a phenomenon called, a, 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 a molecule called neuromelanin. It's not the same as skin melanin. Mm-hmm. No, it's neuromelanin. neuromelanin. It's invariant across our species. Mm-hmm. And why it's important is that as we evolve, as we move through evolution, the brain gets darker. Why is that? Richard, uh, is it, well, does it mean more saturated, more dense? It means that not only is it more saturated, more dense, mm-hmm. but that density of neuromelanin allows it to absorb light, absorb quanta. Oh, interesting. Absorb it and transmute it to higher states of awareness. It's probably the first time we've heard of this. The, uh, of all the, of all the creatures on, uh, on the earth, the ones who have the greatest amount of neuromelanin in their brains are the mammals. Among the mammals, the ones with the highest are the primates. Among the primates, the ones with the highest are the great apes. Mm-hmm. Of the great apes, the ones who has the highest, densest concentration of this capacity to absorb light and transform it in their physical brain are the chimps, chimpanzees. And the only one with more mm-hmm. is our species, Homo mm-hmm. sapiens sapiens. That's a pretty tight con- correlation. Yeah. And it's an, it's an evolutionary phenomenon. And evolution is not like the, the, the laws that govern supposedly the cosmos where things become more disordered um, as things progress. In other words, ne- entropy. Mm-hmm. No, evolution is negative entropy. Negative entropy, Things yes. get more complex, yes. more sophisticated, and we're intimately associated with that. And all of our spirit, spiritual traditions are about tuning into that, yes. harnessing that in various ways, and bringing that up. And all of our great religions began with women. Mm-hmm. They all did. There are no exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much the dominant system throughout all the continents until about eight. 10,000 years ago, maybe. Okay, now that turns into something interesting date-wise because now we're coming into a series of floods, Mm. a series of of annihilations, so to speak, loss of populations, loss of cultures, and so forth. So Famines, plagues, plagues and all that. So now coming out of that, that feminine feminine observational connected Mm -hmm. mode is starting to be replaced with something more primal, more fear-based, more survival-based. Yes. So talk about that for a minute, and then I want to get over to Egypt, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think 
of Egypt as being part of Africa, right? Oh, well, <laughs> that's how I know, but you, you see what I'm saying. It's yeah. like, oh, no, that was Egyptian culture, yeah. not African culture. Yeah, no, no. So we're going to move up into Africa, starting okay. with the first dynasty, and move through something in the 18th dynasty. Then we're going to move to colonialism, okay. because that's where we've got to go. So let's talk about what happened after these floods and destruction of culture and life. Well, there were a lot of floods and destructions uh, that wiped out civilizations, some of which we don't even know about. At one time, the Sahara, which is now dry and arid, was lush. Yes. And satellite uh, uh, technologies revealed rivers and lakes all connected mm-hmm. to all this Saharan Africa. And then, well, when the Sahara started drying up, People from West Africa began, and, and highlands of Ethiopia began to migrate down the Nile. And there you have people who are primarily what we would today call Nubian or Sudanese, and people who are uh, Egyptians, not Arab Egyptians, but the indigenous Egyptians, sort of cross-fertilizing. Nubians and indigenous Egyptians creating a culture. Creating a culture that lasted for thousands of years unbroken. Was that the beginning of the dynastic culture? That's the beginning of dynastic culture that we know about. However, the ancient Egyptians trained, and those about, eh, it's the beginning of around four or 5,000 years before Christ. The ancient Kemetic Egyptians, however, date their civilization to 10,500 BC. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that uh, everything that we know about archaeological and some of these great structures, <clears throat> at this point, is speculation. There's a lot of because speculation. Because I've interviewed, I mean, we, we all, everyone at Gaia mm-hmm. here has heard of Robert Schock and a lot yes. of other people. And Robert privately says that the pyramid appears to be more like 100,000 years old. It may right. very well because it's stone. It's exactly, exactly. Right. So that means we've had culture that was sophisticated yes. and capable of this Rises mental plane. And falls, and, exactly. Rises and falls. So now we're, species. Yes. So now we go to, as you say, roughly 8,000 years ago. We're trying to pick ourselves up out of whatever debris and mud is Something left. happened. Something and, happened. And I think most people here are comfortable with the notion of an inundation, the younger driest period, all that. Right. How did we then move away from the instinctive feminine contribution into patriarchy. Uh, the patriarchy was a way, and by the way, it was successful, you have to admit it. It was a, a way to reorganize aggressively and yeah. for the first time in human history, the males rose up and began to dominate nature and also women. And that was seen as a way to control the world. And but what what on a spirit psycho spiritual evolutionary level, why was that necessary? Because everything had been destroyed. Someone had to step up and roll their sleeves up. Uh, we we're speculating. We don't really know. Okay. We don't, we don't really know. All we know is that those great uh, female uh, religions. Uh, they were suppressed. Mm-hmm. They still survive in some societies today, mm-hmm. but they were largely suppressed. And the patriarchal took over and dominated. And the role was to, the goal was to dominate nature, including the nature of females. Well, you said a little mo- a moment ago, but yeah, it was a success. And- it was successful in doing what it was designed to <laughs> okay. do. That means it was the best for all, but it was successful. And then one could even extend that into the age of modern times, the age of technology, where you needed a lot of 
you know, very direct and singular thinking right. to bring about certain kinds of creation inventions. But and now, it's, now it's become a catastrophe. Yeah. Now yeah. it's become yeah. a catastrophe. Now we have polluted the waters, polluted the oceans, and the very source of life itself has become contaminated. And we're on the verge of, of, uh, of extinction. You know, in the past, uh, when there has been a vast ecological change, a new form of us has arisen. Mm-hmm. That happened with uh, the early primates. That happened with the rise of the uh, Australopithecines. That happened with the rise of the Homo genus. And that happened with the rise of variations in between. Mm-hmm. And we are in a unique time right now because we are experiencing a global uh, climate near catastrophe. And interestingly enough, for the first time in the history of our species, we're about to leave the planet. Yeah, right. That's we right. We are. We, oh, we people are going out for weekends or whatever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, well, the, money. well the, the, the purely military exploration of That's space right. is beginning to take a backseat to the commercial exploration right. of space. So we better have our act together before we go out into space, because God knows what we'll find out there. I would not be looking at that as a backup plan for thinking we can get away with destruction here because there's something better no, elsewhere. No, not, I'm not better. Not, yeah. I'm not talking about going to another planet. Okay. I'm talking about encountering other forms of life. Oh, yes, indeed. And uh, we better figure out what we are. What we are. <laughs> and I find it a very soothing and comforting idea for a species like us who is at war with itself. Right that we all have a common genetic, biological, yes. uh, archaeological, and paleontological origin. And uh, that is a warm, inclusive, and actually very helpful idea because it also points out and confirms what all of our great spiritual traditions say, that we are all the same family. Right. We are right. all the same family. Right. And this is a, this is how science and our great spiritual mystical traditions in particular are pointing out. And so they're coming together. Yeah. And, uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. It and we're going to make it, by the way. We are going to make it. I'm with you. We are going we to are make gonna it. We are going to make it. And so thank you. We, we have, we, we are one. We are a species. We yes. are going to make it. So within that, we can go ahead and take on some of the more challenging stuff facing us now. But first, let's take a quick stop. Um, you say that, so you have the Nubian and, and indigenous Egyptians came together. It started the dynastic cultures, which also brought through it, um, deep spiritual understanding yes. and knowledge of the nature of reality, cosmos, etc. Including and, the nature of the mind. And the, the nature of the mind. The ancient Egyptians. Yes. You knew about the unconscious mind, and they call it by name, the primeval waters of Nun, out of which the uh, the, the the world manifested itself out of out of the unseen. Well, this gets into a siren. Yes, yes, yes. You, you, there it is, <laughs> there it is, and uh, and the idea, the notion of the seven stages of the soul. Yes, and that this is you know these this is the origin of the seven lively arts. You know. Mm-hmm. But it was a, these were the mystery schools, mm-hmm. and the point was to elevate human consciousness to a superluminous consciousness. That was the goal. Of that it. was the goal. It didn't work out too well. It didn't work out too well for huge numbers of people. But you know what? It did work out for 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 a lot of people 
because they kept alive the mysteries even after the fall of those great civilizations. They're they back. Kept alive. You're back. back. We're, We're all back. back. <laughs> We're back. It's We're time back. now where people can embrace and understand. Right. We have the luxury, in a sense, of being able to mm-hmm. open ourselves to thoughts beyond our survival to That's where we right. can now take this on. Let's move forward because it's on everybody's minds, everybody's hearts. And that is a notion of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking off camera. Mm-hmm. And we we're talking about colonialism, slavery and such, where the Africans were enslaved starting 500 years ago or so. But you said something. You said, well, hold on a minute. It goes both ways. Yes, it does go so both ways. So let's talk about the African colonization of Europe prior. Yes, people don't like to. Uh, they don't want to hear about that. No, no, not that. Uh, but, uh, yes, uh, um, uh, thousands of years, hundreds of years before Christ, there were African incursions through Kemetic Egypt into the, the Middle East and parts of Europe. And there were African armies, African, uh, uh, civilizations that moved into the Iberian Peninsula for hundreds the of Moors. years. The Moors. The Moors. And that, that was in 780. Right. I'm talking about, you know, hundreds of years BC. Right. That was the case. Right. And, uh, um, they lived, they existed for a while and then they, they ended as all civilizations, uh, do. But yes, so it has gone both ways. We if have, been, we have we the been, potential to exploit. We were, we would exploit. Well, that's the darker side of our yeah. nature, apparently. But, and, and then, uh, uh, the most recent one began at the end of, um, the uh, voyages of, uh, Columbus. Mm-hmm. You know, that year, 1492, the big year, Columbus got lost in the Americas. The last, uh, African emperor, West African emperor, Sunni Ali, dies. And the more, I don't know about the, how, the significance of that. Well, he was the last, Africa, West Africa in, in, in particular had had an, a series of great empires. Don't talk about that much in school. No, no, not at but all. But they had a series of great empires. Uh, Songhai, Ghana, uh, Mali. They came and went and succeeded each other, but they were empires for hundreds of years. And then when they fell, beginning in 1492, the last great emperor dies. Just as Columbus stumbles into the landmass right. here. And, and the Jews are kicked out of Spain. Right. Right. 1492, big year. Hmm. That's when the slave trade in the West begins. And it, it wasn't so much that, uh, 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 Europe and huge armies invaded West Africa and destroyed. No, West Africa was in decline. Okay. So it had had its turn and now yeah. it was in decline. It was in decline. Okay. And now it is right. resulted in the use of people. Yes. Yes. So now you introduce slavery into Europe, also into, into the Americas. Yes. Okay. So you are forcibly taking human beings. Yes. And moving them against their will to yes. perform tasks for other human beings, which every person understands how appalling that is at every level. Nonetheless, it set up a cycle here yes. that is now coming home to roost yes. in extraordinary ways. Right. So let's talk about that. What happened? So we're moving West Africa's in decline. Those those cultures have started declining. Um, people are selling people. People are selling their own people to other people. Right. It, 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 the, the notion of slavery in West Africa among the Africans did not have the same connotation that it did in Europe. Tell us about that. Well, uh, in Africa, you could be a slave, but that was oftentimes you were rented out to somebody for a while. And then after a certain period of time, like an indentured servant, yeah. You got your freedom back. Right. In fact, that's how enslavement began here in, 
in the in the United States in particular, uh, Africans were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Okay, other Europeans were enslaved by other Europeans. Sure. Yeah, uh, usually for seven years as an indentured indentured servant. After a while, however, only the African was an indentured servant for life. And that went on during the, what's called the antebellum period. Yes. And that's when we developed a lot of our uh, models and stereotypes and uh, interactions that we have with each other today. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were very close and very, very uh, uh, violent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were almost comically intimate. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, the interdependence on each other. The interdependence on each other. In the antebellum South, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, Africans were uh, in very intimate circumstances, family circumstances, with their white masters, mm-hmm. particularly around uh, nurturance mm-hmm. and food issues. I mean, how many times can you walk into a store today and pick up on the grocery store package of something by Aunt Jemima, right, or buckwheat, or Farina. Right. I mean, it became nurturance. It became associated with nurturance on one hand, but you also had the violence on the other. So something were very close and that still continues today. It's funny you should say that because I was so a skunk at the picnic when I said, I'm so bummed Aunt Jemima's leaving. (laughs) Because to me, it meant nurturing and love. It meant nurturing and love. Sweetness of life. Right. And so it's totally politically incorrect now, but right. it was one of those little moments of letting that's something right. pass away yeah. on a sentimental level that's not correct anymore. Right. It's 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 not necessarily politically correct, but I want to emphasize psychologically how intimate. Yes, I see. I, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. Were. And um, uh, and today uh. That goes on. Things are obviously radically improved. I believe so. Oh, yeah, I think they have. But we still have periods where uh, uh, the white population in the United States becomes exceedingly fearful. Oh, we're going to get to that in a minute. Of of, of African Americans. Well, yes, and probably for good reason. Uh, They created it. So let's go back a little bit. Go back into that era, antebellum. Here you have white men. Mm-hmm. Being raised by black women. Yeah, as wet nurses. As wet nurses. Yeah. I mean, yes, they're yeah. milk, they're nurturance, <laughs> they're cooking, they're care, they're combing their hair, bathing them. White men being raised by black women. Right. Okay? And then they're going to have to come into a position of ownership. That's right. And you have to reject that. Yes. Sometimes you... That's uh, messed up. I mean, that's, that's cognitive deeply, dissonance. That's deeply messed up. In fact, many times, uh, slaves, uh, enslaved people... Their uh, fathers were the plantation owners. And so sometimes these plantation owners sold off their own children. Think about that. Yeah. Think about what kind of head trip you have to be in it, it to sell a, off your daughter or son. That's, I mean, that's very deep, as I said, yes. moment of cognitive dissonance, right. emotional dissonance. Yes, yes. The very thing that gave you uh, a, an upbringing and nurturing that you have to then reject or you have to own, you have to dominate. Right. Okay, so this has gone on for a while, so then slavery was ended. But if you go to a lot of places in the South today, even in Georgia, for example, it's like slavery ended, but the mentality didn't end. Right, the mentality isn't there. And uh, for complex reasons, uh, it, much, much of these uh, uh, mentality is there, many of the patterns are there. And I would argue, and this is not a popular position, 
But I would argue that there has been, well, let's put it this way. Um, racism has served a very useful function. Tell us that. In America. Tell us. Well, you know, when Europeans came to the United, to the American United States, they weren't white. They were French, Italian, German, German, Irish, Irish, Swedish, <laughs> so on and so forth. And they were different tribes. Right. And the only way that they could be united was to become white. Oh, so they had a common enemy, someone with darker skin. Yes. And that is how racism helped uh, unite. I mean, practically parties. speaking, what you say is true. Yes. yes. And it, it, and it, and that's, you know, it, now it's, it's, uh, it is, uh, rancid and it was rancid then and violent then, but now it is economically, politically, and otherwise, uh, extremely taxing and that uh, drains our spiritual resources. And we cannot hold ourselves up as the moral, uh, Leaders of the world, because, you know, people know what we did. We, yes, and people remember, even if you look at it from a reincarnation standpoint, mm-hmm. people come back, you remember stuff, it's in your aura, you have yes. feelings. So, yeah, for example, what if you were one of these um, plantation owners mm-hmm. who had an uprising yes. because they pushed everyone too far and they'd had enough, the people had had enough. That doesn't get reported a lot. Talk about this for a moment. We've only got a few minutes left to get to where we are today and what needs to happen because you call it something brilliant. We'll reveal it. Well, uh, you know, there were, there were hundreds, there were literally hundreds of slave uprisings in the United States, particularly in the, in the uh, antebellum South. Mm-hmm. And so be, living on the plantation, if you were white, was a very precarious situation. Yeah. And you had to be on top of that situation. And you had to have an overseer who was doing what his job, and it was to him, doing his job to make sure that the blacks didn't rise up because it could happen like this. Right. There are hundreds of So they had to be reports. pretty brutal. They had to be pretty enforcers. brutal. Yes. Had to be pretty brutal. Um, because, uh, otherwise, you know, you could be with your family and, and maybe, uh, the 10 of you were there and you have 50 slaves. Slaves could rise up and kill everybody off. Right. And that happened. Yes. Periodically. So there was an uneasy truth in that uh, peculiar institution. Mm-hmm. And everybody had to know their roles. And the, part of the consciousness of the, of the African Americans was a dual consciousness of the consciousness of behaving and interacting with the white owner as a, as an enslaved person. And for survival. Out that survival, but also having another consciousness that was, that slave owner didn't see. Yes. In order to survive. Interesting. A dual consciousness. Yes. Well, you would have to. Yes. So now we come along into modern history, and now depending on a person's geographical location, family background, etc., um, people can rise up and become what they wish to become. But it's not all equal. No. Not even remotely equal. It's not. And no. so here we have this inequity. Still, we say, "Oh, we got Barack Obama as president. We have you, Dr. Biden, and so forth." But the reality is, it is a, it is a to me, criminally imbalanced systems still. And so now we have what you call the fear of the, um, what is it called about the repressed? Say that. Threat, threatened return of the repressed. Threatened return of the repressed. That means the repressed as in blacks in America, mm-hmm. as in women 
in particular, the, the these women. two groups in particular. Yes. Let's talk about that because everything we're seeing, these horrible situations, racial shootings, these things that are going to trial now everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on when you talk about this? Those almost Return all, of the repressed. Those are almost always situations in which white people, either as a vigilante or as a hired police officer, uh, their job, see themselves as their job in many cases, not always, but in many cases, of controlling something that doesn't get out of control. Because if it gets out of control, God knows. That slave owner mentality still. Yes, really. God knows what could happen. Right. You know, and uh, uh, curiously enough, uh, it is a similar situation with women. Yes. Uh, uh, keeping women under control because if they get out of control, you don't know what can happen to the economic order and to your own family. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It, we have to redefine the family as not a patriarchal phenomenon. But as a, 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 a more balanced kind of situation, and we're still dynamically trying to, to, to work that out. We are. We are trying to work it out, and it's not easy. It's not easy. And the racial divide, racism, is even less easy right now. Racism is, 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 is particularly difficult because not only do we have our recent experiences of the last half century since Columbus, the slave trade in the West, but we also have a deeper psychic uh, repression of what is African in ourselves. The African origin of human consciousness is the fundamental consciousness of the human being. And in deep spiritual states, people can make contact with that. And the deep river of human consciousness is an African consciousness. And that enters into the ocean of human consciousness. And that is... The origin of our spirituality. That was, that was why the, the subtitle of the book is The Black Origins right. of Mysticism and Psychology. Psychology being the science of it, right. but uh, uh, mysticism being still the mysterious part that begins in the mother's womb. It yes. begins in the mother's well, womb. Well, even bring, it even comes into dream world. This even plays out in our consciousness. It mm-hmm. plays out in the consciousness of of white people where we have dreams of having been dark skin in other lifetimes. Yes. Carl Jung had such dreams. Yes, he did. So this, this remembrance is within us, but this recent history of exploitation and perceived desire for revenge, how true is that? I mean, if you're black and you're, you're, you're repressed, you're stopped when you shouldn't be stopped, you're singled out all the time. I cannot fathom the anger that would build in me if I were subjected to yes, that. Yes, yes. And yet you have to stuff it, just you like in the plantation days. And, and control it because uh, expressed the wrong way can get you killed. Right. And relatively little happens to the people who kill you. Exactly. And that is still the case. Yes. It is still the case. And I know many people in the United States still want to acknowledge and believe that because they want to keep seeing these as isolated incidents. Mm-hmm. But this is a pattern. This, this is, is a, a pattern. deep pattern in most countries. Yeah, most of that white Americans have a difficult time understanding that, uh, because they don't, it takes a great deal of empathy to make contact with that which you are afraid of, which you love but afraid of, love but we're afraid of. Right. You know, and, uh, and so the, the capacity to make for empathic connection with that is sometimes limited. What is similar is similar to men Understanding that for a woman to be 
and a strange place at night walking the streets is dangerous for her. Most men can do that and they don't think that Don't I'm think not sexually they attacked. To I'm not going to be sexually attacked. Right. I mean, what, what's that got to do? But women understand that. Women understand it. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's the same thing for blacks. Uh, and, and, even, and even worse. Yes. And it, so let me ask you this as we wrap up, because we could talk for hours, obviously. What would you say, if you could kind of take a synthesis of what you feel the, the black emotional status is in America at this time, What would you say would have to happen to create the great healing? Well, as odd as it may seem, as odd as it may seem, African Americans in the United States are more hopeful about America than most white people are. Really? Yes, they are. Share more. I love this. Because black people, African Americans, have a memory of how really bad atrocious. And where we are today, which is not great, but African Americans see that it's bumpy and uneven that road is, there is progression. Whereas white people not seeing it, not seeing it, and oftentimes feeling that they're losing out. And this is why you get a lot of reactionary folks. Uh, you know, you will not replace this motif, uh, uh, and uh, feeling that I'm being, I'm losing out on the great. Game here, yeah. Um, because uh, that is their perception, and it is also the case that, unfortunately, because of recent our COVID, recently COVID situation, and lots of other factors, white people are not living as long as they used to right. in the United States. And there's a a perceived population decline, mm-hmm. and we're not we haven't even talked about what's happening with global warming and the eroding of the ozone. And how that's going to affect people with lighter skin. We didn't even I get mean, to, uh, we didn't get to any of this here. We I got mean, to, uh, all right. How about know, if we just have you back? You know, it's, it's not <laughs> a, it's, you know, uh, uh, yeah, basal carcinoma happen. is yeah. not an equal opportunity employer. Right. Thank you for leaving the white folks with that one. <laughs> all I have to say. I remain an optimist, though. I really yes, do. Yes, me too. I and, really do. And, you know, Dr. Bynum, I so appreciate the fact that you've put your academic research in as well as your spiritual research into this topic to bring us such a, just such a gentle and cohesive story over something that is so incredibly charged at this point in time. And I've loved I loved your messages. Well, I really, really, really thoroughly enjoyed being here, and I appreciate the opportunity to meet and talk with so many folks. Good, and we'll, get, we'll do it again. You got it. One way or another. Okay. You got it. Thank you so much, Dr. Bynum. Again, the full title of Dr. Bynum's book is Our African Unconscious, The Black Origins of Mysticism and Psychology. Loads of food for thought in that book. Definitely worth a read. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Oh, my. Okay, we're going to jump into this next one here. This is our message to lightworkers, March 25th, 2022. Uh, this week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fae Elders, as in Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you today. And so, 
in continuum from last week's message. Our writer wishes again to speak with that presence you knew most recently on earth as John Lennon. Caroline, greetings, my friend. So many who read the March 18th message said they were very happy to hear from you again. Lennon, well, I'm never short of ideas, so you're likely to find me ready to clear, to chat at any time. Greetings to all. Caroline, I'm wanting to continue on with what we were discussing last week. You talked about how, quote, many who are starseed have a hard time relating to time uh, the same way earth souls relate to it. I've noticed that when people channel from ETs or light beings and when our friend who is a white knight of the Ashtar command relays what his contacts are saying, they will use that word soon. <laughs> and over the last few months, very soon, fairly consistently. That is difficult for most people. To us, soon means in a month or two, yet so far it hasn't turned out to be that fast for most of what we are looking forward to. Full enactment of Nasara law and full disclosure of the ET presence hasn't happened yet. You pointed out that what soon means to many beings is that they can sense the potential of something building that they are actually commenting on the fact that a certain reality is building up to critical mass before it becomes outwardly visible. Yet all of us are also on in that reality in a way because all of us are also on the ships at night, full of anticipation of the joy that awaits us. Turn the page here. But, famous word, but, in those moments, we are in the etheric. We don't experience time that way while in a wake state. Yet, so, we feel a bit let down some days. And Caroline's got this picture of a, a hiker. He's on a cliff overlooking the sea. Uh, or that could be, it's a she. Could be, yes. And uh, so John Lennon says, I would say, don't judge along the old 3D lines of thought. You're all experiencing plenty more than you realize. For one, your brains are functioning differently now than they used to. Your waking thoughts are taking on a higher order. And you are all interweaving the high heart and its intuitive understanding with your thought processes more often, including the nonlinear view of time. Part of that is this powerful sentient light pouring in which contains elements that Earth has not experienced in a long time, or a purer form of them than she has known for a long time. 
And part of that is the fact that all of the energy in the cosmos has shifted to a higher order. Everything is ascending, and not only Earth. So, humanity's inner light is increasing, and so are your interdimensional awarenesses, your siddhas. Yes. Advanced spiritual abilities is another way of putting that word, siddhas. And clair, clair abilities, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, etc. And your memories. Caroline, memories of what? Lennon, other lives you've had, you've lived, other planets you've been on, and other star systems, higher level agreements, such as soul agreements and experiences, higher dimensional music that you love, colors you don't have on the earth plane. It's a long list. Caroline, you were saying last week that it's time we started living as 21st century humans and accepted our birthright. What birthright is that? Lennon, you, you are familiar with the fact that it's not just your DNA and overall consciousness that got downgraded when the current usurpers came in. With that, humanity's self-image also got trampled. You were creator gods and goddesses. Yet over a few centuries, they managed to grind humans down to where you felt that life just happens to you and that you had little to no control over your reality. Yeah. Carol. Yeah? Yeah, that phrase, shit happens. (laughs) Grace happens too. Right. (laughs) And Caroline. And now we are realizing we create all of our experiences, yes? Yet we are still subject to the astrological alignments we have no control over. Uh, no say on how long it will take the universe to evolve. Lennon, it's true, even given that. You are still creators because how you hold those issues in your heart-mind determines much of the quality of your day-to-day life. You are the universe. That's the part you lost. And now you're regaining it. Caroline, I wonder how long it will take us to get that back. Because most people are given very clear specifications in childhood about who they are, what's possible for them, and what life is like. We spend hundreds of lifetimes on this earth, most of us, hearing very early on about what is not possible for us so that over time even the most forward-looking child is squashed into denial and a very small self-concept and Lenin says these energies are reversing much of that much of awakening means remembering you are rejoining with lost aspects of your consciousness and even bits of your soul held in other realms. You are all healing the fracturing of soul and mind, heart-mind, 
suffered over the centuries. Caroline, so now I want to ask, what's that got to do with the oncoming full disclosure? Lenin, everything. Because as you reclaim your place as children of the universe, and not only children of Earth, you begin to see that it's not only the world that's your oyster, rather the all that is. And so we will turn this page again. Caroline, I wouldn't know what to do with endless possibility. I am just thinking in terms of how do we finally end wars on this planet? How do we get the, how do we get everyone fed and housed and assisted with medical issues? How do we create fair government structures and oust the frauds and the deceivers? My interests are more down to earth at the minute. Oh, Lenin. And that is best, because of course you and your light bearer friends are full of love and concern for earth life. Yet everything is intertwined with everything else. Once people begin to understand, understand, overstand, that they are not alone in this universe, and that they can accept help from the star nations, that they have family amongst them, well, that changes everything. Then the small self-concept dissolves. The lies, the false programming fade away. And the true face of everyone and everything emerges for all to see. Caroline. Then we really remember. We remember who we are and who we're meant to be. When absolutely. This goes beyond what people image as individual personal manifestations, this changes the whole playing field because now you're in the quantum. Now your reach extends out as far as your higher good will, will allow. And then Caroline. And then we are truly once again a part of the galactic expanse integrated with the other civilizations, hopefully. And John Lennon, well, they welcome you. We all do, naturally. Some are more neutral than others, and some more wary of Earth civilization than others, yet many with arms held wide open. Caroline, I hope they will be patient with us. We have a lot to understand yet and a lot to remember. Though we used to travel the stars, we haven't for a long time. Lenin, it will all come back. It will all come back to you. <sighs> In a sense, you never really left. Caroline, thank you, my friend. That gives me hope that we are nearly there. And John says, and so it is. Can you grasp all this as real in your heart mind? Then you are ready there. You were already there. 
Namaste, friends. We bow to the divinity within you all. And guess what? I passed this talking stick with rainbows, fairies, feathers, and angels, and crystals, and John Lennon, and Emerald Surf and Feathered One, Hobbits, and Menahunis, and all the rest. Here it comes. It's all for you, Rainbird, right now. I'll take it. And John <laughs> Lennon can stay with me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a beautiful day. What a beautiful day. Really enjoyed it. Everything. Everything there. So oh, yeah. I know I speak for everyone. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, too, sister. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Lama. And, uh, well, it's going to be in, it's going to be a good week. We're going to see what happens this week. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's all up to us. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So let's keep imaging the healing that we all need and, um, yeah, and, and be that light. So I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Mama. Close this out. Thank you. Okay. This is Rumi. Rise up. A new one. Yeah, we haven't heard Rui for a long time. Do not turn to look at every beggar that beckons. You belong to me. Do not sell yourself short. For you are priceless. Part the waters with your staff. You are today's Moses. Tear through the cloak of fog. You are the light. The same light as Muhammad. Shatter the mirrors of the beautiful. You are the dazzling Joseph. Blow the breath of life like Christ. You too are of that air. Break away from the unscrupulous. Do not fall for the deceit of ghouls. You are of noble origin. You are from the highest By spirit, you are deathless, imperishable, magnificent from within. You belong to the glorious. You are of divine radiance. What have you seen of your own beauty? You are still veiled. One dawn like the sun, you will rise up from within yourself. It is a shame to be shrouded this way, like the moon under a cloud. Tear through the cloud of body. 
You are the magnificent moon. You are like a hawk whose feet are bound, tethered to the body. It is with your own claws that you must untie the knots. How joyous is gold when it enters the fire. For it is within the flames where it can show its essence and radiate its virtues. Do not run away from the fire's flames. What will happen if you step into them for trial's sake? It will not burn you, I swear. Your face will glow like gold. For you are Abraham's kin. Ancient knowingness is yours. No mine has a jewel like you. This world has no life like you. For this is the world of decay. And you are life-giving life. Om Shanti, everyone. Peace be in all our hearts. World peace now. Inshallah. Satnam. Satnam Ji. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. We have won. Namaste, everyone. See you in our dreams and on the ships. And join us tomorrow and Monday evenings. Around seven o'clock each time, uh, well, in mountain time, so it'd be nine o'clock Eastern time. Uh, and our sister Cheryl Croce, right now it's really an important time that we come together in this way for, uh, peace in our hearts and in the world and, uh, Nasara to be enacted into the law. It's already with us. Uh, and so the number to join us is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code, 946-7441-POUND. Namaste. Aloha, everyone. Mahalo. Nui loa. <laughs>